Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you want to say? Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Hey, up, you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hands right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and flanking me today are Neil Kulkarna and Simon Price. Hello. Oh, Jesus and Buzz, about to embark on another crazy <laughs> adventure, I'll be bound. So, boys... Allow me, and by extension the pop crazed youngsters, to suckle upon your pop and interesting teeth. <laughs> Our pop and interesting dugs, yeah. Um, you know, usually I use the pop and interesting bit of the podcast to, to indulge in some light and occasionally heavy moaning about the the squalid minutiae of my life. Mm. But this time, it's big changes this, this, this time. Big, big changes. Sophia's started college. Ooh. She's doing a music course in Stratford-upon-Avon, which she seems to be settling nicely into. Although, Good. as a parent, I was frankly appalled at the song they got them to learn and play during induction week. What? What? Um, Oasis, rock and roll star. Oh, I mean, for fuck's sake. sake. <laughs> I'm not going to report it as a safeguarding issue or anything, but I'm, you know, I'm going to keep a close it's eye. A hate crime. Yeah. What course is she doing? She's doing music, music performance and technology. Right. So it's the first time she's been able to play with a band and stuff. So she's learning Superstition by Stevie Wonder Ooh. at the moment and all sorts. But that's how they start them off with rock and roll star. I Great. guess to make them feel like a rock and roll star or something. Set them up for a massive fall early, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was distressed to hear that, but I mean, perhaps more importantly, big, big change. I've moved house. Oh, yes. Man, oh man, stressful. Everything they say about it being the most stressful thing in your life yeah. is probably correct. Mm. The move itself, the moving day, you know, that was a hellacious shitstorm oh. of hand injuries and swearing, you know, um, and also somewhat emotional. I, I was moving from the house that I lived in on and off for, for 40 years oh, really, man. to yeah. the house that I lived in for the happiest and kind of naughtiest 15 years of my life Ooh. between 96 and 2010. Yeah. So um, just being back here makes me feel a bit more prone to daftness, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> In the, in the year that I've just turned 50. The, the day itself was nuts. I've got a piano, obviously, and I, I was, I, I'd hired a couple of mm. dodgy geezers Mr. to move Shifter. it. Exactly. <laughs> and I was seeing back and forth trips. I'd moved all the big stuff, the furniture, and I'd come back to my old house, and I was just getting the, the, the little stuff, like the, the musical instruments and records and things like that. And um, the piano guys were already in the house. In fact, they've already got the piano out. So I sort of said, well, that's chimpanzees for you, man, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I said, how'd you get it out? How'd you get it in? How'd you get in, in fact? And they said, oh, the new owner's already here. The fucking guy 
The money had changed hands at two o'clock. It, it was already there at three o'clock. What a yeah. cunt. What a cunt. And, and not only that, he comes out and he goes, you've left all this shit here. This is my property now. Oh, Get off my property. I'm going to sell all this stuff on. Fuck off. So oh. seriously, for five minutes, I was like trembling, you know, fucking hell. But the, he was one of those weird guys, you know, it was really aggressive. And then five minutes, he comes out and he goes, I'm so sorry, mate, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he lets me in. But you know what? That drew actually a nice line under living in the house yeah, it was house. like fuck it you know if this is the name <laughs> but you know i saw the move anyway as a chance to declutter obviously not records or cds oh, no. or books but everything else so now my life is this dizzying swirl of giddiness in shops thinking yeah what color soap dish bog brush set should i get <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like that yeah. but i'm i'm back in the old neighborhood i'm back where i belong in a kind of class sense in a family sense because all my grandkids are nearby in a friend oh. sense which is which is why i've seen more of my grandkids and more of the inside of pubs in the last two months than I have in the last two years, you know. So... I couldn't be happier. And it's odd being content. I'm always thinking, what am I forgetting? You know, yeah. what am I overlooked. Very much not used to it. But because I made a tiny little bit of money on the move, I might finally get the time to write the book that I owe my publisher. I'm open yeah. to ideas about what the fuck it should be about. Uh, crisps. crisps. Yes, yes. <laughs> Seems to be the prevailing force at the moment. Uh, the only other big note news is that I am now the owner of, and it horrifies me slightly to say this, a beard. No! Um, I'm sorry, mate. It's basically because my girlfriend likes it, and that plays into Bro, my... you got a girlfriend and a beard. Fucking hell. I know, it's all happening, mate. It's all happening. I mean, partly, I do feel this is a betrayal of all the values I have ever held dear, so I'm, I'm staying vigilant. The moment I catch, I don't know, beer froth in my beard or feel the inclination to get a sleeve tat or anything, it's off. <laughs> I think you need to describe it to us so Neil. I mean, yeah. is it neat is it neatly kept? Is it long? Is it you know what what sort of beard No, it's not it? long. I would like to stress that. It's not a big beard you could lose lose a badger in it. It's kind of just beyond stubble, so it does count as a beard. But every mm. time it gets kind of tangly and going in different directions and, you know, in any way getting close to a thing where I'd think about topiary or wax or any of that shit, <laughs> then, it's, then it's gone. So we're talking kind of Thierry Henry in his coaching career, but not Roy Keane. Mm. Indeed, indeed. Thierry Henry, that's great that you said that, Simon. Thierry Henry was one of those one of those many men that my wife could just admit that she totally fancied and absolutely <laughs> wanted to fuck. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll take that. The beard looks okay, moved house, and in a strange way, yeah, I'm kind of happy. Good Lord. Simon. Well, I've just had my... Covid booster jab, like literally in the last Ooh. hour, or um, as I prefer to call it, Bill Gates's new world order microchip. You know? <laughs> so you know, if, if I if I start trying to lure the pop crazed youngsters into some kind of global paedophile ring while <laughs> while wiping crumbs of very expensive Washington pizza from my lips, you know, uh, don't blame me, blame Hillary. No, it's it's been such a long time since uh, I've done a chart music Ooh. that you you think for a go getting exciting guy like me there'd be loads to report but um mainly no i've i've had my head down writing 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 um mm. working on this book that's coming out next year and has turned into an absolute fucking monster Ooh, but um it's Brilliant. it's also really good if i say so myself but it's been sort of you know the the launch date's been put back um it's about the cure if if people aren't up to date with you know previous podcasts mm. and also you know just teaching so I, I teach the history of pop at lccm in london and djing you know spellbound and late night mini cab fm both going well i didn't go to any festivals this year Ooh. i don't think i've seen any gigs even except uh 
wet leg back in the spring. Right. Um, who were brilliant, by the way. Fuck the backlash. I'm still on the front lash. <laughs> I mean, last night, I finally turned our spare room into a bedroom instead of the box room it's been for the last uh, 12 months. Well and done. that... Yeah, that is as exciting as it gets lately, which is kind of tragic. <laughs> well, that's an achievement, man. I know. It's 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 weird that, you know, in middle age, this is how you get your kicks, you get your mm. satisfaction. However, back in the summer, um, the wife, Janie and I, escaped this shitty fucking racism-infested shithole of an island for the first time <laughs> since COVID and since Brexit. Wow, uh, we brilliant. went on a belated honeymoon to uh, Orléans, which is the, the OG old Orléans, after which New Orleans was named. Right. Um, and it was just so liberating and refreshing to breathe the air of free Europe. I mean, I know, yeah. I know France has its own problems with the atavistic, nativistic far right. But even so, um, on the first night there, we went for a fondue, uh, which is so 70s, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but we, we got talking to the table next to us, um, who are Germans. And it just struck me, you know, here we are, a Welshman and an Englishwoman at a Swiss restaurant in France speaking to German people in a mixture of French and German and English. And I nearly wept at how beautiful that was and how different oh, right. it was from the fucking small-minded shit show that the UK has become. Mm. Orleans is great. Uh, anyway, it's it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site because of, it's got this insanely stunning cathedral and half-timbered, cobbled medieval streets. But places like that can often be a bit boring boring so for example chartres which uh, we went to um, a couple years earlier yeah. um is almost as pretty but it's fucking boring all they are mm. isn't it's got the whole it's got the whole joan of arc thing going on they're obsessed yeah. right and that's kind of fascinating in itself because joan of arc was a mentally ill teenager let's not you know mm. who, who yeah. suffered from delusions that she was on a mission from god nowadays mm. i couldn't stop thinking nowadays joan of arc would get counseling right mm. in the 1400s first of all they give her an army and then they burn her at the stake <laughs> i mean the whole story is this incredibly potent parable of the absurdity of religion mm. the whole time i was there obviously omd in my mind and by extension david and he's done yeah yeah of course yeah david the <laughs> omd denier and and the abba denier i mean mm. when's he gonna get around to the holocaust is all i'm saying but, um, <laughs> there's, there's that bit in joan of arc by omd where where it goes i gave her everything that i ever owned i think she understood though she never spoke which mm. to me really sums up the one-way relationship between the believer and the deity mm. or saint. Because I imagine uh, Andy McCluskey mm. just, you know, he's praying to this fucking stone statue and the stone statue just sort of stares back blankly because it's a fucking piece of stone. Mm. And that's the whole thing with religion. I love that song for that. <laughs> but the other thing about All In All is it's got this great bar culture, which, you know, like, like I say, you don't always expect in these pretty little medieval towns. Mm. We spent most of the holiday shit-faced, to be honest. There's this one bar called... Um, La Buvette, which might be the best bar I've been to in my life, Ooh. or certainly the best in France, maybe wow. Europe. I, I don't know if you do this when you go on holiday, right? Or, or even if you just go in to a city for several days on work. Do you usually end up having a sort of home bar? So the place where all your evenings start or, yes. or they end or both? Yeah. You know, it's a place yeah, you yeah, might yeah. sit for a while to gather your thoughts and decide what to do next, or just the place to stay for the whole night if it's that good and, you know, not really watching the clock. Mm. Well, you know, La Buvette was that. It was this small sort of intimate arch off one of the cobbled streets there was no wi-fi right and there was a sticker explaining that saying 
we're not in Paris. <laughs> As if having Wi-Fi was this kind of sort of modern hipster affectation. Um, but it had this thing. You know, lots of bars try to fake a sense of heritage by buying in loads of old tap mm. or mm. having, like, new prints of old posters in yeah. frames, right? La Buvette was genuinely old school, I felt, in a way that lots of bars tried to fake. All the stickers and the posters on the wall were really genuinely faded. It had this feeling of accretion of heritage, you know, right. that it all kind of built up on the walls mm. over mm. years. And the music was incredible, right? When we walked in, they were playing some um, amazing vintage blues track, which is good enough already. But mm. as soon as they sussed out we were British, the landlord, Hugo, started playing all sorts of British stuff from Tom Jones to the Roubettes. So, like, oh, screaming along to Sugar Baby Love in a medieval <laughs> French city was, like, really, like, something I never had on my bucket list, but I'm glad it happened. But my favourite moment was when I mentioned Jacques Dutronc, because I, I love a lot of French music, especially the 60s stuff. Mm. And Hugo stuck on Les Cactus by Jacques Dutronc. And the entire place, including people sat out on the pavement, suddenly were just shouting, Le monde entier est un cactus, il est impossible de soir, wow, 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 wow. <laughs> and it's a, it's a moment that I'm going to remember as long as I live. So we, we just sat there every night drinking Rica, which is a pastis like Perno, and getting shit-faced, right? Mm. And one night, we got so shit-faced that we went on a bit of a rampage around Orléans, and we ended up in a different bar doing karaoke in French. Good Lord. Wow. What song? Me and Janie, right? We were Serge Gansberg and Brigitte Bardot, and we did Bonnie uh, and Clyde. Of course you were. Bonnie and Clyde. And the locals uh, looked at us utterly bemused, these British pissheads doing an old 60s duet in French. I mean, who knows what they thought was going on. The next day, I, I went out and uh, bought the LP of Bonnie and Clyde in FNAC, which is their kind of WH Smith thing over right. there. So anyway, yeah, um, mm. all I on. Not not the most obvious holiday destination in France, but highly recommended. You're the Judith Chalmers of chart music, Simon. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm still fucking reeling from the aftermath of our live show, which was oh god, nearly a couple of months mm. ago, but it still resonates with me. Fucking hell, what a day that was, chaps. Well, you weren't there, so I'm telling you now, what a fucking day. <laughs> Great venue. Uh, King's Place and King's Cross. Prince has played there, you know. No, Prince has performed there. Yeah, so you're on the same stage as Prince. You know oh, when he did those King hit- Hell. When he did those hit and run gigs uh, about you know, seven years ago, whenever it was, he did a thing for the Guardian there at King's Place. So, of course yeah. he did because the Guardian's offices are next door, aren't they? Yeah, so you trod the same boards. Anyway, Fuck sorry, carry hell. on. Yeah, but yeah, we got absolutely love bombed by the pop crazed youngsters that were there. Nice. <laughs> now I know how it feels to be Claire Grogan every day of a life being hugged by middle aged men you don't know, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was stressing like a bastard beforehand. And when it was done, I just hit the wall and was properly not bandy by the love that was shown to us on that day. I mean, mm. you know what it's like, chaps. You do a podcast or write articles or a blog or whatever, and you see nice things written about you online. But then something like this happens, and you, you just think, fucking hell, this actually means something to some people. Yeah. How can I avoid fucking it up? <laughs> you got stage fright. Oh my god, yeah. you lost your mojo. Shit, and hell. Yeah. Um, oh. I don't know if I mentioned, I think I mentioned to you that, um, that same night, because it was a, it was a spellbound night down, down at Brighton, mm. um, at least two different pop crazed youngsters came down having been at the show. Oh. And they, they came all the way to Brighton. They, they weren't even Brighton people. They were from somewhere else. Fucking they came down hell. just, just to sort of do a double header. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, respect, big shout out to those two, whoever they were. And, um, you very kindly sent me, um, a, a care package of some of the merch that, yes. that was available. Oh, God, yeah. I got one too. Uh, and, uh, straight away I put on one of the, um, pop crazed youngster t-shirts and, 
and uh, I was in a pub in Brighton, and someone came up to me and said, "I just want to say, bummer dog." Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, I, I I don't know, maybe because I'm a bit more visible with a stupid hairstyle, but I I I do constantly get this feeling that chart music is a thing in the world that people mm. have heard of. But we're not going to let it go to our heads, you know. We do what we do, and if anyone else likes it, that's a bonus. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you to all the people who came down from all over the shop, man, all over the country. Even one lad flew down from Dublin, uh, wow. sticked around for a bit, and then flew back again. Yeah, insane people from Glasgow, Edinburgh, Newcastle, Preston. Everybody's talking about chart music. <laughs> and we all had a lovely piss-up afterwards. I do recall uh, leading a chorus of Jubilee Rumba in a beer god <laughs> a couple of days before the Queen's funeral. So, yeah, fucking mint. It's what she would have wanted. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. But let me just say thank you to all the people there who thanked us for getting them through lockdown. But come on now, you did the exact same for us. And especially for me. If it wasn't for your lot, I'd have been fucked during lockdown. Mm. So let's, you know, let's move on from all that now, shall we? Can I just ask, though, Al, did you get a rider? Yes! Did Taylor insist on his, um, you know, orange uh, opal fruits or whatever? (laughs) No, there was a green room and a fucking dressing room. We had two fucking rooms to ourselves. It was mint, and the the selection of crisps were... uh, I think there were pipers. Oh, pipers are good. Posh. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Only the best for chart music. <laughs> a nice fridge full of booze and, yeah, Chris and toffees and f- even fruits. Oh, lovely. <laughs> yeah, the, the King's Place Tretter's lovely. As for merch, well, Simon, you've converted your um, crap room into a bedroom. Yeah. I've converted my back bedroom to a crap room because it <laughs> it's kind of weighed down with bomber dog t-shirts. They didn't sell so well. Can't oh. imagine why, but if anyone does want them under plain wrapper with discretion guaranteed, I can sort that for you. It takes big balls though, doesn't it? It takes some big swinging Labrador balls to walk mm. around in a bomber yeah. dog t-shirt. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. So I'm gonna I'm gonna sell off what merch I've got left, but I'm gonna keep it to Patreon for the moment because it's just easier to deal with. Um, the moves will be taken in the new year to get merch up nice and properly. And there may well, I mean, I'll not to jump the gun, but there might be other live ones, wouldn't I, in the future? Funny you should say that, Neil, because we are looking around for venues at Ooh. the minute, and I'm hoping, and I don't want to get anyone's hopes up, but I, I, I'm hoping that we've got a venue nailed Ooh. down in the cradle of pop. In the cradle of pop. Nottingham. <laughs> so hopefully there'll be another live show pretty soon. And yes, it will be your two under the spotlight. Well, you say that, but I'm not doing it. Let's get my own dressing room. I'm not sharing with you scumbags. Fuck that. Basically, I want us to be like the Eagles when they tour these days. You know, you've got, you've got a separate red carpet for each member leading to the stage. So yeah, last word on this. Sorry it's taken so long to get back on the chart music horse. And thank you to the London Podcast Festival, King's Place, and especially Mark Haynes and the Man like Matt Abysmal. And thanks to all Pop Craze youngsters in attendance and the Pop Craze universe for their patience. We're back. Let's move on. Oh, before we move on, did you have a nice Queen Death fortnight? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, um, it was all right. But I mean, you know, all of the mad drama of this year, changes of Prime Minister, death of monarch, etc. I've had to actually go back. Not not I was happy about the Queen's death particularly. I couldn't I wasn't really asked either way. But um 
you know, I was enjoy during that just wonderful couple of weeks where every day there was just loads of delicious Schadenfreude to have um, about mm. Tories going. But now fucking Bravemans in the Home Office and all of that, all of that joy has oh. just dissipated. I actually found myself yeah. the other night going back on news nights just to feel some pleasure again um, about <laughs> it all. But yeah, no, it's been a weird old summer, hasn't it? Yeah, Braverman, the moment when the Tories have literally lost their dog whistle. <laughs> yeah. So they're now just, they're just coming out straight out and saying we're being invaded. Yeah, well, where they're just shouting and slapping their thighs at us. Yeah, yeah. Mm. As for the Queen's death, um, like my wife, Jamie's a school teacher. And for the last two years, obviously the Queen's looking very frail and, uh, you know, Janie was saying, "Look, she she better die during term time because I want a day off." <laughs> and I think I think most teachers felt the same yeah. thing. And you know, bless her, um, if she'd done nothing else for us, the Queen did die during term time. Mm. So you know, there was a day off. Fucking Charles, who I will not call King, because he ain't no. You king know what me. I mean, Simon? Um, he's still Prince Charles to me, and he's lucky to have that. Yeah. If I'm still calling him Marathons and Opal Fruits, I ain't calling him anything different than what he is. <laughs> uh, he's Prince Charles, and he ain't even got a city beat band. No, he can go fuck himself. <laughs> the thing is. Uh, his coronation, as I understand it, is on a fucking Saturday, so we don't even get oh. Fuck you. And his fucking son, he's not a Prince of Wales either. No one's a Prince of Wales. No one's a fuck. Fuck this principality shit. No one's the Prince of mm. Us. Fuck off. If he must be king, let's just stick to King Tampax and exactly. leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and by the way, thanks, Mom, for cancelling the rail strike just before the live show. You, you oh, did yeah. us a favour there, Ducker. <laughs> I mean, the weird thing about the Queen snuffing it is, like, for decades, I've sat and wondered what it's going to be like when she goes. Am I going to be in the same room as me nana and grandpa when Mm. there's an announcement on the telly? Am I going to be with my parents? Am I going to be at school or college? How's it going to pan out and everything? And the way I found out about how the Queen died was... I was folding some pants on my bed and I play a conked out. And that's when I knew that the Queen had died. What a fucking letdown that was. Anyway, let's stop talking about the fucking royal family. I've had enough of them. Let's talk about the true legends and heroes of this fine country and beyond. The latest batch of pop craze Patreons. And oh, it's a big list this time. In the $5 section, we have Dr. Billy Smart. Chris, Bella Lugosi's dad, James Med, James Orton, Michael Price, Antonio De Paula, Mark Gillies, John James, Ian Hughes, Paul Gill, L.W. Beaumont, Duncan Wood, Jonathan Fox, Andrew Billings, Helen Lawless, Matt D., Jonathan Winstanley, Michael Edmondson, John Davies, Murray Tiptop, Oliver, Mark, Tony Inglis, James Dawes, Neil Curry, Paul Stillwell, Jet Haggis, Jade Bowyer, Billy Stanton, Stuart Woolen, Damien, James and Mrs. I'm Not a Cat, Mrs. Cat Cat. <laughs> I just want to salute uh, Bella Lugosi's dad. That is a fantastic mm, name. That's a good one. <laughs> All the way through that list, Al, I was just thinking you were going to break into Bill Brewer, John Stewart, yes. Peter Gurney, Peter <laughs> oh, no, Tom Cobbley and all. <laughs> In the $3 section, we have Matt J, Ian Coulter, Tom Crabb, Tom Lancaster, Dan O'Good, Mark Wilson, Porn Hart, 
Colin Jackson Brown, Rocks Off, Lindsay Duff, Richard, Owen Pugh, Nick Venables, Matthew Harpham, Martin James, Orion Gear, Barry Murphy, Joni Strikes Up The Band, and Humunculus Unleashed. Oh, we love you. <laughs> it's the power of live performance, Al, isn't it? Mm, it really is. And not doing an episode for ages. Mm. <laughs> that helps as well. <laughs> and, oh, yes, James Wharton, Doug Grant, Stephen Metcalf, Daniel Sullivan. Oh, you went over and beyond and up and away, didn't you? And, my God, I thank you for it. We love the pop craze youngsters, don't we? We do. We do. We, do. we love them. So, apart from getting the latest episode of Chart Music in full with our adverts, ages before everyone else, the pop craze Patreons also get to tinker and a tanker and a fiddle and a faddle with the brand new Chart Music Top 10. Are you ready for it, chaps? Yes. Well, I can't wait. Hit the fucking music! We've said goodbye to two Ronnies, one cup. <laughs> Arse to mouth. That dog's dead now. <laughs> Cliffy White Boy and DJ Mr. Bronson. And rock expert David Stubbs. No way. Which means two up, three down, two new entries, two re-entries, and a brand new number one. Holy fuck. It's a re-entry at number ten for Jeff Sex. Yes. <laughs> new entry at number nine. Legs and Cunner. <laughs> Another re-entry at number eight. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Glitter. Down two places to number seven. Here comes Jism. <laughs> Last week's number two. This week's number six. My fucking car. <laughs> Into the top five and it's up one place for the bent cunt who aren't fucking real. <laughs> He's up three places this week from number seven to number four. Bomber dog. Yes. Last week's number one drops two places to number three. The Airbnb 52s. <laughs> and there's a new entry at number two for Eric Smallshore of Eccles. Hey. Which means... number one. The highest new entry, straight in at number one, the provisional Uaruare. <laughs> oh, boys, what a chart that is. Absolutely. Re-entries are plenty. Re-entries, but I'm very shocked about um, the dropping out of uh, rock expert David Stubbs. I know. Yeah, I thought that was like Bat Out of Hell or, you know, Back in yeah. Black. Or this <laughs> album's going to be there forever. The new entries then, Legs and Cunny, what are, what are they about? <laughs> Can we not go there? Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Moving on. Eric Smallshore of Eccles, of course. Needs no explanation. The new hero of chart music, indeed, I believe. Indeed. And uh, the provisional URURA. Well, that's a mixture between, I don't know, the Wolf Tones, the Wurzels, and Public Enemy. Yeah. I'm probably going to get cancelled down St. Austell Way now, but for me, I just kept thinking of uh, Mebin Kerno. Is that it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Especially somebody who's like come round to the Welsh independence movement of late. It's a bit hypocritical of me to be taking the piss out of those guys, but yeah. 
So, if you're on the outside looking in on all this exclusive chart-related excitement, you know what you need to do. Get that keyboard and clatter out. Patreon.com slash chart music and pledge what you can. Remember, it's the pop craze Patreons who pay for all the equipment. It's the pop craze Patreons who pay for all the research. And it's the pop-crazed patrons who pay for our lovely arses. If it wasn't for them, chop music wouldn't be where it is today. And, oh, we're so grateful to them. Mm. Come and join them, you minge bags. <laughs> so, this episode, pop-crazed youngsters, takes us all the way back to May the 1st, 1980. Now then, we've picked at 1980 a few times now haven't we chaps and, and the general consensus seems to be is that 1980 is very much the ken of the aventis <laughs> but you could say chaps that the episode of top of the pops that we're about to tuck into this time is a very strong case for the defense don't you think yeah i mean 1979 um, the greatest year for pop singles and i believe statistically it was the year of the greatest sales of singles mm-hmm. 1981 of course all those classic albums like non-stop erotic cabaret and dare and all those all those great records um so yeah 1980 by comparison feels like a little bit of a dip in the middle mm. but yeah without too much spoileration perhaps uh, this this episode does show us that it wasn't quite as much of a slump as uh, we sometimes believe it to be yeah yeah there's this weird rub in this episode as if the 80s you know they really want to start but they haven't quite been given permission by the 70s yet yeah at least not in top of the pops land but actually the charts when you look at the charts for this week they're very very 80s yeah i mean i always think that the 80s started in mid 1979 so you know the election of thatcher in in the spring of 79 and then chiboy army uh performing our friends electric on top of the pops Mm. uh, in -hmm. july 79 is when the 80s really start but there was a little bit of a kind of revenge of the grands uh, in, in yeah, yeah, just when yeah, you, yeah, yeah. if you look across the the very top line, the very top line of number ones, so it's things like "Coward of the County" by Kenny Rogers, and "There's No One Quite Like Grandma" by St Winford's uh, School Choir, yeah. that kind of stuff. It does give the impression that suddenly there's this movement, almost to, to sort of drag things back, this sort of uh, reactionary movement. But there was so much good stuff bubbling away in the top ten that. Maybe the reputation of 80 as being a a dip is somewhat exaggerated. Oh, yeah, it's a cracking episode, this. There's two big things happening in pop in 1980. Uh, One of them's bad, one of them's kind of good. The bad thing, of course, is that there's going to be a top-of-the-pop strike in the very near future. Mm. And, of course, other elements of the pop scene are going to be taken away from us in a few weeks' time as well. But but we'll get to that later. Uh, The big shift in pop in 1980 is that things are beginning to splinter again and the pop-crazed youngsters are beginning to form into tribes. Mm. Luckily, uh, for anyone out there who's confused about this, the Reading Evening Post swung into action a fortnight <laughs> ago and produced a guide to the new pop landscape oh, wow. entitled A Quick Guide to the Boot Boys. <laughs> the Boot Boys ruled at Easter. It wasn't just chocolate eggs which got broken open, but heads as well, (laughs) as young thugs, high on drink and pills and too many showings of the movie Quadrophenia, battled on seafronts up and down the country. 
Those who remember the mods versus rockers battles of the 60s must have wondered why today's kids wanted a rerun. The fact is that pop music and youth culture has always split teenagers into rival camps. From swing versus bop to disco versus punk. Yes, we all remember those disco punk battles on the high street, don't we? (laughs) So in case you're innocently wandering the beaches this summer and see some kids doing the seafront scuffle up ahead, (laughs) here's a survival guide to the latest pop factions. The punks. Yes, they do still exist. Distinguished by spiker, sometimes coloured hair, chain link jewellery and badly fitted trousers. <laughs> the girls wear a lot of leather and makeup, which gives them the appearance of suffering from a black eye. Most like their music fast, loud, punchier and adrenaline filled. The mods... A fast-growing lot, thanks to the music of the jam, the resurgence of the Who, and a certain film called Quadrophenia. Some sulk and regret they weren't old enough to experience the first coming of mods. Others make do with today's sounds. <laughs> Quick question, chaps. Um, how did Sham 69 get their name? Um, it's from some graffiti that had uh, been partly rubbed away. Mm. that said Hersham 69. Yeah, that's what I used to think as well, Simon, until I was educated by the Reading Evening Post guy <laughs> to the skinheads. Now that Sham 69, the group's title stands for Skinheads Are Magic, <laughs> with 1969 being the year for the... <laughs> I just got a picture of a shaven-headed Selwyn Froggit and some braces giving the thumbs up. <laughs> appear to have reformed and are heading for the concert halls again. The skins are back. They don't seem to like the mods, and some, unlike the Scar fans who dance side by side with the black kids, are seemingly National Front supporters. The Rude Boys. The boys wear pork pie hats, brightly coloured clothes, and they follow the music best known as Scar or Blue Beat. Some are hard to distinguish in appearance from mods, but the two groups often don't get along with each other. Oh, man. Yeah. Break out the Madness Modness badges. Bring them all together. Well, that was the main scrap mm. over Barry Island was mods against Rude Boys. Really? In that era, yeah. Right. The other factions didn't really get looking. It's just those two. Yeah. So, Simon, you didn't have factions known as the Headbangers? <laughs> Some are today's hippies, although generally these are a rougher lot. Another growing faction, they have made possible a resurgence of heavy metal music, Mm. denims, long flowing locks, and badges which read, quo rule, are the uniform. (laughs) And and big patches on the back of the denim jacket saying, quo are not fucking repetitive. Yeah, too right. (laughs) But of course, there's also... The Music Men, with a K. These youngsters don't really have a name, but they're easily identifiable. Their favourites are the modern music makers like David Bowie, Gary Newman and John Fox. They wear plastic and try to look like androids and robots. Their dancing (laughs) is a series of quick jerks, like clockwork and David Stubbs. (laughs) There are many other factors too. 
The black community have their own, from those who like pure reggae and reject the commercial styles to those who dance to Scar. Then there's a vast gathering of youngsters who every Saturday night and most Fridays crowd into their local disco and dance the night away to the Bee Gees and Gibson Brothers. Of course, none of this explains why supporters of one lifestyle and music want to beat the daylights out of another group. It was all going on, wasn't it? Oh, I'd love to know who wrote that. Was it Was it Nick Conn? Was it Anthony Burgess who wrote that? I think it was Philippa <laughs> Collin again. I, it's quite interesting, though. It is quite interesting. I'm very, uh, very, that music men thing. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I'm guessing, well, pre-New Romantic era, isn't it? So they hadn't really found the name yet. Yes. Well, so midway through 1980, yeah, and, and that phrase, New Romantics, doesn't seem to be in common currency yet. But nobody is saying post-punk or anything like that, you know? These are all yeah, I don't think anybody said post punk at the time. They might have said new wave, but that was a slightly different mm. thing. But I think that was all over and done with. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Time. So yeah, obviously there is a lot to get into here and in this episode of Top of the Pops. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The letter's not funny about FORWARD! In the news this week, Operation Eagle Claw, the attempt to rescue the hostages in the American embassy in Tehran, ends with Delta Force absolutely spunking on their jumpers when three of their eight helicopters conk out in the Iranian desert and then another helicopter crashes into a transport plane, killing eight soldiers. King Khaled of Saudi Arabia has cancelled a visit to the UK in the wake of ITV screening the docudrama Death of a Princess three weeks ago. Cynthia Payne has been jailed for 18 months for keeping a brothel in Streatham, which accepted luncheon vouchers as payment. (laughs) Eton School has announced the end of fagging from next term. Police in Baal have lobbed tear gas at Swiss punks who are attempting to march on a villa where the Queen is staying, brandishing banners telling the Brits to get out of Northern Ireland. (laughs) The government have agreed to pay a £1.8 million transfer fee to Lazard, the American investment banking firm, in order to poach their chairman, Ian McGregor, and put him in charge of British Steel. McGregor, the former chairman of American Metal Climax, goes on to fuck everything up before he does likewise to the mining industry and puts a carrier bag over his face and looks through the fucking hole at the top like a twat. (laughs) McFisheries, which used to be the biggest fishmonger chain in the world, has announced it's closing down its remaining 55 shops in the UK due to the popularity of frozen food. 
Trisha Ray, the 12-year-old girl from Sutton Coldfield who's been in the news for sneezing non-stop for six months, has finally stopped after 124 days thanks to a holiday in Switzerland. Oh, nice. I remember her. She was on Record Breaker. That's right, yeah. And she was on Midlands Today and uh, ATV Today all the fucking time. <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock has died at the age of 80. Eh? Prince Charles has been kicked in the face by his polo pony. <laughs> Men only revealed their new advice columnist, David Wilker. <laughs> Paul Raymond magazines have been keen to point out that the Olympic swimming champion won't be telling readers how to give their missus a scene to, but he'll be focusing on fitness tips and the like instead. <laughs> But the big news this week is that we're in the second day of the Iranian embassy siege in London, with the Democratic Revolutionary Front for the liberation of Arabistan taking over the embassy, rival groups of demonstrators kicking the shit out of each other, some non-Iranian hostages being released, the area becoming the biggest tourist attraction in London, and we're Four days away from the SAS going the fuck off on live telly. Boy, surely remember that. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. yeah we'll show you how to do it, Yanks. <laughs> Even though it's in our own capital city and therefore a bit easier. <laughs> on the cover of Melody Maker this week, nothing, because there isn't one. Yeah. And then UJ Strike shut it down last week and it won't come back for another five weeks. Apparently, writers on the mag had had enough of being paid a pittance and started lobbing their typewriters through the office windows. Fucking wow. hell. That seems remarkable now. Mm. From our vantage point now, it just seems amazing that music journalists were once part of a unionised workforce who yes. would draw their labour. Yeah. Right now, any of that, and you'd just be replaced by interns who'd work for the experience, or, or probably some sort of AI bot that could generate an awful lot of the copy that passes for music journalism now. Mm. You see, lobbing typewriters out the window, it sounds really dramatic. But you've got to remember, Melody Maker was only on the first floor. In those <laughs> I bet they were big typewriters, Simon. They were big, but we were on the twenty-sixth floor. Yeah. Like you hear these stories of um, at the NME, um, Charles Shaw Murray and Nick Kent lobbing their typewriters out the window mm. just on a whim because they were angry with something about the Rolling Stones. Fuck <laughs> and yeah, it, it might have hurt you if it landed on your head, but it wouldn't kill you. Mm. But if you chucked it out of the Melody Maker window that we worked in, it would destroy half of central London. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, even when I started, you know, there wasn't this encouragement to join a union and there was actually a pervasive atmosphere from sort of publishers down that what you did wasn't real journalism anyway. Mm. Oh, totally. You yeah. know, and we were, I mean, I remember sort of tail end of the night is we were being encouraged to sign all kinds of things by whoever we work for, EMAP, IPC or Bauer that signed our rights away for syndication. Yeah. And because everyone was terrified, they did. Yeah. And they assume to this day that we all did sign those forms because, mm. you know, whenever yeah. you get those NME originals come yeah. out, there'll be loads of our work in there that we didn't agree to because we used to get paid on the pay slip it would say one use right you know, yeah. we would yeah, be yeah, paid yeah. for one for one use of that article and that's what they wanted us to sign away they wanted us to sign away that one use clause yeah. uh, and that's why that you know um the, these companies just think that anything we did in the past is theirs forever nope it's ours mm. yeah too i never signed that because i mean beyond anything else it would have disgusted me for any of my work to appear under the enemy banner oh god yeah, yeah. on the cover of the enemy this week Fuck all, because they're in the same boat as Melody Maker <laughs> coming out on strike too. 
New Music News, a mag launched by Felix Dennis to capitalise on the vacuum, is on its second issue, but copies of that are as rare as rocking horse shit, and it folded as soon as the heavyweights came back. I would like a flick through one of those, so maybe one day. New Music News is the paper that that famous photo appeared in of the six um, front women uh, of punk bands. Actually, um, one of them wasn't the front woman, but yes, it's Susie Sue, Chrissy Hine, Debbie Harry, Polly Styrene, Pauline Black, and the non-singer Viv Albertine. But yeah, that that kind of um, historic photo by Michael Putland. Yeah. So that's the only thing worth remembering New Music News for is the historic sort of summit meeting of of uh, those those female punk or new wave legends. On the cover of Smash Hits, Suze. On the cover of Record Mirror. John Cooper Clark. The number one LP in the country at the moment is Greatest Hits by Rose Royce. Duke by Genesis is at number two. Over in America, the number one single is Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 by Pink Floyd. And the number one LP is The Wall by Pink Floyd for its 15th and final week. Fucking hell, America. Come and join us in the 80s, why don't you? Mm. (laughs) So, me dears, what were you doing? In May of 1980. I was in that brutal and abusive school, Hollingbury Court Preparatory School in Sussex, that I've spoken about before, uh, where my mum had got a job, and that meant that I had to go with her to be educated for free. Oh, lucky me. Uh, We have talked about this before, but it was a sort of place where you would be beaten for wearing the wrong coloured plimsolls in the wrong part of the ground. And it left me with a much worsened stutter and a nervous habit of cracking my knuckles and a lifelong distrust of authority and a visceral hatred of the English upper classes. Mm. Um, I was nearing the end of my two-year sentence there. We wouldn't have been allowed to watch Top of the Pops, I'm sure of that. But I was fully across what was going on in the charts because of the radio cassette recorder on on which I used to listen to the Top 40 rundown on a Sunday evening in the grounds if it was sunny or in the games room if it was raining. There was a games room, you see, which had a a snooker table and a table tennis table. And um, that games room is connected to a memory which still makes me cringe of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. It was about six weeks, I suppose, after this episode of top of the pops would have aired when i was leaving the school for the last time mm. and i went into the games room to say goodbye to a few of the kids who were still knocking around and as i left the room instead of just saying bye i said see you and <laughs> and after i shut the door i walked down the corridor and about three seconds later i heard them all burst out laughing mm. because i wouldn't oh. see them would I? where was i going to see them mm. that was it forever and i was ah yeah <laughs> oh. i was developing shame and embarrassment at that time as well in 1980 i, I was kind of I would have been nearly set, uh, well, seven knocking on eight. And this was the first year I, I wore glasses, which might right. seem like a little thing. Um, but no, I was not, sat not when you're that age, mate. Oh, good God, no. You know, I was always sat at the back in class, and I, I, it was basically becoming totally obvious I couldn't see the blackboard at all. Um, so, you know, got sent for an eye test, and I got the usual NHS specs, mm. you know, which now were cool, I guess, but back then just looked horrific. Were they the tortoise shell ones? Exactly. Yes. Exactly those. Yeah, and, that's and, what I had. Yeah, and, and immediately, you know, the piss-taking was immense at school. Mm. And I think I, mo- I I didn't, I wasn't, like, going home crying or anything, but I think I mentioned it to my mum. And unlike sort of any other time, she did that thing. She went into school. Oh, and, you no. Know, uh, indeed. She went and spoke to the headmaster. I think it was the headmaster, or it might have been my teacher. And, of course, that necessarily ensued that horrible moment where you're sent out of the class for some pointless task 
And then obviously when you're out, the teacher yeah. speaks to the whole class and says, you know, stop taking the piss out of Neil. Um, oh. So inevitably after that, yeah, the piss taking ramped up of immensely. It did. Of course it did. So yeah, that was my <laughs> sort of time in 1980 really. Well, it's my 12th birthday today. Can't remember what I got, but it was probably money. And it definitely <laughs> got spent on records and mod rammel as I was fully pop crazed by now. Oh, yeah. So my week round about this time would go as follows. Tuesday dinner time, me, Gormy Dorney and Jovo nipping out of school to the shopping precinct, chuffing a cone of chips from the chip pan, then nipping in to save it, the tat shot, to knock back a can of Saudi Arabian cola and hover around the radio for the brand new top 40. And then nip back to school and tell everyone. Wednesday night, a youth club at the school for their disco. Thursday night, well, top of the pops, obviously, and then straight off to Top Valley Community Centre for their disco. Saturday day, into town to hit up Fox Records and Pendulum in Vicky Centre for singles and clankinins. Then a bit of a march to Broadmarch Centre with the other plastic mods. Have a look round the HMV, have a march back, back home for me tea, and then off to show whatever skinny tie and badges I'd bought that day at Rise Park Community Centre for their disco. See me walking around, I'm the boy about town that you've heard of. <laughs> Youth clubbing. I'm youth clubbing. I'm what's happening. <laughs> I'm at that glorious age, chaps, where I'm still young enough to binge on kid stuff, but old enough to start dipping a toe into teenagerdom. Yeah. So, mm. you know, I'm still reading comics. I'm still playing Sabutio. I'd just been to the city ground the other week with my dad to see Forrest batter Ajax in the European Cup semi-final. Everything in May of 1980 is both mint and skill. Wow. What kind of music were you into at the time, chaps? I was on this kind of crossover, um, similar to your kind of lifestyle crossover between childish things and adult things. Mm. So prior to 1980, my favourite music would have been ABBA and the Bee Gees and Boney M and stuff like mm. that. But uh, then I heard Gangsters by the Specials. And, you know, I suppose uh, if it was a, um, a TV drama version of my life, that'd be the moment everything changed. Yes. And I sort of shaved my hair off and wore Dr. Martins everywhere. But life isn't ever quite like that really so there's this kind of crossover and i still liked abba but um i also loved madness and the specials mm. and the beat and all of that and i think i mentioned it before but i've got proof of this which is a stamp album yes where um on the inside cover i've stenciled like abba voulez-vous on one side and madness one step beyond <laughs> on the other so yeah I was, I, was, I was at a crossroads how did your parents feel about you buying some dogs well they, they were they were four hole um sort of you know shoes rather than boots mm. so so um, I managed to sort of pass it off as being school wear because you're allowed to wear them at school. Mm. So that was all right. I mean, I was always trying to do that. You know, um, the school uniform had certain provisos and you'd always try and, within those rules... Game the system. Yeah, pick something that you could maybe wear on a Friday night as well. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, you try and make sure that your black school trousers were stay-pressed. And, yeah. You know, and that your uh, white shirt was a button-down and of all course. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, Simon, your parents might have been a bit worried that you were in Doc Martins meant you were a violent racist, but yeah. you bought a pair of shoes that are going to last you for a long time, so they would have been happy about that. Yeah, that's it. You know, I think um, skinhead fashion or rude boy fashion was practical above all else. Yes. <laughs> long, long lasting, unlike the movement. You know, I was about seven, so I was pre pop, really. I mean, I was still listening to pop, obviously. Mm. But my favourite record, age seven, is probably Hello My Darling by uh, Charlie Drake. Um, <laughs> so it's just weird mix of kind of being aware of pop, but all these old records that we had getting into those as well. And it's probably the peak of me being a poncy cunt and listening to classical uh, music as well. 
So, me dears, I do believe that this is the part of the episode where we retreat to the chart music crap room, riffle through some boxes, and pull out an issue from the music press of this week. And this time, I've been forced to go for Sounds, May the 3rd, 1980. Ooh, never done a Sounds before, have we? No. No, I don't think we have. Did you ever buy it? Yourselves. Yes, I did. Yeah. In 1981, when uh, my mate got a paper round and slipped me copies of the music press, I would get Melody Maker, Enemy and Sound. So, yes, I was very au fait. All three, wow. I mean, for me, it was always very much third best, mm. you know. Yeah. I suppose when I first started reading the Inkies, it would have been Enemy. Um, and then later on in the 80s, Melody Maker, when that sort of became better than Enemy. Mm. But Sounds was very much like, if everything else was gone in the newsagents, I would buy it, just yeah. out of desperation. Or it would have to be somebody phenomenally good on the front cover mm. but, but usually I just I just thought it was a bit shit <laughs> it was always third play but, mm. but a lot of writers that I then came to love started there and, that's true you yeah. know like Chris Roberts started there and also you know we wouldn't have I mean for better or worse we wouldn't have things like Kerrang and the whole growth of the metal press in the 80s without sounds yeah and they were first to a lot of things like the first time Manic Street Preachers on the front cover of anything right. was sounds that was John Robb who did that one and you know so they it, it provided useful function but I wasn't a metaler I, I wasn't into the kind of oi street punk stuff that they also covered mm. it's very much like oh I've got like a pound burning a hole in my pocket and all the other good mm. papers are gone mm. it'll do So, on the cover, the cure in front of a headstone shaped like an angel going about thinking the Joy Division. Do you know what's weird about that photo of them on the front? Yeah. Lol Tollus right at the front. Yes. Robert Smith right at the back. You can barely see Robert Smith. I tell you what, he wouldn't let that happen many other times, I don't think. (laughs) In the news... The main story this week is the return of the Nebworth Festival with the headline, Nebworth Turns to the Old God. According to Sounds, the full, and it must be said, deadly boring running order is expected to be the Beach Boys, Mike Oldfield, Elkie Brooks, with all the looks, <laughs> Santana, Lindisfarne, and the blues band fucking hell it's interesting they could editorialise in a, in a news piece yeah deadly boring you, mm. you couldn't do that later I quite like it actually yeah yeah at £9 a ticket the price is 50p more than last year which the promoters say compares favourably with the increase in the rate of inflation hey rock and roll everyone <laughs> They've also promised special undertakings to local authorities, local residents and you, the punter, such as a 100,000 crowd limit, a bond of 25 grand to be paid to a charity of Hertfordshire County Council's choice if the music runs one second after midnight and less pongy lose. (laughs) The beat... Eddie Grant, Iron Maiden, The Body Snatchers, The Q-Tips, Janet Kay, Saxon, Rush, Simple Minds, The Only Ones, The Au-Pairs and Susie Quattro have all announced tours, but sad news for fans of Stalin's organs, as all of their forthcoming gigs are cancelled owing to the departure of guitarist King Lee Gutter, who was accused by the rest of the band of being, quote, too hippie. Oh, wow. I've never heard of Stalin's organs, but having read that, I'm going to investigate. Sham69, sorry, skinheads are magic, 69. (laughs) I've had to cancel the last two gigs of their short UK tour, but no one knows why. 
Sounds reports that the tour ground to a halt after a bad night in Birmingham, which saw another outbreak of violence, which caused Jimmy Percy to walk out. But Sham's manager, Tony Gordon, insists that it's just a nasty bout of glandular fever that has forced the band off the road. Still in Yim Yam land, local police are reported to be leaning hard on local record shops over the sale of crass LPs to young kiddies. According to Sounds, the source of the fracas is one complaint from one irate mum whose offspring have been playing either stations of the crass or feeding of the 5,000. Hugh Cornwall of the Stranglers has just been released from Pentonville Nick after his eight-week drug sentence was cut short for good behaviour. It's the most depressing, demoralising, inhumane place I've ever spent any time in, he said. And he's been in a van with the rest of the Stranglers. <laughs> yeah, Neil, here's a question, right? Mm. Um, a sandwich made by the Stranglers or um, a regulation standard sandwich from Pentonville Prison? Yes, good call. Ooh, great question. I, I could never eat a sandwich made by the Stranglers. Look at look at them. Look at their jeans. No, no. <laughs> they, they always look so grubby and filthy, the Stranglers. Um, so, no, it's yeah. Pentonville, I'm sure. Do you good, Sarni? You sure, Neil? I've seen that episode of Oz where they ground some glass up and put it in a sandwich. <laughs> I'd still rather have a sandwich yeah, with ground glass and maybe a sachet of spice in it than, than you Cornwell's pubes. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> there was a concert at um, the Rainbow in Finsbury Park to sort of free Hugh Cornwell around this time. Do you know about this? Really? That, yeah, there's this kind of solidarity movement among fellow musicians to try and not on spring him from mm. prison, but, you know. Mm. So um, it was basically the rest of the Stranglers, but with different lead singers, including Robert Smith from The Cure. Oh, oh really? Because I think the Stranglers were already booked to play a gig at the Rainbow Theatre, right. which they couldn't fulfil for obvious reasons. So they just played it, but with this sort of um, all-star band of new wave heroes instead. Fucking hell. Yeah. There's an album of it, it's bootleg of it. Yeah, right. In the gossipy section of the news pages, entitled Jaws with a Z, an unmistakably written by Gary Bushell, mm. we learn that Iggy Pop's European tour is not going well at all, with support bands pulling out left and right at the, quote, chronic nature of the tour. Seems he was playing every German Kazi known to man and only two-thirds filling them. Even worse is the revelation that he's being referred to as Gloria by the roadies <laughs> due to his uncanny resemblance to Bombardier Beaumont in It Ain't Our Fault Mom. <laughs> you know what? That, I never thought of it. That is fucking spot on, isn't it? I know. <laughs> Around that time, particularly. <laughs> and also, what a shame we we can't, I mean, post-Dre, we can't use chronic anymore as a, as a phrase for something shit. Mm. Um, used to use that all the time. Uh. Squeeze have been left very distressed at the excessively heavy bouncing at a recent gig in Baltimore, where a female fan had her eye gouged out for trying to get backstage. Fucking hell. And Bushell also gleefully tells us that skinhead rocking attained a new high of political consciousness last week with two street-level attacks on prominent conservatives. 
First off, former Prime Minister Lord Hume was belled to buy skins at Piccadilly Tube Station last Monday. Then on Friday, former Toryite Labour Foreign Minister and all-round reactionary Lord Cholfont was given a beautiful shiner down the King's Road. Apparently, Charfy complained when a skin kicked his car, so the lad done him, to the extent of one black eye, some lacerations and a batch of bruises. There you go, skinheads. Not just there for the nasty things in life, they can be violent to other people too. I mean, between them and Prince Charles's uh, polo horse, you know, there's there's quite a lot of violence against the upper classes happening yes. there. You know, class war was clearly on the agenda. Um, I've actually got former Prime Minister Lord Holmes' autograph. Why? Right, I expect Neil did this as well. Uh, when we got records we didn't want at Melody Maker, mm. uh, we would take bags, them, huge bags of them to the record and tape exchange. Of course. The music and video mm. exchange. Um, yeah, to, to, get- to people like me yeah right what what did you work there yeah oh fucking well the london one yeah wow. early 90s early Ships 90s which probably just which a bit branch? before your time whereabouts which branch uh not in ill not in ill and yeah. um uh where was the other one it was camden and the, there was one in soho as well um maybe yeah it was notting hill and camden right. yeah well uh i was actually in the notting hill branch with a big bag of crap from ipc that i didn't want Ooh. and um mm. if i was all right for cash i would tend to swap them for the fake monopoly money that uh music and video exchange gave out because you get double mm. your money for that yeah and i would just sort of you know go through all the cheapo record racks and fill up my collection like that way and i was going through one of the ultra cheapo boxes where it's just absolute shit that they, they can barely sell and it's like a pound each yeah and there was an lp called conservatives in big blue letters right <laughs> and it was um this sort of lp history of the conservative party <laughs> wow. and, and whoever put it in there obviously didn't notice what was written on it because there were two autographs on the front of that lp one of them was lord home the other margaret thatcher no and i thought for a fake quid for a monopoly quid i'm having that yeah yeah so i had it obviously there's no certificate of authentication but whatever the fuck that means anyway you know it's fucking <laughs> certificates you get an autograph mm. it's only one person's word against another but i yeah. thought yeah you know one day in my life this lp signed by thatcher and home is going to be worth something so i've still got it I've still got it yeah and malcolm owen vocalist for the roots has phoned sounds to confirm that he's recently been a addicted to heroin but he's now off it i went round me mum's and she locked me in for a week i stayed in bed shivering and moaning but it worked i'm totally free of the filthy stuff now he said two and a half months before dying of a heroin overdose in his parents bedrooms oh man 1980 fucking grim year for music deaths yeah in the interview section well Phil Sutcliffe joins The Cure in New York, who are touring the new LP 17 Seconds, and he joins in on their on-the-road game, where they describe the perfect place they'd like to live. Matthew Hartley desires a vegetable garden that he could eat his way through forever. Simon Gallup wants to live in a town where everything is made of leather, like a BDSM Mr. Soft advert. <laughs> Lol Tolhurst's dream location is a long street with a sweet shop, then a pub, then a toilet, then the same again and again into infinite. And Robert Smith's utopia would be full of people in separate rooms sitting and staring at the walls <laughs> cheer up goth <laughs> when Sutcliffe finally gets to speak to Smith alone he discovers a downcast fractious front man 
If I wasn't in love, being in a group would be an ideal existence. But for me, it's getting more and more difficult. Really schizophrenic, he says. On the road, I shut down all my emotions. That's why I don't enjoy company. I'm walking around in a daze. Often I would be perfectly happy to leave the group, but there's a responsibility on me because I know if I stop, the cure stops. Fucking hell. Well, he hasn't stopped. Being in a band, shit. <laughs> Dave McCulloch nips over to the rainbow to link up with Paul Weller after a jam gig and is told that going underground is, quote, mainly about the nuclear thing, but it's an ambiguous title. It's about going underground from the whole of this poxy society. After telling McCulloch how rushed the Setting Suns album was and how their recent US tour was a damp squib, Weller bangs on about how mint and skilled two-tone is and then spells out the limitations of punk. The Clash trying to break up fights and then singing White Riot as an encore. What's the point of that? If you want a riot, you can't say what sort of riot you want. (laughs) The Clash are all Americanisms now. We've achieved more than the Sex Pistols did. We've affected just as many people and we do get through to people without that poxy crusading bit. We were asked to go on nationwide and talk about the mod riots. Capital Radio wanted us to go on and talk about the mod explosion, but all that spokesman for a generation stuff is crap. Why didn't the jam go on the fucking Jubilee Song Contest then, Paul? (laughs) (laughs) That spokesman for a generation thing obviously rankled with him, didn't it? Because um, on the sleeve of Cafe Blur, the first Star Council album, there's some little joke. What is it? Former spokesman for a generation. Generation now into was it now into a bit of jazz or something? I can't remember what it says exactly. Paul Souter witnesses a stormy gig in Birmingham by Samson, which culminates in a mighty explosion from a misplaced flash pot that burns singer Bob Cately and set the drum kit on fire. Guitarist Tony Clarkin, who was seen tottering around in stack heels and tight leather trousers, <laughs> dismisses the praise flying about for their soon-to-be tour mates, Def Leppard. Well, I bet they're not as fat as me, he sneers, before saying, we just dress how we want to dress, in a voice straight out of Jasper Carrot's Bovril sketch, reports Souter. David McCullough takes himself to whop into Crash Round Jar Wobble's house and listens as he bitches about Virgin Records' mistreatment of Pills Metal Box. What, they scuffed it up? Then he goes on to talk about how he met John Lydon and Sid Vicious and how the group are floating in their own bubble nowadays. We're unique, but we have no brazen political theories. I think sometimes we border on psychosis. I'm not using that word lightly. I really mean psychosis. In other words, we lose touch with reality. And Gary Bushell goes to Dundee to catch up with Menser of the Angelic Upstarts and finds him on the phone with Warner Brothers, their label. Upon discovering that their new LP, We've Gotta Get Out of This Place, has dropped 16 places to number 70, he demands that whoever is in the arty fuffkin position at Warner's bends over a record rack this very minute so Mense can put the trainers to the anus. (laughs) They promised us big displays, big promotion, everything. And what did we get? 
fuck all. Well, you can print this. We are looking for a new company. (laughs) When asked if punk is dead, he counters punk rock is a form of working class rebellion and there's still plenty to rebel against. How can punk be dead when there's new blood all the time? It's realer now than ever. The pistols turned out to be a bunch of wankers, and so many of the others were posers. Now you've got us and the rejects up there in the limelight, adding more fuel to the fire. When asked about the infiltration of British moving skinheads at Upstart's gigs, Mency gets all protective. Half these BM kids aren't really Nazis. They've got grudges against blacks, but it's just gang war with skin colour instead of areas. The BM kids are looking for an identity. They are being used by people who aren't working class and who are against the working class. The interview concludes with fond reminiscences about the band's former manager, who happened to be Mensi's brother-in-law. One time he locked us all in a room and told us to write a song supporting the IRA. We refused. We sacked him and then he and his cronies threatened my mother, burnt down my sister's stable containing a horse and four grand worth of equipment. He got paid a visit with a sawn-off shotgun and one of his henchmen got shot in the legs. He's inside for four years now. Fucking hell, 1980. Yes. (laughs) You know that um, Samson gig you mentioned? Yes. I think that was at the Hummingbird, right, in Birmingham, which reminds me just of a little urban legend. uh, Something that happened, well, it used to happen quite a lot. I don't know whether this still exists. In the canal near the Hummingbird, because you know Birmingham, it's the Venice of the Midlands or whatever. It's full of canals. (laughs) Of course it is, yes. And, um, yeah, one of the uh, common sightings in the canal near there was the Birmingham Piss Troll. Um, <laughs> what? Yeah, the Birmingham Pistrol. If you ever speak to a Yim Yam or a Brummy, they will tell you about the Birmingham Pistrol. I've never heard of yeah, this. Well, Birmingham Pistrol was a legend of the 80s and 90s. And I think he went all the way up into the noughties. I don't know whether he's still with us. Maybe a Brummy uh, pop crazy youngster could help us out on this. But basically, mm. if you went for a slash in the canal, right, right. You, you'd unzip and you'd start pissing. And then slowly, as you were pissing, a guy would come out of the canal... And, oh. and just let you piss all over him. Well, he wouldn't he'd, he'd stay there whilst you pissed all over him. And then he'd retreat back into the water and sort of swim away. Um, and oh my and God. this is a real thing. This, I'm not making this. I didn't dream this, honestly. Um, yeah, the Birmingham piss troll. Um, as seen near the Hummingbird, as seen around uh, around the Birmingham area. Can't believe he wasn't part of the Commonwealth Games opening ceremony, to be honest with you. Yes. But, um, yeah, there we go. Birmingham Piss Troll obviously going straight into the next chart music top ten. <laughs> That's the next episode's number one right there and then, and let's not even fucking bother. Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for the Birmingham Piss Troll, obviously you've got to go to Birmingham, you've got to go to the canal and have a piss, and it's got to be under a bridge, hence the troll thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And the BBC made all them fucking episodes about Peaky Blinders. (laughs) Fuck, missed opportunities, man. Yeah, pissy blinders. eh? (laughs) On the single reviews page, well, in the chair this week is Sandy Robertson, and his single of the week is "A Certain Girl" by Warren Zevon. A vintage piece of obsessive delirium. It's loud. It's excited, and it hits. Hear it and believe it, 
desperados. <laughs> Graham Parker has ditched the rumour and signed to Stiff, and his new single, Stupefaction, is dead good, according to Robertson. After 15 seconds, you call it dull, but after a minute, you're scanning the charts and seeing if it's in there yet. The much-maligned foreigner turned out to be loud but pleasantly midweight as they catalogued those female types who scare their audience, says Sander about their new single, Women. An album cut, but an acceptable album cut. See, this caught my attention. I thought... Female mm. types who scare their audience. Have you seen the lyrics to this song? Women no. by Fauna. Right. It begins. Women behind bars. Women in fast cars. Women in distress. <laughs> women with no dress. <laughs> women in aeroplanes. <laughs> women who play games. Women in uniform. See that woman with her clothes torn. And so it's really <laughs> fucking creepy. Right. Uh, it, it goes on like that. And um, the album it's from, Head Games, has got a really right. dodgy sleeve. It, it depicts, it's a photo of um, a 14 year old girl. And I know she's 14 because she was, went on to become oh, yes. a, quite a famous actress and film producer in like um, a mini skirt and a bra top. Um, crouched over a, a urinal in a, a male toilet with a toilet roll in her hands or mm. scrubbing away at some graffiti. Which I right. fuck knows what it's meant to be symbolic of, but combine that with the <laughs> lyrics of women. I mean, it's it's no wonder that Lou Graham um, still wanted to know what love is when it came to yeah. the yeah, yeah. No one's going <laughs> to yes. fucking go near him, and, and that's why he fucking waited so long for a girl like her. Yeah. As well. I'm just surprised in that uh, selection of women couplets there wasn't the golden one that always used to crop up in metal records and rock records at the time. Women who uh, both. Uh, pump the gasoline but also keep the motor clean uh, <laughs> yes <laughs> there is a bit women who can't be beat get that woman in the back seat right. so it does have that kind <laughs> of out. automobile thing going on there yeah mm. but towards the end it's like women you dream about all your life women that stab you in the back with a switchblade knife Ooh. oh <laughs> treacherous yeah, no fucking see. wonder you asked for it you cunt <laughs> yeah fucking treacherous stuff all over again isn't it yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a coat down for messages by orchestral manoeuvres in the dark oh. The sleeve's more artful than the predictable science pop inside. I didn't know David Stubbs wrote for sounds. <laughs> mm. Fucking hell, it's a great single. Truly great single messages, magnificent. I'd anticipated something less agreeable, says Sandy of Rescue, the second single by Echo and the Bunnymen. Agitated and modernist, but in the final analysis, quite conventional rock and roll with clean guitars shimmering away over a slightly Bowie vocal. Fair enough. Peter Gabriel became a chart concern earlier this year with Games Without Frontiers, and his latest release, No Self Control, looks like it's going to keep him there. Harsher and less nimble than games, no self-control finds Gabriel nearly sliding into chaos right in the middle of the Enterprise, pulling back from the brink of excess with more fevered chanting. Squeeze are back with another cut from their argy-bargy LP, pulling muscles from the shell, but Robertson is more interested in asking as if we knew that their new bassist John Bentley played with Throbbing Gristle for a bit, before telling us this sounds nothing like Throbbing Gristle and will be a hit. Do you know where that got in the charts? Uh, I'll be outside the 40, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah 42, yeah. I could not believe that. 
I used to hear that all the yeah. time. It's, it's about fingering, that song. You don't get many pop songs about fingering. I can't think of any other ones. <laughs> oh, God, of course it is. That's yeah. never occurred to me, Simon. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Squeeze do songs about fingering, and there was something called the Birmingham Piss Troll. <laughs> what, what an education <laughs> chart music is. <laughs> Motorhead have rushed out the live EP, The Golden Years, and Sandy reckons it. It's the loudest single of the week, enough to make your tweeters run for cover. Play at 4am and get evicted. No bother. Reggae is still alive and kicking in May of 1980, but the only releases that cross sounds as deaths this week are made by whiteys trying to put a rock slant on it. The Pat Travers Band's cover of Is This Love is a competent and distinctly unheavy retread of smarmy Bob Marley's M.O.R. reggae, well listenable. But it's a coat down for one of the most popular bands in Sweden, Dag Vaj, and their new single, Wipeout. These Swedes are true turnips. It's probably Dag Varg, isn't it? But sorry, I'm English, and I've got that kind of mindset. That brings up disgusting images, because we all know what a dag is, and we all know what a vag is. You dag. And the two of them together. You flaming galah. Yes. Rack isn't a dagger a sheep's ass with all yeah with all bubbles da- of shit uh, it's around all with it? Dangleberries on it, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, oh, I, I didn't man. know that. I thought it's an Australian uh, insult, but then you know there is a lot of sheep farming in Oz, so maybe that's where it comes from. There's, that's number two in the charts next week. <laughs> Make it real by Scorpions sounds like the lead singer is giving orders to a battalion of blonde psychopaths. Stiv Baters is the nicest ex-punk in the world, but his new single not that way anymore is not suitable for uk tastes mercenaries ready for war by john kale will do you if you're into gun love at high volume and two triple cheese side order of fries by commander coder comes on like the ramones covering eddie cochran i've just looked up dag vag or dag vag on google translate uh sadly uh, in english it means day vague or i guess vague day Mm. Oh, yeah. Spoil sport, eh? <laughs> In the LP review section, the lead off review this week is given over, rightfully, to Base Culture by Linton Quasi Johnson. Mm. A radical style of DJ album in the tradition of King Stitt, a scorcher of a reggae album rather than a self-conscious study in racial sociology, writes Eric Fuller. What with police asking for wider powers to stop and search, no planned repeal of the sus laws, a government plainly committed to making the poor poorer, and blacks completely excluded from any of the bureaucracy that makes decisions about their own lives, burning and looting on a grand scale is plainly festering, not very far below the surface. Oh, different times, eh, chaps? Buying a copy of Base Culture won't make it go away, but you can't say you haven't been well warned. And George Lindo was innocent. What a fucking outstanding album that is. Oh, it's a great album, but I mean, thinking about that review, yeah, I mean, obviously not different times, but you Mm. could do that. 
you know, actually reflect the times that you were living in, mm. in an album review, you wouldn't fucking do that now. Or you can't see no. that now, you know. Racist anti-vax junkie cunt Eric Clapton <laughs> has, has just shit out the live LP just one night, which is hailed by David Lewis as a strong and balanced showcase of Clapton on stage, recorded at what is fast becoming everyone's favourite public studio, Tokyo's Budokan Mega Venue. Then Lewis remembers he's not much of a fan of live LPs. Despite Clapton's moments of inspirational guitar virtuosity and captivating vocals, no live album can ever hope to match the recording sharpness of its studio counterpart, and no amount of whistling and cheering crowd atmospherics can begin to convey the true excitement of actually being there. I kind of agree with that. Yeah, me too. Mm. Although, whenever I do express that opinion, I kind of then remember quite a few good live LPs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, I mean, they tend to be the fake ones like Thin Lizzy Live and Dangerous, you know, the ones where, where it's kind of confected live. The Who Live at Leeds is another fake one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So, yeah, all the ones that get hailed as the great ones are actually completely fake anyway. With punk receding into the distance, Pete Shelley feels it's safe enough to release Sky Yen, the experimental electronic curio he recorded in 1974 with a purpose-built oscillator and dave mcculloch approves a reminder that punk and its great early protagonists were never about starting or ending or aimlessly carrying on the alf garnet three chord thrash i hope some of them shelley included will soon go on from where they left off in the garage with an oscillator back in the dim days of 74 which I suppose he did, because, mm. you know, mm. stuff like Homo Sapien and then later on Telephone mm. Operator is very sort of tech, very synth-based, and, you know, his work with Martin Russian. So yeah. so I, I guess he did kind of pick up where, where that left off. I've, I've not heard this no, um, Sky no. Yen, but I'm, I want to. That and the LKJ, this, this is great. I'm getting loads of things on my sort of Discogs <laughs> once list now. But it's a coat down for Growing Up in Public, the 10th solo album by Lou Reed. Who else but Lou Reed would have the balls to exploit his past as a culture hero through eight years of mainly wretched solo product, all the while nullifying his senses with various pharmaceuticals that bounced his spunky little body into any number of grotesque shapes ranging from pasta fat to Dachau fin, offset with innumerable vile hairstyles, and after giving us the big finger for so long, dare to invite to weep at his recorded personal confessions <laughs> as Sandy Robinson. This has not the clipped brilliance of his first solo LP, nor the camp wankery of Transformer, <laughs> the maudlin vaudeville of Berlin, or the conceptual outrage of metal machine music. This dancing dwarf will occasionally quarrel out of the garbage can and leave off interviewing drag queens about dipping spam in shit <laughs> to make a record that shows that he can still cut it the way he did back in the Velvet Underground days. But this album sounds like James Taylor, Graham Nash and AOR Half Hard Rock. The Beast is back in sheep's clothing. What song did Lou Reed make about dipping spam in shit I don't know Neil would you <laughs> uh, I, it, was, it was good to hear or read that, that review because it's kind of how I feel about 
the myth of Lou Reed as well. And it's it's good to know that somebody way back in 1980 was calling out his bullshit. I mean, obviously he's done loads of amazing stuff, but the whole kind of fucking heroin chic around this supposed kind of damaged junkie genius has always turned me off. Mm. He's somebody mm. who thought he was a lot cleverer than he was. I mean, are you with me on this? Am I, am I just... Yeah, I mean, he's alone? patchy as fuck, Lou Reed. Maybe three good solo albums, and that's about your lot, really. All I've got to add to this is, he thought he could do a cover of Soul Man. Fuck Lou Reed. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of dipping, spamming shit, now I'm strictly a, a pure luncheon meat man. <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify, actually, I've been consulting with my Birmingham Piss Troll team, and, and I just want to clarify <laughs> that if, if anyone does want to go and, you know, micturate over a bridge... Uh, to an appreciative troll. Uh, it's not the Hummingbird. It was a nightclub called Subway City in Birmingham that is now called the Tunnel Club. So, right. um, yeah, go there for all your uh, piss troll needs. I wonder how many other cities have got these kind of folk demons. I mean, obviously, mm. in, in Liverpool, there's Purple Aki. If you don't know who he is, just look him up. But was mm. there anything like that in Nottingham? Uh, we had the Nagasaki Hell Blaster <laughs> in the 50s, according to me, mum. Who's, who's now going to be number three on the next show? Um, yeah, he was a, he was a war vet veteran um obviously didn't come out of it too well he'd go about all the coffee bars in nottingham open the doors and shout i am the nagasaki l blaster and then you know everyone in the coffee bar to a person would shout fuck off i mean i know the crazy world of arthur brown struggled to find a follow-up single but come on (laughs) in the gig guide wow David could have seen Cabaret Voltaire, Red Crayola, and Young Marble Giants at the Clarendon Hotel. Light up his street there, isn't it? Yeah. Magazine and Bauhaus at the Lyceum. Splodgeness abounds at the Victoria venue. Saxon and Tigers of Pantang also at the Lyceum. And rounded off the week nice with Black Sabbath at the Hammersmith Odeon. But probably didn't. Taylor could have seen the au at the Birmingham College of Food and Domestic Arts, Joy Division in a certain ratio at Birmingham University, the only ones at Romeo and Juliet's, or nipped up to Wolverhampton to see Judy Zook at the Civic Hall, or even Magazine and Bauhaus at Digbeth Civic Hall. Neil could have seen Shitkov Punk's Chainsaw at the Climax Club, or Desmond Decker at Tiffany's. Sarah could have got the coastliner bus to see The Cure at Hull Unair, Sky at Sheffield City Hall, Roy Harper at Leeds Unair, or Martha and the Muffins at Sheffield Polytechnic. Al could have seen UB40 at Trent Polair, or The Drifters at Heart of the Midlands, the bakery that was converted to a chicken-in-a-basket venue before it became Rock City. Also the site of the final of the world's first-ever professional dance championships, don't you know? Simon could also have seen UB40 at Newport Village, the stylistics at Carefully Double Diamond, UK subs at Cardiff Top Rank, and fuck all else, because it's Wales. It is. But, you know, apart from me and Wales getting the shitty end of the stick, that's one of the best gig guides we've ever had, I think. There's so many in that. I thought, fuck yeah, I'd love to go and see them. Judy Zook. (laughs) In the letters page this week, 
The main topic of conversation this week is Rob Halford of Judas Priest deciding to get his kit off on stage at the Rainbow last week and sounds treating its readership to a good look at his cock and balls. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you for printing that marvellous picture of Judas Priest Rob Halford exposing himself so triumphantly at the Rainbow recently, writes Louise from Fallowfield. I think she's barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> I do hope more bands, and not just heavy metal bands, follow Rob's example at their live gigs by allowing their frontman to remove their leotards, tights, underpants and all. Trust Rob to be the first to have the guts to peel off his tights and pull down his knickers in front of all those people. I wonder if Paul Diano of Iron Maiden wears knickers under his tights on stage. Why not let's have a look, Paul? Let's have lots more nudity, please. More priestly support comes from the sinner from Portishead. I think the two letters you printed from ex-priest fans were unfair. Priests are really nice blokes who care for their fans. They're not in it for the money. If they were, they would only play a few nights at big venues like Rainbow, Van Halen and ACDC do. P.S. More nude pics of Priest, please. (laughs) Annie Nightingale took metal to task in a recent article for the Daily Express and two of many female HM followers from Cleethorpes are well dischuffed about it. Has she nothing better to do than sit in a poxy air-conditioned office, drink cups of coffee and insult people's taste in music? Is that her brain, or is she breaking it in for an idiot? If Miss Nightingale does not like writing about HM, then we suggest she gets herself another job. The sooner the better. In her so-called write-up, she stated that HM is music aimed at boys and the concert audiences are totally male-populated. We would like to inform her that of all the concerts we've been to, a good third of the audience has been female. Shock! Horror! Gasp! Yes, it's true! Some girls do like HM. As for her comments about HM being out of fashion since the days of Led Zepp, we would like to say that as far as we know, Led Zepp are still going strong with more followers now than they had in the early days. Not all HM groups prance about the stage bare-chested and tight trousers and sing about sex in a way that infuriates women's libbers. <laughs> we will be sending Miss Nightingale a turd in the post. <laughs> Not all HM groups prance about the stage bare-chested and tight trousers and sing about sex in a way that infuriates women's libbers, but the best ones do, really. <laughs> Oh, Neil, I don't know about you, but I, I was in a reverie there. I was, that was so nostalgic where there was that bit, uh, sit in a poxy air-conditioned yeah. office, drink cups of coffee <laughs> and insult people's taste in music. Man, yeah. that was the 90s. Yeah. That yeah, was yeah, my yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> While Rob Halford has been lusted over this week, it's a coat down for Debbie Arre for not making an effort anymore. In the latest Blondie video, Debbie looks rather like a bleached Gary Moore, but without the playing ability, says perverse pig from Gotham City. 
Also, all my followers agree that... Fucking hell, is he on Twitter or something? Yeah, what's going on there? All my followers agree that Debbie's haircut has given her looks a turn for the worse and that her orange boiler suit makes her look like a dustbin man slash woman. She's not going to fancy you, mate. No. <laughs> no. That's proper negging, that is. Yeah. Genesis are currently the darlings of the daytime DJs. Peter Powell, Andy Peebles, Mike Reed, Kid Jensen and Noel Edmonds are all falling over each other to lavish them with over-the-top and totally uncritical praise, says Jim from Paul. But he reckons their new LP Duke is a right sellout. Genesis seem to approach their music in a totally unenthusiastic and business-like manner, with the exception of Phil. <laughs> if they continue to plough their currently profitable little rut, they seem bound to fail, just like ELP. Hmm. The readers with their prophetic powers, you know, Led Zeppelin are going from strength to strength, yes. apparently. <laughs> going back to punky lust objects, a Luton town fan who doesn't like sexism, ignorance and sounds ignoring the louse takes issue with a recent news piece on the plasmatics. A lot has been written about sexism lately, so I thought I would add my views. Since I was 13, I have observed the way men look upon women as bits of tit and embarrass and degrade them. I am disturbed and shocked at the media's treatment of women, so I couldn't believe it when I saw the seedy page 3 type article and picture of the plasmatics in the April 12th issue. If the plasmatics vocalist wants to strip off all day every day, that's up to her. But by giving it media coverage, you are arousing men sexually and embarrassing and offending some women. Fucking hell, Wendy O. Williams with her fanny out, Rob Alford with his cock and balls out. I never knew there was so much nudity in sounds, did you? Mm. Fucking hell. Is there any intelligent life which reads sounds? Asks Derek Hitchcock. Then why insult it? The jokes in your recent column entitled Roscoe's Moscow Adventures made me want to crawl into a corner and vomit. They were cheap, naive, stupid, ignorant and insulting to anyone with a minimum of intelligence because of their blatant mocking prejudice. Jokes about bending over backwards and homosexual space monsters are insulting because of their cheap datedness, lack of originality, insulting to lesbians as they assume they don't exist, insulting to gay men because of its mockery and its weird ideas of what a gay man is. I wouldn't take it so seriously if it weren't so very clear what the general line of sounds is on sexism, feminism and homosexuality, i.e. they don't really exist except in the weird imaginations of a small minority. Why don't you take the same attitude to Jews, socialists, the Irish and racial minorities? Then you can claim to be completely ignorantly prejudiced. You could also not print this letter to get the full set against freedom of speech too. Yours, disgustedly, Derek Hitchcock. Fucking woke snowflake. And Rob, the HM fan from Romford, is appalled that sounds haven't even bothered reviewing Jethro Tull's latest shows. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, in the back pages, is the following advert. 
Notice to skinheads! <laughs> this is to inform you of the opening of London's first regular skinhead disco, which opens on Friday 2nd of May at the All Nations Club for Martello Street E8 and every Friday after that. Admission is pound fifty. doors open at 8pm and there's a drinks licence to 3am. Now, we all know that skins have got a bad name for certain things and all the trouble you have trying to get into places, so now you've got a club where you can go without being stared at or treated like animals, a place where you can meet your mates and have a laugh and hear your kind of music (laughs) and see the occasional band. So the club's there, the music's there, and so long as everything stays cool, it'll stay there. So forget about football and politics and be there on Friday. It's your club, so use it. (laughs) Fucking hell. I wonder how long that lasted. You take football and politics out of skinheads, what the fuck have you got left? Glue. (laughs) That's what you've got. I wonder if it's the same club in that Combat 84 documentary a couple of years later, which starts with them playing a song and then ends up in absolute fucking chaos with people picking up bar stools and chucking them at each other. There's a lot about skins in this sounds, isn't there? Yes. Partly because of Bushel, I think. I mean, he really does editorially going to dominate the paper. He's got an awful lot in there. Mm. I'm going to be a bit sort of humourless and spoil sport about this though and insist that it's very likely that this skinhead club wasn't the sort of place that combat 84 um uh, would would have been uh, or any any sort of skinhead bands because mm. the all nations club um was a black owned reggae club really <clears throat> yeah the right. venue was yeah because i'm always fucking hell like, to, to to this day i'm i'm somebody who's still you know flying the flag for left-wing anti-racist skinheads which you know was, was mm. always the original idea until it got hijacked and such people do still exist you know i've, I've got a skinhead mate who's like a lot younger than me who, who's very sort of anti-racist and all that kind of stuff so yeah th- this place the all nations club in in hackney it was a, a black owned reggae club third world played live there steel pulse played live there right um, there was a room in the basement which was the lover's rock room which oh my god i would love to have gone in there mm-hmm. uh, i think the club carried on the, the venue that is carried on till 1987 so i was just about in london at the right time but i never went there but um right. they, they still have reunion nights um which have to be somewhere else because inevitably london being london um that property in hackney has been converted into a block of flats but mm. i just think it's unlikely that it would be your fascist skinheads um yeah. being invited to hold a night in a black owned reggae club in hackney personally. wow yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe the maybe the people putting the advert in could have explicitly stated that. Maybe I mean, I, I know I'm not I'm demanding stuff from the past that yeah. I'm going to do, but it, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, this is the period, like you said, this is colossal fragmentation and and factionalism within factions, you mm. know, and, and skinhead culture is kind of splitting apart at this point as well. Fifty six pages. 25p i never knew there was so much in it this was sound's chance to snatch a few readers from nme and melody maker how do you think they got on chaps well i think what they're doing they are putting music in that other magazines probably laughed at there's a lot more metal in there yeah um, and as we'll come to see in the episode but that's actually a fairly decent reflection of what's going on yes mm. i think what not did for sounds, but it's a shame they couldn't keep metal in the magazine, if you like. Um, yeah. Sounds became another kind of enemy, Melody Maker type magazine. Mm. The split that led to the formation of Kerrang! 
is, I think, what might have eventually done for it. You know, in the same way that when there was a, a, a BBC strike in the 70s, which meant that uh, a lot of disco records got into the charts because what was popular in clubs was uh, sort of coming to the fore. Mm. So things like Rock Your Baby by George McRae was, was a beneficiary of that. Um, I don't know if it's sort of fanciful to wonder if a similar thing happened here with this this strike in the music press. Mm. So, so the more kind of indie or alternative things um, are no longer getting catered for in terms of the press. Mm. Uh, and if you want to buy a music paper, you've basically got to buy a, a paper that's really into metal. Mm. And, and then, mm. then, then you do get several bands without spoiling it in this this week's chart and this this week's top of the pops who are um, on the metal end of the spectrum do you think sounds would have put the cure on the front page in 1980 if the nme and uh, melody maker weren't on strike i was quite shocked by their choice of cover yeah i think they would but that's because the cure were not the cure as as we now think of them they were still seen as quite a sort of tough sort of post-punk band mm. and there was actually loads of aggro at their gigs they always really? used to get skinheads coming to their gigs the cure <laughs> because don't forget well do you, do you know what their first single was called yes yeah killing an arab right so they would always get um people coming to their gigs um expecting it to be some kind of national front rally mm. and uh, i mean in a way the cure were asking for it by you know stupidly calling the song that when it's based on the outsider by by Camus and uh, the actual um, ethnicity of the person who gets killed isn't really relevant but by by focusing on that it caused them no end of trouble mm. but yeah they used to get skinheads turn up their gigs there was one gig uh, at some um, punk venue in London where a whole bunch of skins turned up for a ruck but the leader of them some guy called Eagle you know he was sort of pushing everyone around and sort of slamming and sort of causing trouble but then the queue start playing Boys Don't Cry yeah. <laughs> and, they, and this this guy suddenly decides oh I like this one and starts dancing about and he's, he sort of calls off the dogs and says to all his tough mates hey you know they're alright this lot let's leave them alone <laughs> so yeah they, they were pacified by by the jolly pop punk sounds of boys don't cry the power of music yeah well it's not bit but i mean i i think the poncier these bands get the less likely they're going to be on the cover of sounds sounds is mm. kind of in this period i think it's setting itself up as i, I guess you call it like yeah it's a street level magazine if you like mm. and, and 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 the people covered in makeup who are going to cover the covers of the enemy and melody maker in coming years are not going to appear on the front cover of sounds. They're going to stick no. with the kind of the punky and obviously the metal end of things. Oh, and before we step away from sounds chaps, allow me to draw your attention to a couple of Twitter accounts uh, at sounds clips who scanning and ping out cuttings from sounds and mm. at nothing else on, which does the same thing for melody maker in the enemy. If you're regularly plunging your head into the shit bucket, that is Twitter. Mm. Give them a follow. Cause they, they are doing God's work. Oh, they are. Yeah. Full singles pages and stuff like that. It's, mm. it's fascinating. Those accounts again at sounds clips and at nothing else on. So what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One commences at 6.40am with the triple bill of testing infants, renaissance spectacle and conflict in the famlet in open university. There's another gig poster for you. (laughs) And then closes down for one hour and 52 minutes. At 13 to 10, it's an orgy of schools and colleges programmes before it closes down for another hour and 20 minutes. Then it's the midday news, Pebble Mill at one, Mr. Ben answers about with a balloon, you and me, a couple more schools programmes, and then another close down for 15 minutes. After, oh dear, sorry Simon, in advance, <laughs> Dekral Kanu. 
Nope. Go on, what is it? Dechai Kani. Dechai Kani, Dechai Kanmol. Which is, uh, is, is Songs of Praise, basically, in Welsh. It started in 1961, you know, so it's before Songs of Praise. It inspired Songs of Praise. Wow. Wow, yeah. After that, it's regional news in your area. Play school, the all-new Popeye show. A repeat of Graham's gang. John Craven's news round. Blue Peter. And then the evening news. Nationwide features their new signing, Reginald Bosenkay, as he examines the aristocracy, and then Rod, Han, and Prenderville look at the latest developments in sound reproduction in tomorrow's world. That um, that Bosenkay view on the aristocracy, I, mm. I want to. I'm sorry, I, I want to hear the skinhead view on the aristocracy from what we've heard about what's been going on, yes. or, or or the polo pony view on the aristocracy. Mm. Like, you know this thing of um, <laughs> Prince Charles getting booted in the face by his polo horse right yeah. uh, which is obviously 1980 i looked into this right it happened again in 1990 and then it happened again in 2001 <laughs> fucking horses hate him man yeah. and uh, it's, it's the wisdom of the equine there they, they yes. know things and um this <laughs> i found this amazing story that um in 1981 when he was uh, prince charles was visiting new zealand he wrote an angry letter to an um, an unnamed friend back home. I think we know who that unnamed friend is, don't mm. we? Complaining about all the grief he was getting from New Zealand people, because apparently everywhere he went, they were taking the piss out of him for falling off his horse and getting kicked by it. And it really, <laughs> it really riled him up. But yeah, yeah. BBC Two also kicks off at 6.40am with an open university triforce and then closes down for three hours and five minutes. Then Carol Leader and Don Spencer let us into play school and then closes down again for another three hours and 45 minutes before whipping us over to the Crucible for the semi-finals of the Embassy World Snooker Championships. Then it's more open university, then more snooker and they've just started the mid-evening news. ITV opens up at half nine for a schools and colleges avalanche, followed by Gammon and Spinach, which turns out to be another Jack and Ori clone presented by Roy Kinnear, Stepping Stones, Gardening Today with Cyril Fletcher, News at One and Regional News in Your Area. At half one, it's the first episode of the romantic terminal illness drama series for Maddie with Love. Then Mary Berry pops up on Afternoon Plus. Then we're frog marched to Newmarket for the 1,000 guineas. That's followed by Windows, whatever the fuck that is. It's only five minutes long. Fang Face, then Salvage One, the American series about a scrap dealer who builds a space rocket so he can nick all the gear left on the moon by NASA. Then it's the news at 5.45, regional news in your area, Crossroads, and they're 20 minutes into Emmerdale Farm. Chaps, is there anything leaping out at you there? Well, shit Scooby-Doo rip-off fang face, for starters. No. Um, Never heard of that. Oh, it's terrible. If you're seeking out shit Scooby-Doo rip-offs, by the way, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids is much, much better. Oh, really? great music in it from the 70s, yeah. Um, their tune, Looking for Someone, is, is an absolute banger. It's a great Ooh. cartoon, that. Beyond that, just remembering the sinking sense of tedium, when racing would be on the fucking telly. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I love horses too, Simon, but it's just instant <laughs> boredom, isn't it? There was something incredibly sort of dulling of the senses about those days when you were off school ill 
and yeah. the only things to watch on telly were Crown Court at lunchtime mm. and and the horse racing and it was just mm. the sort of the the dull sort of thud the the rumble of the hooves and the kind of monotonous commentary would would make you feel like you were in some kind of alternate reality but a really mm. dull alternate reality now, everyone involved in horse racing just seems like a cunt John McCoy well, as know? well yeah was that the London ITV listings you were reading? no ATV I always do ATV oh, do whenever I can all uh, right, that's where my heart's at, Simon. <laughs> there was uh, on the thing you sent us. There was HTV as well as Harlock Television, it's the Welsh, of one. course. And at um, seven thirty, uh, which I guess is going up against Top of the Pops, mm. the Incredible Hulk, and it says Banner is the target of a voodoo healer. Ooh. I thought, fuck <laughs> me, that's all I want to watch now. <laughs> I wonder if you know that Welsh um, songs of praise. Yeah. Uh, the show. I wonder if people have always played the Songs of Praise game with religious shows like that. Go on. You know, where you watch the congregation and figure out if you'd want to fuck any of them. <laughs> <laughs> I used to love watching Songs of Praise with my granny because she was fucking dead against religion. And right. she'd just sit there and just say, oh, look at all these fucking bastards. I bet they're not there next week. <laughs> And the vicar would turn up, and she'd always say, I bet he's got a tie with a nudie woman on it, son. <laughs> can, I, can I just pick something else up? Right. Please do. Well, Neil was t- telling us about the Birmingham piss troll. Yes. Right? And it just raises more questions and answers. I'm sorry, I've got to bring this up again. Because and the more I find out, the less I know. <laughs> it's been really preying on my mind, because, mm. right... Just sort of recap. You're saying that uh, it's it's a sort of well-known thing uh, among Brummies that if you go for a piss in the canal late at night, some bloke swims up and opens his gob and tries to get you to piss in the I never said open his gob. You dragged me saying that. I didn't say that. Um, He doesn't open his gob. Well, that's all right. Go on, go on. He just... No, and crucially, I should have clarified one other thing. It's not just pissing in a canal. You've got to piss over this bridge, this particular bridge. Right. Um, yeah, and he, he he kind of comes up out of the water, lets you piss all over him. No, 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 sorry, Neil. He does not come up. There is not... He's not... Well, I'm merely reporting a legend, Right. I wasn't well, there. This is... I'm, I'm interested in the status of this. Is it one of these things where it's, it's a real person that everyone knows about, or is it some kind of absolute fanciful bullshit? Because in my mind, I'm imagining, like, you know, Bob, Ewing in the Man from Atlantis, uh, or, you know, <laughs> Patrick Duffy, or, or like you know Kevin Costner in Waterworld, mm. you know, because in order to get there in time, if there's a pissing incident happening, how often uh, can it possibly happen that Yim Yams are getting their cocks out and s- slinging them over the edge of the bridge? You tell me. But like, he'd have to be really yeah. fucking quick. He'd have to be the torpedo to yeah, get there. Yeah, but he's there, isn't he? He's, he stays under the bridge, and and and, and what he's got of... water. He's, he's sort of like um, just sort of uh, kicking about. He's sort of like treading water waiting waiting for it to happen <laughs> waiting for the for the for the golden shower well we need more clarity from my yim yam brethren about this but yeah mm. he, he oh, the, the point is most of the this. most of the descriptions i've read because i also said that he wades away in the water um he actually most of the descriptions <laughs> i've read he scuttles away so <laughs> now. he's a crab is he what the fuck <laughs> which suggests to me that perhaps you know he, he gets in the water for the piss and then you know for, for the piss dream and then it, you know he, he gets himself up on the canal bank and scuttles away into the dark oh shadows of, mm. uh, of Yardley or wherever um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean it sounds like absolute bullshit to me but I think if any of our brummy <laughs> listeners can you know fill us in then you mm. know please get in touch oh mm. definitely yeah, yeah. 
Sorry, carry on. <laughs> I don't think I can, Simon. It's been on my mind, that's all. <laughs> all right, then, pulp craze youngsters. It is time to get stuck into this episode of Top of the Pops. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on Top of the Pops more than we have. Well, hello there. Good evening and welcome to Top of the Pops. And we start with the charts and Mr. Leon Hayward. It's 20 minutes past seven on Thursday, May the 1st, 1980, and Top of the Pops is cruising through its 16th year as BBC One's flagship music show, and its eighth year under the stewardship of Robin Nash, the old-school BBC lifer who looked a bit like a posh Dickie Davis. (laughs) Under his policy of changing absolutely fuck-all since he took over in 1973, Top of the Pops is still pulling down upwards of six 16 million viewers a week in 1980, but changes are afoot. Nash, who has been plate-spinning like a bastard throughout the 70s as a producer of the Basil Brush Show, Crackerjack and the Generation Game, was also promoted up to BBC Head of Variety in 1978, and something clearly has to give. We don't know it yet, pop craze youngsters, but this is the beginning of the end of his reign as the executive producer of Top of the Pops, and it's going to end sooner than anyone expected. Panel, as seasoned observers of Top of the Pops from 1973 to 1980 as we are, we can safely say that apart from a rotating cast of acts, presenters and crumpety dancers, nothing has broke and no one has fixed it. So do you think that Top of the Pops could have carried on how it is now? all the way through the 80s and beyond. I think it would have started looking increasingly ridiculous. Mm. It, it is that kind of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But but Robin Nash doesn't quite want to ever give the charts over to the young. He still mm. wants to keep a sizable part of the show uh, to keep old folks happy. He's a light entertainment man, isn't he? This is it. And like you say, give or take the change in the acts. The, I mean, this particular episode. I mean, it could have been broadcast back in 73 when he started. There's very little difference. Mm. The soon coming strike is heartbreaking um and you know episodes of are you has anyone seen my cunt served um (laughs) (laughs) you know uh, as a replacement just seems just seems scheduled just to enrage us pop fans Mm. A, a change is needed you know a wiping clean of the slate the vibe becomes completely different after he's gone. Mm. You know, we get these ideas with changes of the calendar that, you know, a new decade needs a new vibe. I mean, I'm not sure that's particularly why, but yeah, I think it would have started looking increasingly ridiculous and also just not up to the job of reflecting how exciting pop becomes, Mm. you know, uh, uh, particularly in the early years. It's one of those counterfactual things that, you know, we'll, we'll never know, but it's it's fun to debate um, mm. whether things would have stayed the same had we not entered the age of Yellow Hurl. Yeah. I don't know. I felt, just watching this episode, that there were a few little, not radical changes, but um, a few sort of uh, nice little touches of production that mm. seemed like something that wouldn't have happened 10 years earlier than that. Mm. Yeah. And I'll, I'll mention them as, as we go along, but, you know, I, I wonder if possibly 
had Nash stuck around, he he might have made the show uh, evolve rather than revolve. Let's say that. In a forthcoming issue of Smash Hits, three pages were given over to the state of music TV in 1980, right. which is a common bit of space filler um, throughout yeah. the years. Mm-hmm. This one was written by our old friend Tony Parsons. <laughs> According to him, the old grey whistle test is, quote, as indispensable to Smash Hits readers as a moth eaten pair of stars and stripes loom pants with presenter Annie Nightingale resembling the runner-up in a glamorous grandmother's contest. Oh, fuck off. Get It Together has no black people on it. Features 10th rate bands who haven't realised yet that this is going to be the highlight of their careers. And Roy North is as weird as Gary Newman wants to be, but isn't. The Kenny Everett video show is pitiful and irritating and hot gossip a castigator for not having any white men or black women in them. Swap Shop is okay. Tiz Was is amateurish offensive refuse and the Saturday Banana with Bill Oddie was the best kid show ever. Chinny wreck on. <laughs> While the cast of Oh Boy should, quote, have their blue suede feet nailed to the floor and be made to watch Grease 50 times. But what did he have to say about our favourite Thursday evening fizzy pop treat? Well, he said... Top of the Pops is by far the best music programme on TV because it is content to see its role as a reflection of the charts and nothing more. And so, Top of the Pops works well right now because the charts are in a remarkably healthy state at the moment, healthier than they have been for years. Every fad and fashion of the last 10 years soaked up, assimilated, restyled into something fresh, flash and fun. I know there's rubbish around like Lena Martel, Pink Floyd and Elvis Costello, but a few one-hit wonders can't spoil it for us, can they? God knows the concoction of youth, dance and music frequently jar, grate and grind with each other on top of the pops, but still, nobody does it better, not in this country. Pains me to say it, but he's right. Yeah, I mean, he makes a few valid points there, actually. Mm. But the fact that it's Tony Parsons just pisses (laughs) me off. But yeah, 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 he he is kind of on the money with quite a lot of that. But uh, I would say that, you know, the fresh, flash and exciting thing, that just happens much more in the Yellow Hurl era, I would say, than it does with Nash. Mm. The the vibe of the show with Hurl later is completely different. It feels more 80s instantly because more of the crowd are involved. And, 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 you know, it couldn't be held in this kind of sepia holding pattern it has had for so long. It had to change. However, unbeknownst to the pop-crazed youngsters, or at least the ones not scouring page two in the newspapers for updates on industrial disputes, there's an elephant in the room. It's been there for months, and it's wearing a bow tie and brandishing a double bass with its trunk. In November of 1979, the still-new Thatcher government imposed a television licence fee of £34 a year, which was less than the £41 the BBC were asking for in order to support its existing services and plants. So on February the 28th of this year, the BBC announced their response, £130 million worth of cuts to its budget for the next two years, which included 1,500 staff members being made redundant, the axing of the Radio 2 soap opera Wagoner's Walk, and the disbanding of five of the 11 orchestras run by the Beeb. 
including the Scottish and Northern Ireland Symphony Orchestras, the Northern Radio Orchestra, the Midland Radio Orchestra and the London Studio Players. One month ago from this date, the Musicians' Union, which got into rows with Top of the Pops the minute it started broadcasting and eventually forced the BBC into making their acts mime in 1965, gave their response when they ordered their 41,000-strong membership not to play one note for the BBC until it reinstated the five orchestras by the date of May the 1st. This very day. That deadline has come and gone without incident, but the threat is still looming, and it casts a shadow over the forthcoming tapings of the Lena Zavaroni show, the Valdunica music show, the old grey whistle test, and <gasps> Top of the Pops. So, chaps, no music press, and now the possibility of no Top of the Pops. It's, it's like living in this unwiped arse of a century, isn't it? What a hellscape. <laughs> I chose a good time to be locked away in a preparatory school, let's say that. <laughs> the great pop famine of 1980 is, is upon us. Yeah, and the, and the Top of the Pops like, was particularly harsh on us young guns. You know, mm. we're not going to stay up and watch Old Grey Whistle Test or any of that. No. This was our half hour and it was gone. But for now, your host is Richard Anthony Crispian Francis <laughs> Prue Hope Weston, otherwise known as Tommy Vance, who is 18 months into his stint on the Friday Rock Show on Radio 1 on Friday evenings, with Money and Trespass in session tomorrow night, and is currently holding down Rock on Saturday in the late afternoon with Sad Cafe Live this week. Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you, Simon? I love Sad Cafe. Bring it on. Yeah. Mm. And he is making his Top of the Pops debut tonight. Oh. Having found himself as a de facto gatekeeper for a whole new movement, the new wave of British heavy metal, his stock has obviously risen in the BBC, and Robin Nash has called him up for his debut appearance on Top of the Pops, meaning he's making his first appearance as a television presenter since the last episode of Disco 2 in 1970. Tommy Vance, come on down. Wow. I love Tommy. Um, Saxon's Denim and Leather is perhaps the greatest tribute song to being a metalhead ever. Um, and one of the key lines in it is, did you listen to the radio every Friday night? Which just shows the mm. rock show's huge importance. Mm. But what's funny about Vance is that famously, in kind of metal circles, if you like, he's a guy who's got no records in his house. really yeah absolutely the thing is with the Friday Rock Show because the production team behind the show were so on it especially in the Wobberham the Friday Rock Show became something you tape because you know they'd get sessions that you wouldn't get anywhere else Mm, Um, you know bands like Merciful Fate and Diamond Head I mean those sessions are amazing and of course the time slot of the Rock Show was really crucial Friday night the night when you know normal functioning people are out but the geeks and the freaks and the weirdos who were kind of into the Wobberham probably weren't out. <laughs> I love Tommy Vance, mainly because he was able, I mean, in a sense, to con us into thinking he had a genuine fondness for heavy metal. I don't think Tommy Vance is that fussed about music. He loves radio. Mm. But he, he repositioned the rock show in as much as, you know, with Alan Freeman, you kind of got the feeling that essentially he was a prog classical head who mm. could be forced to play some metal. 
Whereas whenever Tommy Vance was in the chat, you really did get very little prog and a hell of a lot of metal, especially mm. new bands, especially in the Wobbaham alongside the big names. And he started doing stuff that, I don't know, you know later on in the 80s that there comes that period where old BBC sessions start getting heard again, mm. um, like Jimi Hendrix sessions and stuff like that. In the early 80s, this stuff was locked away and and unheard. And when he Mm. dipped back into Metal's past, he dug into archives that kind of nobody else had. Right. You know, so it was certainly pre the period where Sessions got repackaged. So hearing original Sessions for like Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, you know, that was amazing. Oh, yeah. And and it's testament to how respected Tommy Vance was in the scene that he was able to get, you know, Samson and Saxon and all these other bands to do his jingles and stuff. Mm. Um, He wasn't the only conduit in the Wobbaham. I mean, it got on the airwaves in various ways. Peely played a lot. You know, Alan Freeman played... Even Andy Peebles played the odd Maiden track. But it was... The the crucial thing is with Vance, it didn't matter whether he was into the music or not. He put it over the best. You know, that's crucial. Uh, His voice is just... You know, it's just a really cool voice for for, for playing rock music. But, you know, the credit really for the Friday Rock Show needs to go to the producer, I think, Teddy Wilson, who's very in touch with with the Wobham scene. Vance just had the coolest voice to put it across. But it did become a weekly, you know, tapable event. Mm. It, It defined, if you're a metal fan, what you buy and it defines your whole week. And he'd get fucking amazing stuff. I remember him getting, like, acetates from Metallica you know, sent over by Metallic. Mm. To have him on top of the pops is huge. And we shouldn't be under any illusions that the British heavy metal bands or the new wave British heavy metal bands, rather. For them, top of the pops was not just some, something to smirk about or joke about. These are guys who basically, they had their lives changed by glam rock. You know, when you dig into these people, Def mm. Leppard, Maiden, etc., they're massive glam rock fans in the early 70s. And Top of the Pops is a huge show for them. It's a big moment for them. Yeah. Crucially, because Tommy's got this wide experience with music, if you like, when he steps into pop, when he does the... You know, when Peely does Top of the Pops, he kind of takes the piss. Mm. When Tommy Vance steps into pop, his experience means he never looks down on it. Yes. So, uh, you know, I always love Tommy, uh, not only in the Friday Rock show, but yeah, he's always a good TOTP presenter as well, I think. I mean, this is the fourth episode we've done that features a debut performance by a Radio 1 DJ. Simon Parkin and Andy Peebles had an absolute mare while mm. Peter Powell hit the ground haying. <laughs> and it won't surprise or spoiler anything if I say that Vance gets up to speed right from the off, almost as if he's been doing this shit all the way through the 70s. Well, yeah. I mean, dig into Tommy Vance's life. I mean, he, he bought singles out in the 60s, Stones covers and stuff. He's been heavily immersed in presenting and radio and all of that for a long, long time before he actually steps into the TOTP chair. Mm. And he's a consummate professional. Mm. He's a sl- not slick, but he's as, in a weird way, comforting as Kid Jensen. He's just on it. Yeah. Simon, would you have known who Tommy Vance was when he popped up on Top of the Pops if you'd have seen this episode? No, I don't think I would because he was no. very much, I mean, he was TV on the radio, wasn't he? He was, a, he was the, the radio yeah, guy. Yeah, I yeah, wasn't yeah, up on a yeah. Friday night listening to heavy metal because I was out partying at the age of 12. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, or, or should we call him rock expert Tommy Vance? But the thing is, <laughs> this is really interesting because he's not a rock expert, is he? From what, from what Neil's no. saying, that... 
I didn't realise that. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah we, we talked about Tommy Vance and Chart Music 31. And uh, I, I yes. remember I, I said I liked him for saying that the greatest moment of his life was going on stage at Donington and the entire crowd mm. chanting, Tommy is a wanker, which I think sp- speaks well <laughs> of him. And we also had a good laugh at his brass eye appearance. And uh, when we did a Q&A, um, <laughs> uh, I named him as one of the TOTP presenters I'd most like to have a pint of foaming nut brown ale with. And, um, yes. and I stand by that, you know. The thing with Tommy Vance yeah. is, he is a sleazy old dinosaur, right? The king of the orgies. Oh, bloody hell. Well, um, you can't help liking him because he didn't, as far as we know, sexually assault anyone, which is a very low bar no. for likability, isn't it? But, you know, here we yes. are. Mm. Um, mm. He did plenty of sexism, of course. Um <laughs> Michael Han wrote a piece about Tommy in The Guardian a while ago uh, when right. he mentioned a Top of the Pops from October 1980 in which Tommy said to a red leather-clad Susie Quattro, I like you in that gear, um, to which Susie muttered, weird guy. And then he, he tried he tried to buy Therese Bazaar from Dollar off David Van Day, like she was his property. Yes. He goes, how much? Yes, he uh, did. And, uh, I mean, that is, it's pretty grim. David Van Day would have fucking sold her as oh, well he as he could have done. He just sold her with some fried onion and ketchup on top, definitely. Um, yes. It's... Uh, it's easy for men like us to laugh for that kind of sexism from a position of male privilege. But it is hilarious at four decades distance in a sort of real life partridge way, because he is quite partridge. Mm. Also, I, I reckon he'd have been good value for a pint, because as Neil was sort of alluding to, he had one of those mad lives that the DJs of his generation all seem to have, you know, working on pirate ships and going to work yeah. in America and all that. Mm. For start, yeah. there, there's that whole thing where Tommy Vance isn't his real name, as as you mentioned. Yes. I'm sure we dealt with this before, but, you know, he had more names than Boris Johnson. Um, it's like, mm. um, you know, <laughs> supposedly the story is he turned up at KOL in Seattle in 1964, and he was stepping yes. in for another presenter who was called Tommy Vance, who pulled out yeah. the last minute, and the jingles had already been recorded. So Richard mm. uh, said he'd become Tommy, and he said, for that kind of money, you can call me what you like, mate. <laughs> and he only ended up uh, back in the UK to dodge the draft of the Vietnam War. And, and of course, yeah. he's, he's Ricky Storm. Ricky Storm, what a name, fucking hell, in, in Slade <laughs> in Flame. He should have taken that name and run with it, I reckon. Yes. And yeah. here we see him, um, 1980, the New Wave era. He looks ridiculous in the New Wave era. But to be fair, <laughs> most presenters of Top of the Pops looked ridiculous in the New Wave era. Yes. His hair literally looks like a bell here. And mm. he's, he's wearing the, the, the Foster Grant glasses and, and white... Yes. Who's yeah. on Windcheater of a 60-year-old divorced nan on a cruise holiday. Um, <laughs> but he is in his element for once on this episode for musical reasons, which we'll come to later, yeah. I guess. How would Tommy Vance have coped in the Vietnam War, do you think? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Maybe he'd have been the sort of Robin Williams character, but with a much deeper voice. Yeah. You know? Yes. Good morning, Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. He's also been inducted into Kenny Everett's worst records of all time show on Capital Radio last month, getting to number 17 with his cover of Summertime. He's in very illustrious company there because Here Today, Gone Tomorrow by Tony Blackburn's at number 20. Yeah. Just Like That by David Hamilton's at number nine. And of course, at number one, is 
is Dance With Me by Reginald Bose and Kay. <laughs> and later this year, he's going to deploy every erg of his expertise when he appears on an episode of Metal Mickey as a DJ, <laughs> when the robot overlord of Saturday Tea Time launches a music career but gets ripped off by his manager, who's played by James Smiler, who went on to be the plastic surgeon in Return to Eden and the nice lawyer in Prisoner Soul Blockade. So, yeah, it's all happening for Tommy right now. But I like that about him. It's not that so much that he gives anything a go, but he'll give anything paid a go. <laughs> yes. That's completely different to the kind of greasy careerism of somebody like Edmonds. Mm. I, th- I think Tommy Vance, he's got no overinflated ideas about himself. And he will work for food, basically, <laughs> um, which means him cropping up on all of this stuff. But he's been doing this. Yeah, he, he's been picking up work here and there for a good 20 years. So yeah. I, I like that kind of attitude. Yeah, I kind of respect that as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm. Rather than the kind of pomposity that you get from other TOTP presenters. Do you know the other sitcom that he appeared in as a DJ? No. The Desperate Hours, the Steptoe and Son episode with Leonard Rossiter. Fucking hell. Oh. No. Wow. Yes. So uh, he, he was a versatile actor then. He played. Yes. <laughs> a DJ, a DJ, and a DJ. Yeah. We're hit with the sight of our host in a silvery white bomber jacket with red trim that makes him look well chegular, <laughs> leaning on a rail, flanked by a backlit sign over his shoulder that looks like a carving of a pumpkin and appears to read Tommy Vons. Yeah, someone's <laughs> fucked up on that area, haven't they? After an introduction which yields nothing in the way of nonsense, we're lobbed into the top 30 rundown and don't push it, don't force it by Leon Haywood. Born in Houston in 1942, Otha Leon Haywood learned to play piano at the age of three, played in a local band in his teens, was a regular member of Guitar Slim's band and moved to Los Angeles at the age of 18, where he linked up with the saxophonist Big Jay McNeely, played in assorted session bands, put out a solo single and ended up playing keyboards in Sam Cooke's band. When Cook died in late 1964, Haywood recommenced his solo career, passing through several regional labels before signing to Atlantic in the late 60s. But it wasn't until the mid-70s that he finally scored a major hit when I Want to Do Something Freaky to You got to number 15 on the Billboard chart. This single... The follow-up to Parte, which failed to chart here like all his previous releases, got to number two in the American R&B chart and number 49 on the Billboard chart. And when it came out here in the middle of March, it entered the chart at number 56, then soared to number 35. A week later, when it moved up another five places to number 30, it was used as a playout music on top of the pops. And a week later, it was emoted to by Legs and Co. After it was played over the chart rundown a fortnight ago, it moved up two places to number 12. And this week, even though it hasn't moved, it's been wheeled out as the rundown music again for its fourth go-around on top of the pops. Whoa, four times 
and we still haven't seen the poor sod. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, that means we had no idea what he looked like. He could have been young, he could have been old. And mm. yeah. the thing with so many disco acts and funk acts from this era is how often you find out that they'd actually be making music since the 50s, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. They were there at the very birth of soul. Mm. But in terms of chart recognition, they had a very slow burn. Um, we were talking earlier about live albums, right? Um, yeah. Generally, I'm not a fan, but there are exceptions. One of them is Sam Cooke, live at the Harlem Square Club, 1963. Oh, yes. extraordinary, captivating performance, if anyone's not heard it. Mm. Um, now, sadly, um, and, you know, because it'd be really neat if Leon Hayward was on that record. He did not play mm. on, on that album. Uh. But, you know, as you say, he was in Sam Cooke's backing band. And the fact that Sam Cooke died in 1964 tells you how long Leon Hayward had already been around by the time we'd heard of him in the UK. Mm. I would say we didn't really hear of him in the UK in the 70s, unless you were a real soul aficionado. Because yeah. you mentioned, I want to do something freaky to you. Um, yes. That was a hit in America, um, and of course, later sampled by Dr. Dre on Nothing But a G Thing. Oh, imagine pants people dancing to that. Man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> oh fucking hell. Um, but by the time Don't Push It, Don't Force It came out, his KY Jelly classic, um, he was 38. <laughs> his pegging anthem. Yeah. He was 38 by the time this comes out. But because we haven't seen him yet on Top of the Pops, you, you could have told me he was 21 and I'd have believed it yeah. until, yeah, yeah, yeah. until I researched it for chart music. And that's the thing with disco. Disco is a very forgiving um, genre, um, age-wise. Mm. Um, if you had yeah. the pipes and you had the chops, you were allowed to be a disco star, however yes. old you were, pretty much. I mean, it's a nice story, Haywards, because it, it's it's like the lyrics to Do You Know the Way to San Jose or something. You know, mm. it, it's kind of, LA is a great big freeway, put 100 down. He goes there, aged 18, with the car wash job and all the rest of it. And he gets mistreated, really, by an awful lot of record companies until he has that hit with, I want to do something freaky with you. Pete, I remember reading an interview with with Pete Jones, who was one of Grandmaster Flash's big DJ inspirations. And he spoke in interviews about how much Leon Haywood he would play, play an awful lot. Um, uh, It was just really suitable Mm. for those kind of parties. Um, I I think this is a great record, by the way. I mean, Mm. it's been sampled a lot, I suspect. Respect, but maybe in those pre-sample clearance days that don't show up on who sampled because yes. there's so many textures here that, that I've heard um, this might be well this is his last hit age 38 like Simon said but he actually then I mean there's a kind of happy ending because he then settles into a kind of happy writing production career including writing She's a Bad Mama Jammer in 81 and dies Gee, peacefully oh. Yeah, absolutely. And dies peacefully in his sleep in 2016. So a, a, a nice sort of rags to riches tale. It's a good record, though, this. Perfect for, for the chart rundown. Yes. Um, I would say the song shares the same underlying riff as You Can Do It by Al Hudson and Partners yes. from 1979. Yes, it really does. It's two notes very close together, semitone interval. And you could argue that that is just a staple trope of funk or R&B. But it does sound like a blatant rip-off to me. But maybe he was doomed to a life of imitation in a way. Um, as you mentioned, his real name was Other Leon Hayward, mm. as if his parents were setting him up for a life of underachieving and being overshadowed. He, he's, <laughs> he's not even the main person with his name. He's not the mm. New Zealand field hockey player he's the other Leon Hayward (laughs) but self-deprecation was hardwired into him like the follow-up to this single was if you're looking for a night of fun look past Mm. me I'm not the one which you know it might have been intended to signify his credentials as you know long-term husband material but it basically screams I'm a crap shag you know and and also Mm. it has the same two note interval by the way it's very much his dance the kung fu Mm. so I would say (laughs) 
Don't Push It, Don't Force It is not an outstanding example of its genre, but it's pretty good. And if it came out now, out of the blue, and it was by Bruno Mars or The Weeknd or Anderson Park or whoever, we'd be mm. falling over ourselves to hail it oh, as, yeah. as the return yeah, of the yeah. groove or something. In 1980, yes. we, we were spoiled for choice. And, yes, and uh, so. you know, as, as Neil said, you know, uh, he, he, did sort of contribute his fair share because she's a bad mama jammer. She's built, she's stacked by Carl Carlton. The Mazophiliac anthem is an absolute yes. banger. So, <laughs> yeah, yes, fair play. Imagine Legs and Co dancing to that. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, this song is, is very post disco and also a very anonymous artist to a British audience. So, there's only three places this is going on top of the pops mm. at the end of some shots of the lights, in the middle over some shots of Legs and Co's arses, or here over some pictures of some scowly muso yeah. shall we shall we do the chart pace, oh, yes. chaps? Oh, yeah. what what did we find this week i'm never keen on the chart rundown can i just say being right at the top of the show no um and no. it immediately deflates any suspense or momentum the show yeah. might have been able to drum up through its running mm. time um the, the photos i picked out if you don't mind me going first um Bad Manners, there's uh, yes. such an old photo of Bad Manners yes, that Buster Blood Vessel had hair. What the fuck? Bad Manners in a photo that's been so badly tinted that they look like they're floating in a tank of formaldehyde <laughs> in an art space. <laughs> Johnny Logan looks weirdly terrifying, like he's being played by Javier Bardem circa No, no Country <laughs> for Old Men. You know, yes. I thought Bobby Thurston was even more terrifying, a face from a Halloween mask. You know, mm. I know there's a bit of a Rosa Parks situation with UB. 40, all the black members being forced yes. to stand at the back. Mm. I thought it was a yes. bit odd. But the one that really stood out for me, I don't know if, <laughs> I mean, maybe you'll agree with me here. Sky. Sky yes. look an absolute oh, God, fucking yeah. state. They look like the Venn. Yes, they do. They look like the Venn diagram intersection of Nambler and Camera. <laughs> Cambler. <laughs> I've got them as um, looking like they've been queuing outside WH Smith's all night to be the first to buy a Sinclair ZX8. <laughs> you said Scowly Owl. I don't reckon there's that many scowly shots. Well, the, bo- well, there's the body snatches for me. Uh, the yeah, the body snatches who- look really fucking oh, pissed yeah. off. They're like they've all come round your ass and standing in your fucking doorway waiting to have it out with you. Oh yeah, that's committed non-smiling. B. A. Cunterson is pointing and shouting as if he's recreating the cover of "Tell Us the Truth" by Sham Sixty Nine. Sad cafe being hugged by a giant Tommy Boyd lookalike. <laughs> Someone in the band is fucking huge. Sad Cafe revealing their new bassist, Robert Wadlow. <laughs> Straight from the Guinness Book of Records. Indeed. Yeah. All the picks have been wedged into a box that's been placed at top right, with the names and numbers flaring off into the distance, mm. like when you point a camcorder at the telly. Yeah. Which is a bit disorientating, really. It's not the kind of thing you want on Thursday tea time. And it does feel very 70s, doesn't it? You're right, yeah. so yeah, yeah. Really does. Now, chaps, yeah. we've discussed in the preamble the tribalism of the pop craze youth around about this time, which was borne out every time I went to one of the many youth clubs I patronised. Um, the older kids were almost exclusively punks or punk adjacent. There were loads of plastic mods like me. There was a load of rude boys in Arrington's. But there was also a smattering of youths who were into what we now call post-disco. And seeing as there wasn't much in the way of Leon Haywood and Tom Brown badges or patches or comb holders at Pendulum Records. Their only way of indicating their fealty to the groove was by wearing what was known on our estate as a funky belt. Does that ring any bells with you? No. Funky belt? Not at all. Right, it's one of them overlong belts, usually red, where the the end used to hang down like a a flat, fabric-y cock. (laughs) 
And they were known as funky belts round our way because everyone who's into funk wore them. Right. And I tried to discover the proper term for them belts on Google, but yeah. I typed in belt with hanging end and mm. Google directed me to the phone number of the Samaritans. So. <laughs> oh, my God. So here's a question for the pop creation. Says, what did you call a funky belt in 1980? And was it just a Nottingham thing? Fucking no. Yeah. Maybe so. Anyway, I had a mate, uh, Stephen Burbage, rest in peace, and he was well into this sort of stuff. And every time it came on at the youth clubs, I would always make a point of saying words to the effect of, woohoo, funky, and waving my hand in front of my nose to denote that there was a foul whiff. And he would always make a point of panning me. So I eventually stopped doing that. And I also eventually realised that this sort of music kind of won out in the early 80s in the end, didn't it? Of all the music we're going to hear on this episode, of Top of the Pops. It's stuff like this that's going to percolate and permeate the rest of the 80s a bit more than the other stuff, don't that's you think? true, it's true. And it seemed to sort of um, be um, to one side of or float above tribalism um, mm. because nobody in my school was, was listening to this. They certainly weren't dressing like that. Mm. There were no mm. funky belts uh, in Barry, no. I'll tell you that much. Um, <laughs> but, you know, obviously somebody was buying these records. I think I always assumed it was older brothers and older sisters. It was people yes. in their late teens, early 20s, who were actually of the age to be going out to nightclubs. Whereas, mm. you know, it, it didn't have much currency in the in the playground. Mm. We all know now with hindsight, we've all seen documentaries about that kind of Essex soul scene. Yes, which we'll come to later. So we know that there was a subculture Culture, but it didn't percolate down to to sort of my my generation in school. I don't know about you. Mm. Yeah, the textures you hear here, it's it's kind of pre-electro, and it's it's quite nicely tooled. So these are the sounds that will crop up as the decade goes on a lot more than perhaps some of the other things we're going to hear. So a week later, don't push it, don't force it. Dropped seven places to number nineteen. The follow-up. If you're looking for a night of fun, look past me, I'm not the one. Failed to chart, and he never pushed or forced anything else into the UK chart again. <laughs> a year later, he wrote and produced She's a Bad Mama Jammer, She's Built, She's Stacked for Carl Colton, which got to number 34 in August of 1981. And he spent the rest of the decade splitting his time between diminishing returns on his solo career and setting up his own blues label. And yes, he died in 2016 at the age of 74. <laughs> As is the style of Top of the Pops in the mid-80s, the number one act fades out and we're immediately plunged into the first band with no introduction, so I'll give them one. It's This World of Water by New Music. Formed in Wimbledon in 1977, New Music were a group consisting of Nick Straker, who had been an original member of the reggae band Matumbi in the early 70s, and a backing musician for Limmy out of family cooking when he went solo, Tony Mansfield, who was originally Limmy's roadie, who formed a musical partnership with Straker, and Clive Gates, who was in a prog band with Mansfield in the early 70s. 
1979, the group gained a record deal with GTO, but lost Straker, who formed his own band, which Mansfield chipped in with every now and then. Their debut single, Straight Lines, entered the chart at number 70 in October 1979, and two weeks later, while it was bobbing around at number 61, they were gifted an appearance on Top of the Pops, but it only ended up at number 53. The follow-up, Living by Numbers, fared much better thanks to loads of Radio 1 airplay and got to number 13 in February of this year. This single, the third cut from their debut LP from A to B, which came out today, entered the chart at number 59, and this week it soared 31 places to number 38, and here they are in the studio. And chaps, finally, new music, enter the hallowed portals of chart music. Welcome in, lads. Indeed, indeed. I've been listening to that album from A to B mm. um, quite a lot recently in preparation for this. Good. I remember once reading an interview with Saint Etienne or Simon Reynolds where Reynolds asked them, you know, uh, what, what kind of things they were listening to that may be a bit off the beaten track and they mentioned From A to B by New Music. Mm. Reynolds thought they were joking. Mm. He thought it was so obviously bad and, uh, and you know, just beyond the pale that they were just being uh, arch and being kitsch mm. but they were really sincere about it and it is a really good album. Yeah. What I loved about New Music was that they sounded so optimistic about the future. Mm. You mentioned Straight Lines. It's the opening track on the album, and it has a, a verse that goes, it's part of the service that carries you on ahead. There's only the one way. The ticket is on your head. With robot precision, we're going to be doing just fine. So here we are, here we go, moving in one straight line. Mm. right? And you know how you're always expecting a twist with anything that depicts the future, you know, a dark dystopian mm. undercurrent, which somehow is meant to make it more valid. There's only the very slightest traces of that with new music. And I think if you choose to listen to it in a certain way, there's none of that. Mm. There's another track called Science that goes... And you generate and you radiate solutions everywhere. It's also scientific, which is almost Kraftwerk-like. In, mm. But even Kraftwerk, you know, things like uh, radioactivity, it's kind of sinister. I don't think you really get that with new music. No. Even Living by Numbers, you know, breakthrough hit, all about humanity being classified and digitised and enumerated. Mm. Sounds really cheerful about it, I think. Yes. <laughs> and even this song, This World of Water about rising sea levels is, mm. you know, strangely optimistic. Uh, you can drown, but you still survive. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm living in a world of water myself at the moment, right? <laughs> because uh, the, the rubber seal on our French windows is fucked. Oh, so every no. time it rains, yeah, every time it rains, the back of the living room carpet gets flooded. No. But um, I, I still love it as I loved it then. Um, it just kind of sparkles. Even those um, pinky and perky backing vocals, which yes. ought to be annoying, you know, uh, you can swim to the other. Side, that thing <laughs> somehow adds to it yeah the single after this sanctuary is a work of actual genius mm. should have been a number one instead it got to number 31 yeah and and i can only put that down to the abrupt ending uh, which they put on it, which makes disc jockeys look like twats. It's the twat maker. <laughs> yeah. So uh, radio stations were were reluctant to play it. And also, um, I suppose my theory for why they never became really massive, with the best will in the world, and with the proviso that I realise people who are no oil paintings themselves <laughs> shouldn't throw stones in glass houses. There's a reason why new music never became pop pinups and, say, Depeche Mode did. Mm. They look like boffins in their white lab coats. I think yeah. boffins is 
the word. And the main man, Tony Mansfield, looks like Russell Grant, who's been on a diet that has semi-worked. <laughs> he doesn't look like a pop star because he isn't one. He's 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 a producer. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's funny that you, you you mentioned the optimism of the music. I mean, at the time, they're very much portrayed as quite doomy new music, um, mm. you know, by the critics. But this is it. It, it. It's the thing. I mean, you know us music critics, and I'm fairly sure I speak for Pricey here too. We love having theories about pop, about what works and what doesn't. Mm. But, of, of course, pop is far too variegated a form to ever slot neatly into those theories. And usually the exceptions are so numerous that they disprove the rule. With new music, they kind of fall into one of my theories. Well, it's not my theory necessarily. I have a rule that, you know, far too much pop is left to fucking musicians. Mm. In my ever insatiable hunger for the hand that feeds, I am waiting to stop teaching one day so that I can write the piece about the major malfunction of music teaching in this country, that it's based around musicians. And... You know, this is why we get the fucking Alt-Js and the Folds and all of these horrifically competent bands mm. who always seem to emerge from educational systems around music, those places that make the criminal sort of tactical error of putting musicians in touch with other musicians mm. without introducing any kind of risk or non-musical impulse into things. Mm. Now, this is a problem that's picked up by contemporary reviews of new music at the time the muse-owners of them because they are you know they're muse in a david hetworth interview in smash it's earlier in 1980 the band are, are usually taciturn about their past they don't mm. want to reveal what sessions they've worked on and stuff which is odd because now you know session work would be a calling card almost yeah um although they do admit the buggles connection <laughs> hetworth ends up taking against them precisely because of their doominess and their professionalism. And there's also a review in the Sounds issue that we were talking about, um, a review of the album by Betty Page. She loves it, mm. and she, but, but she has to get over an awful lot of stuff in the first few paragraphs. You know, right. don't hate them because they want to get in the charts. Don't hate them because they're musicians. And, and like Simon says, visually... <laughs> they're not exactly captivating here. No. Tony Mansfield, clearly the main guy here. And he and the drummer play it pretty straight. The bass player just has this kind of shit-eating grin on. Mm. And the keyboard player is just a total dick. <laughs> yes, I mean, that's yes. The, the band do suffer from overperformative keyboard player syndrome. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. He's kind of jumping around, not touching the keyboard. Loads of wacky, zany, you might even say, mm. expressions. Lots of swimming motions. Yeah, yeah, that as well. I mean, as it is, this slightly sort of, what, smug conflation of prog and pop played by super competent, dull-looking people. In a weird way, it's oddly premonition of both what current indie pop sounds like and also how Howard Jones et al. would come and sort of spoil new pop with their competence in a few years. Mm. Um, and it's very revealing how even the keyboardists' wackyisms, which I think might be a response to previous criticism of him and a previous appearance um, on telly just being boring with uh, his hand in his pocket. Right. Yeah? So he's being deliberately wacky. You know, they can't stop the audience looking away from the band and backwards. And, and, and yet and yet, I haven't stopped singing this song all week. It's catchy as fuck. Me neither. You know, and, and what Simon said about the album means that I must investigate it. I mean, it's good when pop theories fall apart. Um, mm. I sort of came to this thing, oh, what a bunch of musos, this isn't going to work. But no, it really does work. Mm. Um, I have in my hand a sealed envelope like Darren Brown, and I'm going to rip it open now. Hang on. <laughs> And uh, inside the envelope, there's a folded piece of paper. Hang on. 
<laughs> and uh, on that piece of paper, I have written "Shaking Buggles" slash yes! "Shaking oh, Trevor Horn." Right? Yes. Because I reckoned, yes. I reckoned, if I didn't say that, one of you was gonna. And uh, yes, that was the next thing I was gonna uh, say. So, so Neil mentioned the Buggles, and I, yeah, I predicted you probably would. Because new music had a similar vibe to the yes. Buggles on "Video Killed the Radio Star." In both cases. It's people heralding the new age who were a little bit too old to truly be mm. part of it. Mm. Trevor Horn was 30. Tony Mansfield was 25, which isn't that old, but he looks older. God. Um, He's a bit of a Martin out oh, of Brotherhood of Man, isn't Brotherhood he? Brotherhood of Man, yeah. But for comparison, Steve Strange, who was genuinely part of this new age, his coming age, mm. was 20. And those five years made yes. a massive difference. But in terms of, you know, shaking Buggles, shaking Trevor Horn, Tony Mansfield wasn't that far behind Trevor Horn in terms of quality. Mm. My favourite productions of his are two non-hits, actually. Um, Aztec Camera, Walk Out to Winter, and Vicious Pink, Can't You See? Right. But his mortgage and his pension would probably have been paid by aha take on me and captain sensible happy tour yes so go on what what were you going to say about the whole buggles bit well i was going to say that they're uncharitably seen at the time as shaking buggles and there are similarities but to my mind new music are miles better than the buggles well can i just clarify i mean i was under the impression that phil towner did play drums on video kill the radio star oh that's interesting tony mansfield put this band together it's a kind of confection in a way he was doing everything but he wanted to get out of the studio wanted to start playing live and making appearances because he wanted to get in the charts and hired these people. Phil Towner, I think, was a session guy, but he did play drums on Video Killed the Radio Star, and he's also the drummer here. And he's up front. Do you notice mm, this? Yeah. And yeah. not for the last time in this episode, having a drummer up front. Yes. It's a bit of a running theme in this episode. I remember when The Jam stuck Rick Buckler up front for their final mm. ever Top of the Pops mm. appearance with Beat Surrender. Um, it was a big deal. Everyone talked about it at the time, but only three years earlier, every fucker was doing it, it turns out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you mentioned the keyboardist. He is acting up. Mm too much isn't he yeah. fucking gurning and mugging and prancing about he fancies himself as a bit of a new Rick Wakeman I think Ooh. but the thing is I think I might have enjoyed it at the time yeah, because I was yeah. a child yeah. um, much, much as it pisses me off now um, unlike the song which you know I lo- loved it then love it now another thing that I noticed um, and I, I sort of alluded to this when we were talking about the Robin Nash era that there are a lot of special effects in this episode yes. and also visual effects um, but the SFX start right here with actual water yes running down a pane of glass through which a camera sees everything. Yeah, the blue screened it, haven't they? Because it shows up on their white suits. The band are all yeah. wearing white suits, really cheap-looking mm. white suits with pink shirts. And yes, the blue screened them, as was the style back then. And it's hard to know if that's deliberate, you know, if, if, if they knew that the little raindrops are going to show up on the clothing or if it's a happy accident mm. but it looks really cool I yes. think even the uh, bird of paradise flower yes. on the keyboard uh, is a nice touch because that references the sleeve of Indeed. from A to B maybe the band brought it with them but I like to imagine that you know a junior BBC runner was sent out to dash around all the florists in the shepherd's <laughs> bush area to find work but yeah good start yeah strong so the following week this world of water jumped seven places to number 31 but the week after that it dropped one place to number 32 the follow-up sanctuary also got to number 31 for two non-consecutive weeks in late july early august of this year and although they released two more lps and five more singles none of them came anywhere near the chart and they split up in 1982 
As mentioned in an earlier episode of Chart Music, Tony Mansfield buried his head into the operating manual of the Fairlight CMI and ended up behind the keyboards or whatever instead of faders for the likes of Captain Sensible, the B-52s, After the Fire, Vicious Pink and Jean-Paul Gaultier. Oh, and Aha, of course. But yeah, that says it all, doesn't it? You know, Trevor Horn produced Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Tony Mansfield produced a relaxed cover by Captain Sensible. Now here's a new single by a man who started in America as a jazz drummer. Believe it or not, he's turned his arts in that way into really good disco music. Narada Michael Walden and the song called I Should Have Loved You. We're hit with a close-up of Vance under some green spotlights on his own as he tells us of his relief that he didn't spoil his Top of the Pops debut by drowning during the first performance. Then he tells us about a jazz drummer who turned his arts in that way into some really good disco music. It's I Should Have Loved You by Narada Michael Walden. Or as he says it, I should have loved you. (laughs) Yes. It's a really weird intonation. It's like when the bloke from Cheap Trick says, I want you to want me at the start of that live single, you know. Mm. He did tell an awful joke in that preamble as well. Just just for a moment, he goes, I thought I was going to drown there, but mm. luckily I haven't. Uh, he, he, <laughs> he, he reads it with all the conviction of your auntie reading out the joke from a Christmas cracker when she's left to mm. five vocals at home. <laughs> I mean, fuck me. We've already covered NMW in chart music number 53 when he took Divine Emotions to number eight in May of 1988, but this single from the former drummer of the Mahavishnu Orchestra is the follow-up to Tonight I'm Alright, which got to number 34 in March of this year. It's the second cut from his fourth solo LP, The Dance of Life, which came out in America last year, and it got to number four in the US R&B chart in late 1979. It entered the chart last week at number 35, and this week it's soared 16 places to number 19. He's currently in America working on his next LP, so here's a clip from his appearance in Soul Train last year. And, oh, chaps, any chance to see Soul Train on top of the pops is always welcome, isn't it? Oh, indeed. Absolutely. Although, I mean, the actual amount of audience we get is kind of heart-rendingly brief, really. Mm. Let's go back to that Smash Hits article by Tony Parsons, everyone, because he had a word or two to say about Soul Train. All right. Top of the Pops should be moving towards where Soul Train, a show for black music in America, is already. It's slick, polished and sharp. The live acts are good and the young people dancing in the studio don't look like they're supervised or herded around like cackle so they don't get in the way of camera three or so that Ken Dodd's got an audience. They look as though they're having a good time and they act like the programme belongs to them. Top of the Pops heading in this direction would be the promise of perfection a multi-racial pop slot. 
He does go on to mention that Top of the Pops is currently the only place that you can see black musicians on British television at the moment. So, yeah, fucking hell. Two for two, Tony Parsons. What's going on? <laughs> He's right uh, in the, um, the the zoo wankers on Soul Train aren't wankers. They can actually no. dance. Mm. Yes. There's people up on the podiums. Yeah. And it is it is quite exotic and exciting to see this clip of America. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's the point. I mean, we are Britain. We can't have nice things. Um, no. <laughs> so, you know, that was never going to... I understand where he's coming from, but it was never going to happen because, I mean, of course, the kids in the Top of the Pop studio every week have watched Top of the Pops all their life and they know what you do. You go and you watch what's on stage rather than dance with each other. Yes, get out of the way of the cameras. Indeed. Channel 4 in a few years' time had a go at doing their own Soul Train presented by Jeffrey Daniel and it just didn't work. Mm. Yeah. But I always wonder with Soul Train, what, what was the vetting procedure for being in the audience? Because they look so fucking cool dancing to this record and it's just... they all all look cool. Yeah, um, it can't just be randoms off the street. There must yeah, have been yeah, a bit of a yeah, sort of yeah. Studio 54 situation. Trawling the clubs, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, everything on Soul Train is a complete opposite to Top of the Pops in 1980. Everything's bright and open. Mm. There's a wide stage. There's a huge studio. There's loads of lights on both band and audience. And basically loads of space for everyone to dance and cavort and put themselves over. Yeah, and colour and light and not that yeah. oppressive dankness you get from uh, mm. Top of the Pops. Yeah, I mean, everyone on it um particularly in this clip just looks like they're having the best time and yes and it is infectious i mean when this song came on when i was watching this episode i was just like fucking yes mm. yeah it was just one of those moments occasionally when we're doing chart music you're watching the tltp in question and just a song comes on and you're like fucking brilliant um i think uh you know you guys uh, neil and sarah had that with dead ringer for love mm. yes and i kind of had a little taste of that with this i really did Ooh. it just really gave me a lift you know um mm. i know previously on Chart Music 53 when we talked about um, Narada yes uh, I, I sort of disparaged, semi-disparagingly sort of described him as shaking Jacko and a pound land Nile Rogers, which mm. is more to do with kind of how I perceived him at the time because I didn't really yes. know much about him. Yeah. But he, he is obviously just fucking phenomenal. Uh, I don't think I even knew when I was a kid that he was a drummer, a singing drummer, because I didn't see this episode at the time. Mm. I, I just thought he was, you know, a, a singing guy. But mm. this this record, it's just a fucking banger, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, when we saw him on that episode in Top of the Pops in 1988, him and his his live youthful mates were going about in baseball caps and black spandex like they were in Janet Jackson's step class but yeah, yeah. Mm. here it's a bit different isn't it yeah 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 the 80s haven't really arrived for this band just yet have they <laughs> but but in a good way you yes. know the band just look extraordinary yes the, they the, do. Guy, the guy i was obsessed with is a sax player right mm. who is basically as far as i'm concerned he is the peepoo of of the whole narada michael <laughs> walton setup he looks like the leather man from the village people yes. who has borrowed farrah Fawcett major's hair yes uh, it's just extraordinary and he's got these sort of silk trousers like one of charlie's angels oh. he's mark russo of the Sea America Horns, mm, and yeah. uh, uh, he he was in the jazz fusion band the Yellow Jackets for a while, and he played on uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston, which of course was a Narada uh, production. Uh, these days he he tours with the Doobie Brothers, <laughs> no, and no surprise there. You just look at him; he looks like one of the fucking Doobie Brothers and Chicago. Mm. But when it just came on, I thought, fucking brilliant! What a seventies looking man in the best possible yeah, way. What a oh, moustache! Yeah. Fucking what hell! What a yeah. What a touch! He's this weird comedy of kind of Obelix from the Asterix comic. <laughs> That's it. And he's got these yes. y- sort of yacht rock clothes on with this big porn star tash. The kind of face, really, that you only see on ogres in Children's Illustrated Bibles. <laughs> but he's really compelling. But the whole band is, you know? The trombonist... Yes. 
just is Lester from The Wire. Yes. I think. Ah, and, and, you yeah. know, and, and the guitarist um, also caught my eye. I mean, like Walden, he's dressed yeah. like a kind of sleazy Sesame Street presenter. But um, <laughs> for me, uh, I couldn't take my eyes off the bassist because he's just doing the greatest bass face ever yes. he's constantly in that moment when things are going so funky he's practically <laughs> kind of wincing himself inside out starting his <laughs> asshole you know? he's a chunky fucker as well he isn't is he? a chunky fucker uh, you know you know how bdsm folk talk about like exquisite tenderness that moment of the most intense pain and pleasure the mm. bassist here he yeah he's just in this constant paroxysm of exquisite funkiness whereby his face his face can't quite believe how funky things are getting. Um, <laughs> it's like, he's constantly, oh God, that's too much. Why can't I stop being this funky? I love that guy. Yeah. I love him more than Walden, to be fair. I mean, mm. I've always got a thing from Walden. He seems a bit smug. I, I've been reading kind of contemporary interviews with him from the 80s. And beyond his fitness regime, because he's barrel-chested, isn't he? He's a very hench yeah. guy. Mm. And his nauseating dips into why, uh, you know, wily Eastern mysticism via that bullshit pedestrian yeah. chimney, who also, of course, yeah, yeah, got yeah. to Santana and John McLaughlin and Roberta Flack. There were some quite telling quotes. I mean, he's, he's a, a little snotty. Say. He says he doesn't want to make shake-your-booty music. But um, this is precisely what this is. What's he's, wrong with that? I know. He's also slightly frustrated. I read in one interview that he's not been entirely accepted by black music fans which he feels is holding him back and when he finally wins a grammy he says um you know i've been great for ages this is long overdue <laughs> but then he explains that he goes you know what people see is arrogance is really love power man i love the world and i i, I love myself so it's odd where now people use their narratives of sob stories or identity to justify being arrogant about their achievements back then you just needed some uh, some Deepak Chopra-style bullshit merchant to talk to you about self-actualization to, to justify mm. it. There's something a bit glassy-eyed about it, but yeah, this is a great slice of kind of fusion disco. Oddly behind the times, there's no kind of... Because think about what Herbie Hancock's doing in this period. You know, he's bringing in a lot of synths. Mm. But mm. again, another great... It's not the starter, but just seeing a bit of Soul Train and just focusing on that bassist face um, was wonderful. Going back to your sax, man, I mean, they're not at the level of honke in the previous episode but he's got a generous flair in them white trousers oh, yeah. and can i introduce another word to the lexicon of saxons please amtabs amtabs yeah. my asian mate um, when he was growing up in the 80s amtabs was the word used for a massive pair of white flares <laughs> after the actor amtab yeah, of course, of oh course. yeah you hear his mate going oh char guy your uncle was wearing some bad amtabs at that wedding guy <laughs> <laughs> so you go, Amtabs, welcome into the lexicon of Saxons. Excellent. I don't think we dwelt enough on the guitarist, actually. Right? No, because he's got one of them double neck jobs and he only bothers with one. Yeah. I always hated seeing that. If you've got a double neck guitar, you play both of them. Yeah, it's like it's Jimmy Page style, and it? it's got a 12 string and a 6 string uh, on the yes. same guitar. But you say he only bothers with one of them. Some of the time he's not even doing that. He's just like giving the overhead hand claps, you know? Right. Yeah. So he's Corrado Pat Rustici. And uh, the only Corrado I've come across other than him uh, is Corrado Soprano, a.k.a. Uncle Junior, these motherless fucks. Um, so, yeah, but he is a genuine Italian. Uh, he also played on Whitney stuff like How Will I Know? He played on We Don't Have To by Jermaine Stewart. Um, right. Again, like, basically, it seems that anything that Narada did, he brought half his band with him. Mm. But... Rustici was a prog musician, um, which you can tell from the fucking instrument he's holding. Yes. And it turns out, um, uh, th this shows how prog he is. Last year, he brought out an album called 
interfulgent. Interfulgent is an adjective which is used to describe light shining through the gaps between objects, such as clouds or leaves. Interfulgent. Mm. Yeah, very prog. Um, Neil mentioned uh, somebody looking like they were on Sesame Mm. Street. Um, I thought Narada himself, he's got this yellow shirt and red braces. He looks like he should be presenting play away. (laughs) But somehow he can carry it off, I think. Yeah, and there's a female singer with a big handful of seashells in her hair. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. I think he was ahead of his time, Narada, also in terms of recycling, because he did recycle this on Jump to the Beat by Stacey Lattisor, which oh, in many, yeah. many ways is the same song. And even Tonight I'm Alright, his, his, uh, his other song is very similar to that. There's also a kind of, um, I should have loved you, Shalimar, there it is, and Orange Juice, rip it up, continuum. Oh. Those same two chords over and over, but fuck it, it works. If it works, don't, you know, if mm-hmm. it ain't broke, don't fix it. Don't push it, don't force don't it. Don't push it, don't force it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by the way, Al, you know, you were saying about the double neck guitars you don't like them when they're not being used to their full capability you must seek out um this is much later in the 80s but a song called freight train by a band called nitro um yeah because the guitarist for them jean-michel what's his name yeah jean-michel batio at one point right it goes to the goes to the solo and this four-necked guitar Ooh. comes down like on a winch. Fuck me. It's like four necks. Pointing in different. Yeah, it's like a cross. Do you know what I mean? Oh, There's a lot no. Of directions. And he starts playing all four necks in a completely... Stu- but Freight Train by Nitro is just one of the insanest daft poodle rock videos of the 80s. Fuck. Um, but yeah, if you, if you want some, d- not double neck, but quadruple neck action, mm. that's where to go. And I do. <laughs> I feel like that's somebody's logo. It's on the tip of my brain. Um, a guitar with um, with with the fretboards pointing out in four different directions. Who is it? Maybe the pop craze young The Nazis. Yeah, the Nazis. Exactly. <laughs> but I I sense that um, that you two didn't get quite the same rush from this song that I did. But I you know I really did. It's just no, fucking... I like this. Yeah, I like this. But it's yeah. just one of many songs this year yeah. that are in that kind of uh, in that kind of pocket, if you will. And it's like, oh, yeah, here's another one. Great, brilliant. I guess so. I wasn't anti this kind of music at all. If it was on, I'd listen to it. Hmm. It was only a bit later on that I realised, oh, I should have loved that. Hey. But yeah, f- for me, this song and this performance is just a fucking heady nostril full of f- fucking fairy dust, to quote the trogs. <laughs> it really is. Uh, of course, the, the, the maddest thing about Narada, we mentioned it before, he joined Journey in 2020. I think that's a big yes. belief in, man. But, um, yeah, but I, I also so. tracked down an interview with him from about 10, 12 years ago, uh, where he was talking about the fact that uh, people don't really buy albums anymore and that the only way to make money is is by performing live. And uh, he said, God's given mm. me a gift that if it doesn't work in a studio, it'll work on a stage so I don't have to shine shoes. That's Ooh. what he said. But <laughs> I, I'd have thought he's probably not hard up for a few quid, do you know what I mean? Well, quite. All those, all those Whitney records, Jesus. So the following week, I should have loved you, went boing, 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 <laughs> all the way up to number 11. And the week after that, it got to number 8, its highest position. The follow-up, The Real Fang, failed to chart over here, and he'd have to wait eight long years before returning with divine emotions. That's number 19 in the charts at the moment. It's called I Should Have Loved You. Who's a lucky boy then? Here's the chords and something called, well, you've got it. Here it is. Let's be 
Vance, sat on a very wide sofa, suddenly finds himself flanked by four girls with lank, flicked back hair. Who's a lucky boy then, he says, into the head of the girl on his left. What is going on with that bit on the sofa? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, beyond anything else, it, it, it makes you think there was some sort of process whereby those girls were decided upon. Mm. to be part of that and it's just grisly isn't it yeah i don't know if it's meant to be somehow sexy and you know again like i say people in glass houses but they are four quite frumpy young women and mm. you know he's got his arm around one of them because those are the rules you know if you're the top of the pops presenter you've got to have your arm yeah around. well he, he's got his arm around the back of the sofa isn't he he's not well, he's not actually oh yeah but in it. that way when you're at the cinema he's sort of your yes it's <laughs> definitely isn't yeah. it but um but but the sofa itself is a bit of chekhovian foreshadowing we're to see that Indeed. sofa in use quite soon that poor woman she's probably in therapy now that whole like <laughs> who's a lucky boy then Fuck yeah, yeah. i don't know about you chaps but if i was sat at a bus stop and four girls of that age sat either side of me the first thing that's going to come into my head isn't going to be always oh, a stroke of luck then <laughs> you know because nothing good can come out of this situation yeah. and i'd be sitting there praying for the bus to come and just hoping that no one who knows me walks by and notices me i'd be sat there with a fucking carrier bag over my face like Ian McGregor. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. He then attempts to introduce the next single and fucks it up somewhat. <laughs> it's Something's Missing by The Chords. Formed in London in 1977 by Billy Hassett and Martin Mason, two cousins who were Who and Beatles obsessives, the Action were a loose collective who played youth clubs until they put an advert in The Enemy in early 1978 and acquired Chris Pope, a guitarist and songwriter. In 1978, they found out that there'd already been a mod band called The Action, so they changed their name to The Chords. They sent a demo tape to The Who, who were looking for bands to appear in the film version of Quadrophenia, and heard nothing back, so they placed another advert, this time in Melody Maker, for a Keith Moon-type drummer, resulting in Buddy Haskett joining the band. In March of 1979, the Chords played their first gig in a pub in Deptford and immediately attracted a following amongst the burgeoning mod revival movement. And a month later, in a pub gig in Waterloo, they were watched by Paul Weller and a few people from Polydor. And before the week was out, they were recording a demo for JP Records, the Polydor offshoot run by Jimmy Purser of Skinheads on Magic 69. <laughs> A month later, the enemy introduced the mod revival to the general public in a special mod-themed issue which listed the chords alongside the likes of Secret Affair and the Purple Hearts as the new breed. A month after that, the band not only signed a deal with JP Records and had a debut single in the can, but found themselves supporting the jam at the rainbow and then bagged a support slot with the undertones, who they immediately bonded with. However, the band immediately started making that Marge Simpson noise when Percy started pushing them fully towards the mod revival. <laughs> and when he turned up at their gig at Guildford Civic Hall with his new mates Steve Jones and Paul Cook and a gang of about 40 skinheads, they demanded that they join the undertones on stage for an encore, then bum-rushed the stage and took over, nearly killing undertones bassist Mickey Bradley when a lighting tower collapsed and the band demanded to be freed from their ties with Perse. 
Back at square one and standing by while the Merton Parkers recorded the first mod revival single, their career was back on where they did a peel session a couple of months later, sparking managerial approaches from the managers of Sham, The Undertones and Paul Weller's dad, and a label bidding war which ended when they signed to Polydor properly. Their debut single, Now It's Gone, was put out in September of 1979 and only got to number 63, but their first single of 1980, Maybe Tomorrow, made Single of the Week in Sounds, NME, and on Kid Jensen's Radio 1 show, and when it got to number 44 in February, they made their debut on Top of the Pops, which kicked the single up to number 40, but no further. This single, the follow-up, is taken from their new and first LP, So Far Away, which comes out in a fortnight. It entered the chart last week at number 73, and this week it's jumped 16 places to number 57, but no matter, here they are in the studio. That introduction by Tommy, oh dear. Here's the chords and something called, well, you've got it, here it is. <laughs> Was he supposed to pause at some point? You know, here's something called, uh, you see, something's missing. Oh, right. Do you know I what I mean? I think so, yes. Oh, yes. But it's only yes. at number 57 in the charts. A fraction of the audience would have known what the song is. Yeah, he's fluffed that one, hasn't he? Mm. Badly. I mean, I have the feeling, chaps, that this song may have something to do with their debut performance on Top of the Pops last February. Because according to the sleeve notes for the compilation CD, The Mod Singles Collection, written by Chris Hunt, quote... The following night, after their Top of the Pops session, the group were in the northwest of England for a gig just outside Chesterfield. They watched their Top of the Pops performance with animated enthusiasm in the TV room of their hotel, but their behaviour alienated the locals in the small, family-run establishment. In the early hours of the morning, they found themselves evicted following a visit from the police who arrested one of the road crew on drugs charges. For Billy Hassett, success wasn't proving to be quite what he expected. We were looking at ourselves on top of the pops and then looking round and saying, that's not our life, it's completely different. On TV, we look like stars, but off it, we were in this terrible B&B. <laughs> The feeling of disillusionment permeates this song, doesn't it? They seem angry about something, but, you know, you mm. look through the lyrics and, you know, something's missing. They're saying, what? You know, it's it, they never quite get to the point. It's like in the city, they fuck all they want to say to you, basically. Mm. <laughs> they're perhaps, I mean, I'm not saying they're saying something's missing in the mod revival, but they are, in a sense, trying to distance themselves from it a little bit, I yes. think, with, with their appearance here. Yeah. The lead singer, he's wearing this kind of sort of punky leopard print furry jacket yeah he looks well generation x doesn't he yeah i mean that's certainly not mod revival um and the drummer's wearing an elvis t-shirt you'd assume wouldn't you that that's not very mod but it's actually based on a badge that keith moon was wearing on his white denim uh, jacket i see i mean yeah. visually in terms of the way they move that is this is massively in hot to the jab and the who but mm. Sonically, it's more of a Buzzcocks undertones thing, yes. which I actually don't mind. I mean, the difference is that this song, I think it's attempting to be anthemic in a way that those two bands weren't. Both the undertones and especially the Buzzcocks still felt like music that was kind of written in a bedroom and was, mm. you know, the size of Pete Shelley's life ultimately. Whereas this mm. feels ambitious 
in a big way. And you know, I mean, you know, I hate the Who, and I feel their influence is is, is mainly a malign one. So mm. I've always got a bit of a problem with mod revival, and in, in as much as it seems like a revival of something that wasn't really mod in the first place, you know, mm. were, were the Who and the Small Faces mods or just rock bands that exploited the look of that subculture? Pretty mm. soon, what would actually <laughs> sort of make sense much more as a, mo- a revival of mod ideas, two-tone is going to make all of this seem quite dated and parochial. Mm. I mean, they're not helped also by putting the bassist at the front of the stage. Like Simon said, there's a lot of front-of-the-stage stuff in this episode. Yeah, He looks like he's come halfway through the stage in some kind of malfunctioning trapdoor. He just looks really short. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I-, I didn't mind this, but it kind of reminded me of... Remember the 90s? There were a lot of also-ran... Britpop bands, <laughs> if you like, or a lot of also ran bands. Like, I mean, uh, uh, most of which I've never heard. You know, name I mean, names, I, Neil. Come on. Oh God. Well, I don't know what Thousand Yard Stare or Kingmaker or Sixty Foot Dolls sound like. I wrongly <laughs> think they sound like this. Well, there's a whole compilation mm. that's just come out of Junk Shop Britpop. God, I saw that. Yeah, yeah it's all oh, bands six like CDs, Jocasta yeah. or something. Who I, I can't remember what they sounded like, but yeah, I know what you mean. All these kind of like. Camden Parkway, good mixer kind of bands that you never actually heard, you just heard their name. That's it. Mm. And in the noughties, when the chords reform and go on tour again, I, I read an interview where one of them says, yeah, it's because, you know, Noel Gallagher said that he really liked the chords. I mean, I'm not, I'm not using that as a, a stick to beat them <laughs> with, but <laughs> I am sort of actually, but, um, you know, I like the song, but it, but it, it, it seems big and ambitious and a bit too who flavoured for my taste. This appears to be a, a, a prime example of a band to immediately get lumped into a movement, in this mm. case, the mod revival. And, you know, they are mod adjacent, but they're not the last. Umbrettas. Yeah, well, this is what confused me when I saw this clip because, you know, I assumed that they were ultra generic mod. And as Neil's pointed out, Billy Hassett, the singer, doesn't look very mod at all. He's got very uncool, no. sort of feathery hair. Um, he looks mm. like he might as well. Yeah, a bit cooler shaker, I, isn't it? I thought he just looks like, you know, a member of Racy or something. And um, <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. That, that leopard jacket that he's wearing, it's as if the Harrington was designed by Julie Goodyear. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, and the drummer, not only the Elvis thing, I don't know if you notice, he's wearing a backwards baseball hat. Mm. Yes, he is, yes. Now. Um, mm. I will say that the guitarist had some nice kind of pop art graphics on his guitar, which I liked. Yes. And I think it's the bassist who's up front does have that kind of mod Julius Caesar haircut. So there were mm. elements of mod in the way they present themselves, and but there, there was mm. some other stuff going on which kind of threw me a little bit. And they do sound quite sham, funnily enough, I thought. Yes. You know, it, it is sort of the dregs of punk rather than yeah. rather than mod, mm. I thought. Yeah. But the mod revival anyway was I mean it was fucking shit, man. It was mm. it was worse than OG sixties mod, except for the jam. Like the jam obviously are this kind of peak of the whole thing but once you mm. fall off that peak it's a long way down yes. possibly you hit secret affair halfway down who are okay but then yes. it's a long fucking drop to the bottom mm. just recently i was listening to some 80s playlists or other and um, and the truth came on there with confusion hits us every oh, yes. time utter fucking dog shit really mm. it's worse than i remembered it being so i i don't feel quite as kind of conciliatory towards <laughs> this band or, or or this performance as you do but i noticed something about this which backs up my idea that robin nash was was throwing some either some money or some ideas or both at this because the backdrop mm. behind yes the these massive arrows massive fucking mod arrows made of perspex or whatever that can't yeah, be nice cheap. isn't it yeah that could not have been cheap either i mean it makes you wonder which other the bands who played spiky pop would have been lumped into the mod revival if they hadn't 
come out as early as they had. I mean, the undertones, for example. Yeah, and you've got bands like like the Vapors and the Jags mm. who are kind of on the edge of it, really, as well. Mm. Yeah. But the thing is with the chords, they, they do that moment, though, where you just your heart sinks, where he does the Townsend windmill yeah. uh, on his guitars, and it's pretending it. It's, it's play-acting. Mm. I didn't mind the song, but yeah, the, the mod stuff, leave it out. One thing I found quite funny was when the camera pans across the backs of the heads of the audience, because I don't know if you noticed, yes. loads of woolly hats, loads of woolly hats in the audience which tells us what's coming later. Yeah, either that or the flumps <laughs> are in the studio next door and they're on a break. I don't know. Anyway, this single, I bought it. Silence. Ex- explain yourself. I bought explain this on, on the following Saturday with my birthday. Oh, me. I just thought, well, I'm into the jam now. This is a bit jammy and they're on the back page of the new Smash Hits in their new Fred Perry jumpers. Yeah, I'll have some of that. Yeah. Only played it a few times. I think it lasted mm. about uh, two weeks on my turntable, which was a very short time for a 12-year-old's record collection. I like the B-side, that the Tiz Was influenced instrumental, This Is What They Want. Wow. <laughs> But I think this is where the mob revival fell down because people like you would have been lured on board by the jam and you would have been looking mm. around thinking, well, what else is there? Yes. And when you find what else is there, it's really not very good. And this yeah. is why the revival kind of fizzled out, really. Yeah, you're right, Simon. Top of the Props have done them proud with a, a massive arrow backdrop, but the effect that they're going for is ruined at the end with a wide shot where we can see Tommy Vance standing on the race yeah. platform with his head bowed, <laughs> looking as if he's about to throw himself off it for being caught listening yeah. to mod he rubbish really, he looks really solemn doesn't he yes he really does <laughs> so the following week despite me buying it something's missing <laughs> nudged up a mere two places to number 55 then dropped right out of the chart the next week the follow-up British Way of Life only got to number 54 in July and after they rounded off 1980 with In My Street only getting to number 50 in October, lead singer Billy Hassett was sacked. Although they limped on through the first half of 1981, their next two singles also fell to chart and they called it a day in September of that year. Vance on that platform tells us what the song was called and then insists that nothing's missing on top of the pops, especially the crumpet. And here they are, ready to get down to the groove by Rodney Franklin. Born in Barclay, California in 1958, Rodney Franklin started playing jazz piano from the age of six and by the age of 14 was leading a jazz funk band called In One Piece. In 1978, he signed a deal with CBS and this tune, the follow-up to I Like The Music Make It Hot, which fell to chart in 1978, is the lead-off single from his second LP, You'll Never Know, which came out earlier this year. 
Although it received little to no radio airplay, it was picked up on by the club scene of the South East, particularly by the DJ Chris Hill, who inaugurated the swing revival of the mid-70s, gave the world the singles Renta Santa and Bionic Santa, and was an instrumental figure in the rise of Brit funk. And it was he who popularised and encouraged a dance where the jazz funk crazed youngsters would stand stock still during the silent bits in the song called The Freeze. It entered the chart a fortnight ago at number 70, then soared 43 places to number 27, which earned it the honour of being the chart rundown music on top of the pops last week. And this week it's moved up six places to number 13. Better call Legs and Company, to use Vance's term. What do we talk about first, chaps? The song or the performance? Song, just because, you know, then then we can move on to the... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the, the, To the the good bit. Yeah, the good bit. Yeah. yeah, it's well fucking teletext, isn't it, this? It sounds also, I mean, obscure, defunct console chat, but it sounds uncannily like the music from Tennis on Wii Sports. I just wanted Ooh, to say Oh, yes. It's very similar. I love this. Um, oh. I, I bought it at the time, which... Uh, did you? Seem, yeah, I did. Uh, it might seem strange for a 12-year-old. What but, a sophisticated um, young man you were, Simon. Well, this is the yeah. thing. I think I've mentioned this before, that um, there are a few things I bought around this time that are oddly mature, um, including um, After the Lover's Gone by Earth, Wind & Fire mm. and When Will You Be Mine by Average White Band. So mm. I was clearly up for a bit of this kind of jazz-funk mm. fusion stuff. Mm. Simon Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, if, if we were on a, on a Zoom call right now, I could show you that I'm wearing white socks as we speak. I genuinely am. Um, so, so um, yeah, um, I think partly it might have been to do with the fact that the the evil Stalag boarding school that I was in had a piano, and right. I wasn't having lessons, but I was sort of mucking about on it, thinking maybe I would like to learn, and, and I, I ended up having lessons when I got back to Wales. Um, and this sounded like something that would be just mind-blowing to sit down and play this. Mm. It's all about those stops, those interruptions, those caesuri that happen mm. in the song, uh, which I guess are, are what helps sort of lends itself to, to this dance craze, the freeze that you you talked about. Do mm. we know, by the way, is that the freeze that, that freeze we're referring to in the song Southern Freeze? Yeah, that came out in early 1981, didn't mm. it? Yeah, so maybe it's the same dance. You know, and I'm not sure if it's the same as voguing that Madonna tried to make happen. But anyway, yeah. I remember that um, the, the cutout record sleeve that it came in was very shiny black, shiny black paper, almost like PVC, which I thought was kind of cool and kind of sophisticated at the time. Mm. The thing that I've learned researching this that, that blew my mind is that Rodney Franklin was 21 when he made this, mm. which is insane. To be that good at the piano, how do you get to be that good at the mm. age of 21? I don't know. I certainly wasn't. I packed it in by the time I was about 15. Yeah. I enjoyed it, but yeah, my main focus was was on what I was watching. Um, mm, indeed, yes. Let's get this out of the way first. I feel so guilty that we're doing this without Taylor because this entire tableau is, is it's an Aventis wet dream, isn't it? <laughs> the set appears to be Martin Shaw's bachelor pad. And for the dad watching this he can just sit back and imagine that he's managed to cop off with all of legs and co at once (laughs) and they're slinking about in his living room in their pants and 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 some of his flouncier shirts it's got that vibe of you know new girlfriend or she puts your shirt on and slinks around the house in it which is really good for a few days but then you start thinking oh i've got to fucking wash that shirt again now thanks (laughs) It is indecent, you know, this. It's yeah. indecent. Mm. At one point, I mean, I had to loosen my collar to let a jet of steam out. It's as Indeed. rude as a hot gossip routine. 
Uh, I would probably have left the room uh, at the time. <laughs> and, you know, it is, yeah. Like you say, it, it, it's Bodie and Doyle's living room, isn't it? That, that they're basically in. It's missing a yeah. few things. Though. Well, it's a very minimalist living room, isn't mm. it? I mean, all there appears to be is a stupidly long and massively snaky sofa. And I have to say that as a child who had just turned 12, mm. my reaction to this on the night would have been less, what order am I going to give Legs and Co a scene to? And more, fucking hell, look at that sofa. Imagine the bicycle kicks and somersaults I could do on that. Uh, yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's an extraordinary sofa. It is sort of snaky and curved, but um, it's broken up into segments like a bender in a burn at Wimpy. Mm, <laughs> yes. It, it looks like it belongs in the house in A Clockwork Orange. Yes. And yeah, they, they are making the the most of that sofa, aren't they? They're oh, rolling yeah. over yeah. backwards over the sofa, taking turns. There's, I don't know if you noticed, there's, there's a clash of heads at one point. Um, right. Yes. Yeah, 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 they, yeah. Um, if, if it was football, they'd be taken off now as a precaution against concussion. Yes. But maybe... Maybe their fluffy crimped hair softened the impact. I don't know. Oh, God, yes. It's also a bit where there's a few of them uh, behind the sofa and they're bouncing up and down like, like they're on a Sibian, you know, mm. with, uh, yes. mm. with, with ecstatic <laughs> smiles on their faces. And then, then there's a bit where they're just down behind the sofa entirely, but just putting their hands up and waving like a fucking puppet show. Or, yeah, or, would yeah, it yeah. be brilliant if they had sooty and sweep on each hand <laughs> at the end? That would have been perfect. <laughs> I mean, it is a thorough exploration of everything you can possibly do on a sofa. Um, yes. And over the years, I'm fairly sure I've achieved a lot of these positions on a sofa <laughs> in one way or another. Quite new. I mean, uh, I would have liked a little bit of verite realism for the dawning of the 80s. You know, a few crisp crumbs on there, Daily Mirror TV <laughs> listings, <laughs> yeah. some pens, a few coins, scrunched up grundies, etc. Actually, you know, though this did give me some dadisfaction, um, it also gave me some, what, daddy's disappointment as well. I was appalled when one of them, yeah, started jumping up and down on it with her shoes on. Yes. Oh. Disgraceful yes. scenes to be put in. Yeah, my mum wouldn't have approved of that. Would have been nice. Coffee table, maybe. Tartan ice bucket. Yes. <laughs> this is 1980, so it's not the 70s, so that pineapple-shaped ice bucket would have been jettisoned by now. And, you know, I don't know about you, but when I used to sit around my home in the early 80s, I was always uh, wondering what household items I could use as weaponry in the event of a home invasion. <laughs> um <laughs> And there's none of that here. Uh, we had, yeah. you know, I think I mentioned it before, it's an obsession of mine, a, a really heavy martini ashtray. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, a grey one that could have really done some damage and, and caved the head in of the leader of the imagined group of street punks who burst into my house. <laughs> there, there's none of that here. Because, you yeah. know, once you've wounded the leader, the pack will retreat. You know? Exactly, Attack yeah. is the best form of defence. Yeah, but you've got Legs uh, & Co using sex as a weapon here. That's all they need. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there should be a, a, a drinks cabinet built into a globe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there needs to be one of them really chunky and just as deadly uh, lighters. Oh, yeah. Just basically a lighter bolted onto a curling stone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Onyx, if you're going to get really classy. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, there needs to be a nice lacquered cigarette box full of um, John Player special and a decanter or two. But, yeah, you're right. It is basically this whole thing is an invitation for the dads in the audience to basically place themselves in that room yeah, and yeah. basically mm. reenact that Snoop Dogg line, I've got bitches in the living room getting it on and they ain't leaving till six <laughs> yeah, in the morning. Six in the morning. You know, that is basically the whole vibe. Yeah. <laughs> and it has to be said, like a lot of Legs and Co performances round about this time, there's a fucking lot of knickerage on display, oh, yeah. isn't there? Very saucy indeed. Uh, there's a standard pose where they kind of like all bend over 
and show the knickers, uh, which happens on more than one occasion on Top of the Pops, as I've come to discover and not deliberately look for honest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's one bit where Rose, with her hair all crimped up, in a style that would dominate the playgrounds in 1981, she bends right over, and then th- there's a bit of a crossfade, and all of a sudden the screen is filled with knickered arse. Well, there you go. I mean, there's also that bit, there's a bit of twerking, in a sense. I mean, pre- pre-twerking mm. twerking, and a, a lot of jiggling about. A lot of proper jiggling as well. I was surprised, you know, some full-on dancehall-style daggering didn't start um, happening. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, I'd, I'd forgotten how rude these routines could be. Actually, yes, yeah. this is one of the rudest ones I've seen. I think. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm. Oh, there's worse, mate, <laughs> or, or better, depending on your point of view. But yeah, poor old Tommy Vance. He, he was sat there with four lank-haired girls with flick-back hair and here's what you could have won, Tommy. Yeah, he's, he's not invited to the real party, is he? Bless him. Yeah. Not so lucky now, are you, mate? <laughs> so the following week, the groove jumps six places to number seven, its highest position. The follow-up in the centre failed to chart and he never darkened our charty door ever again. I wish that was my living room, says Vance, off camera, as he immediately pitches us into Fool for Your Lovin' by Whitesnake. Born in Saltburn by the sea in 1951, David Coverdale spent the late 60s and early 70s fronting local bands such as Vintage 67, The Government and The Fabulosa Brothers. In 1973, while leafing through that week's Melody Maker, he read that Deep Purple were looking for a replacement for Ian Gillen, who had fallen out with Richie Blackmore and wanted to quit music and go into the hotel business. Fucking hell, what is it with pop stars and the hotel business? Him and Bruce (laughs) Foxton should have set up together. Seeing as he knew Deep Purple after the government had supported them in 1969, he threw his hat into the ring and was unveiled as the new frontman at the end of the year. In 1974, Coverdale found himself leading a band that had not only put out two LPs that year, but also made his American debut in front of 200,000 people at the California Jam Festival. But his soul and funk influences were beginning to seep into the band, which pissed off Richie Blackmore no end, leading him to quit in June of 1975 after telling the band, go ahead with your shoeshine music, I'm off. While the remaining members of Purple were inclined to disband, Coverdale encouraged them to stay together and they put out the LP Come Taste the Band. But the drugs took hold of two of them, diminishing sales were kicking in and when Coverdale walked off in tears at the last show of their 1976 tour and put in his resignation, he was told by John Lord and Ian Pace, the last two original members, that they had already decided to split the band up. 
Coverdale immediately launched a solo career, teamed up with guitarist Mickey Mude, formerly of the funk rock band Snarfu, and put out the debut LP White Snake in February of 1977. A year later, by the time his second LP North Winds was out, he'd already formed a band named after that first LP. By 1980, he'd even recruited Lord and Pace from his old band and put out three LPs under the White Snake name. And this single, the follow-up to Long Way From Home, which got to number 55 in November of 1979, is the lead cut from their third LP, Ready and Willing, which comes out in three weeks' time. Like many White Snake songs of the era, it's about the breakup of Coverdale's first marriage and was originally written for B.B. King. It came out a fortnight ago, entered the charts last week at number 51, and this week it soared 21 places to number 30. And here's the first video of the night, featuring the band in concert. And oh, cheer up, Tommy, here comes the (laughs) rock. Yeah, this is right up Tommy Street, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Firstly, I feel like I I should divulge a kind of close encounter that has some relevance to this. Ah. Ooh. Um, The year was 19. 1991, I was at university in York and I was having a weekend staying at a mate's house in Scarborough mm. and um, I'd sort of done the town I was sort of goggling at the fact that at the stage door rock club I noticed members of the fuck awful little angels swanning around so I was already quite starstruck. On the Saturday afternoon we were tooling around the town centre before the inevitable pilgrimage to, to Harry Bob's Cave which of course it necessitated a trip to our price and I was in our price and I think I found mm. a public enemy t-shirt I wanted mm. and I was in the queue and my mate who's like a serious serious metalhead he suddenly like turned really white even whiter than he was and started <laughs> practically trembling you know very wide-eyed and I was like you know what the hell's up with you and he started frantically darting his eyes to the guy in front of me in the queue I hadn't really noticed uh, this chap was wearing a very expensive looking leather coat Ooh. and he had a fistful of Beethoven symphonies on CD in his hand right. and my mate informed me it was David Coverdale no and, uh, yes indeed and in I'm our not, price in our price in Scarborough in 1990. Fucking hell. And, um, I mean, I must admit, I really couldn't give a shit at mm. the time because by then, I mean, Whitesnake had had their big monstrous hits yeah. and they were firmly... In my head, at least, I was a Sepultura and Metallica head. You know, they White Snake were everything that was wrong with metal. You know, mm. for me, um, that encounter was only topped, by the way, a year later when I stood behind Sky Blue legend Peter Unlove in the queue Ooh, at um, Ball Hill KFC in Coventry. He got himself a three-piece chicken meal and a diet coke. By the way, I'll never forget that. Um, <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I was close to Coverdale, but I mean, at this point in White Snake's trajectory, they're way more of a, a blues rock thing, mm. and they're hugely, hugely dated, even in 1980. Right, they're sort of feeding off the extra energy that the Wobbaham has brought to heavy rock. Yes, um, and the Wobbaham, unlike punk, it never sought to kind of slay the old heroes. You know, it, it, it never dissed the old bands. But this is oh, this is pretty awful, man. Um, <laughs> this song, um, basically, because right. of I think because of Coverdale. Unlike those other frontmen that leave big bands, he's not really sufficient enough of a visionary, um, not to talk about fire and ice like Derek Smalls or something, but, <laughs> but to sustain himself. You know, Gillen goes off and does Gillen. Ronnie yes. James Dio has left Rainbow by now. He's just about to drop Heaven and Hell with, with Sabbaths, one of their best albums. Ozzy is about to drop Blizzard of Oz, you know, which has got some of his biggest solo tunes on it. Coverdale here 
he's really reconvening Deep Purple mm. without the crazy egotist who made it interesting, i.e. Richie Blackmore, yeah. and, and doing this rather sort of dull blues rock, much as he did with the cover of Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City. Mm-hmm. Ian Pace and John Lord have been recruited by Coverdale, and the band aren't overly happy about that. I think, um, is it the bass player, Bernie Mars, and he starts wearing a subtly adapted T-shirt like John Lydon's Pink Floyd one. Uh, it's a yes. Deep Purple T-shirt that says, no, I wasn't in Deep Fucking Purple. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been good for Coverdale, though, to fucking turn the tables and say, oh, you're not doing very well at the minute, lads. You know, tell you what, why don't you join my band, <laughs> seeing as you kick me out of yours? It's a very Coverdale move. I think he inherited a lot of egotism from Richie Blackmore. Um, mm. But unlike Richie, Richie Blackmore's kind of hilarious, whereas Coverdale often isn't. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> His appearance in Rock Family Trees is fucking amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the sheer turnover in Whitesnake, in the band, I mean, you know, they go through like nine different lineups in the, in right. the subsequent decade. You know, like Shedding the skin, in other words. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kilverdale's inherited that kind of ego and bossiness, I think, from Blackmore. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, Richie Blackmore famously forced Dio to sing romantic songs and right. Coverdale to sing about mystical stuff when he was in Purple. Mm. But he, I think Coverdale was actually perhaps even a bit more arrogant and brutal than Richie Blackmore was. You know, he fires right. Marsden and Moody because they're not taking it seriously enough in a few years. He starts quite soon after this being heavily influenced by his new manager, John Kolodner, who's who he, John Kolodner is an interesting figure. He's kind of ex-music journalist and photographer. He becomes one of the most brutal A&R people at Geffen. He signs like Asia and White right. Zombie and Madness and all sorts of bands. Mm. And Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins, he claims that he signs ACDC. But when he gets involved with Coverdale in a few years, he encourages him to absolutely start dominating Whitesnake. I mean, later on, like the keyboardist Mel Galley, um, that we, I think we see in yeah. this video, you know, he has a horrible injury, breaks his arm, has this metal thing put on his hand to enable him to play. And, and it's true that when Coverdale saw this, he said, you can't play in White Snake with that on. You'll look like a spastic. This is what <laughs> Coverdale says to him. <laughs> you know, it's very hard to find anyone with a good word to say about Coverdale. He's kind of pompous about what he does with very little self-deprecation or humour. Um, I was reading a, a sounds piece, actually, from 78, and he says in this, you know, the, the, the quotes are unbelievable. I mean, he says, you know, it seems the media have become alienated from my music, which comes from the heart. They call it heavy metal, not even human, not even flesh and blood. <laughs> and he keeps that pomposity up. I mean, even by 2008, he's still up his own ass massively. He, he says about ex-band members moaning about him he says sometimes i just felt it necessary to redecorate the house of snake (laughs) (laughs) and i read a brilliant interview actually by gavin martin Uh, i think it was in the enemy 81 ish uh, where you know he's asked about his r&b influences he says i find colored boys seem to be able to come out the closet easier and sing exactly what they're thinking Mm. about Rather than do a cosmetic job like your Spandau Ballet. Yes. Ever since I was knee-high to a Chinese waiter, I've been listening to R&B. Because oh. Coverdale rapidly built up a, a sort of reputation as being almost a laughable kind of cock rock figure and quite sexist in his lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, he says a lot of the songs that have been called blatantly sexist are about my daughter. I did it, which is a bit Trump Avanturish. Yeah, he said, I I did a song called Girl, which went, You treat me like a dog and I shake my tail for you because she's the only girl who ever had me on all fours doing impressions of horses. Mm. Um, He says, It's better than bottling it up. I never pretended to be a sperm bank. 
Um, there's a lot of tunes where the male is dominant, which the fucking female militant journalists pick up on. Ooh. I'm just writing about it. If I was a faggot, I'd write about geezers, but I'm not. Um, and then his politics come out, actually, in this interview. Sorry to keep on coming no, up with no, kind of eye-popping. I mean, he says... He's asked about, you know, his distance, in a sense, from his roots. And he says, I, I bust my bollocks for what I do. I get paid for it, incredibly well paid for it. But it's 24 hours a day, 52 years, weeks of the year, nonstop. A lot of people want something for nothing in this country. And he's asked about Thatcher. Ugh. And he says, the closest thing we've got to Churchill in that she can unify the country. But she's got front and leadership. And I would probably be in the Young Conservatives. Ooh. So, yeah. Uh, I have problems with Covered Out, which is knelt by this song, because I find this song pretty dull, to be honest with you, and I wish he would have just left it for B.B. King today. We're going to see a lot of denim and leather in the back mm. half of this episode, because 1980 is the year of both the new wave of British heavy metal and the return of some rock dinosaurs. Why is that? Ooh, why? Well, I mean, Nawabaham needed a, needed the kick up the arse of punk, I would say. Mm. It's starting to get discovered. It's starting to get covered in the press more. And, you know, it's definitely the year where it comes across, hits the charts with the bands that we're actually going to see soon mm. um, in this episode. In terms of the old dinosaurs coming back, I just think it's part of the cycle. They've kind of, they've had their 70s flare up moments. They've, it's all fallen apart thanks to drugs and ego. And they now just want back in. So you hear Gillen making music. You hear Coverdale making music with Whitesnake. Ronnie James Dio is back with Sabbath. Ozzy's gone solo. These big, big names, just as perhaps the biggest name Led Zeppelin are falling apart are coming back with new stuff and and uh, that's that's the sort of reason why Simon were the grebs starting to surface at your school round about this time not many before I go any further I've just got to say California Jam Festival I hate Sebastian Coe just have to get that in there. Um, if you know you know um <laughs> Yeah, there weren't many metalers, but my best mate was one. I've mentioned mm. this before. Um, my best mate and my next-door neighbour, Andrew Rapusis. Hello, Andrew. Yeah. The executioner of action mm. men. The executioner of action men, yeah. And I would hear this crap while yeah. playing Sabutio, and yeah. I grudgingly grew to enjoy a lot of it by osmosis. And the same thing happened for him in reverse with Two-Tone when he came around my house. Oh. And I actually saw White Snake live really? um, with Andrew at Cardiff St. David's Hall on wow. 7th of March, 1984, because I got free tickets off my dad. Right. Um, and we were right down the front by David Coverdale's thrusting crotch. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and to give you an idea of what a White Snake gig was like at that time, I actually uh, consulted Setlist FM to refresh my memory, and it tells me that the seventh song was called Keyboard Solo, John Lord. Right? <laughs> the eighth song was called Drum solo, Cozy Powell. <laughs> That's the seventh and eighth tracks of the gig, for fuck's sake. Mm. Um, the album they were promoting at that time was called Slide It of In. Of course it was, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, the not even slightly cryptic title track of which goes, I'm going to slide it in right to the top. Slide it in, I ain't never going to stop. Slide it in right to the top. I'm going to slide it in, slide it in. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I mean, he had, he had previous for this, of course. Uh, you mentioned his... Um, 1977 solo album White Snake, which, as you say, eventually gave the band its name. The title track from that goes, "Got a white snake, mama. You want to shake it, mama? Got a white snake, mama. Come and let it crawl on you. Just enough to see you through." <laughs> 
And there's a load of sniggersome stuff about a backdoor man, like, you know, like Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love, and indeed all the blues songs that Led Zeppelin ripped off. Yeah, I um, mean, White Snake might as well have been called David Coverdale's lovely cock. Well, exactly right. The, the, um, the, <laughs> the sleeve of Slider In had an actual snake writhing down a woman's cleavage, uh. like the real life spinal tap sleeve, which makes me convinced that White Snake must have been one of the many inspirations. Oh, yeah. Along yeah, with yeah, another yeah. band we're coming to later. Mm, and he had previous for that as well, in terms of artwork. The 1979 White Snake album, Love Hunter, right. it had uh, fantasy art by Chris Achilleos of a naked woman straddling a massive snake yes it's like it's like dave we get it you've got a large penis you know i mean the cover of this single is about coiling like a snake right with a buckle being all fanger he calls himself a swordsman doesn't he does there's a thing he says he says on stage he's he's famously said on stage times are hard for a swordsman such as i Um, and uh, the thing is until literally five minutes ago I found David Coverdale very likable mm. because mm. I didn't know all that stuff that Neil's just told yeah. us. Yeah. Right? I didn't. And, you know, for all that kind of unreconstructed chauvinism and cock swinging that I mentioned, I did find him strangely likable. Yeah. Um, he's no Ian Gillen, but he was still somebody I would like to have had a pint with. Yes. Um, I, I thought he had that kind of agreeable suaveness, like a kind of james bond with the hair of a king charles spaniel mm. and a uh, friend of the show richard ogood once said that all he wanted was for hey, hey, oh, richard he said that all he wanted was for david coverdale to call him ricardo and i get that yes. <laughs> like he called richie blackmore right, is that right yeah right yeah yeah in that um, in rock family trees right yeah 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 there the we deep go purple one's fucking brilliant yeah and, and david coverdale he is so fucking affected mm. there's something about rock stars from the northeast they just put it on big oh, style yeah. like brian ferry and sting but I, I want my heavy metal front men to be ridiculous yeah completely i think that's kind of the deal um mm. my dad actually interviewed david coverdale for cbc radio in cardiff Ooh, did he and now? that's how i got yeah that's how i got the gig tickets and i think my dad was expecting this kind of spaniel haired dumbo mm. but they actually got on really well and they just talked about blues mm. all night because yeah. as you mentioned that is where he was coming from coverdale i can only imagine that they didn't talk politics because my dad's a massive lefty <laughs> <laughs> you know but fool for your loving is one long blues trope about a yes. woman who's done him wrong isn't it you know yes so so it's, it's a different kind of sexism here from the tits and serpents variety you know mm. it's basically the old women eh? you just can't trust them the posh grubs from the nice estate are not quite surfacing in our school just yet but the one before off and, and it was pretty obvious that along with rainbow and oreo speedwagon and fucking sticks <laughs> white snake was seen as very much a girls band yeah. you know what I mean you didn't see many white snake patches on a lad's denim jacket but on a girl's arse on her jeans yeah there'd, there'd be that coily snake interesting well what Simon said about um, his experience of seeing white snake live that is why you know the Wobbaham was exciting I think to young rock fans because there were no solos there were no sort of 70 minute drum solos mm. with that kind of nod to the blues rock of the, of the early 70s um, in fact bands deliberately set out not to jam and not to do solos and were far more influenced by glam and stuff so yeah, yeah that, that's why the Wobbaham was exciting to a lot of kids precisely because it wasn't as self-indulgent as White Snake and uh, look I find David Coverdale hilarious um, and I want my rock stars to mm. be hilarious the politics Thing, yeah it did kind of put me off him a little bit because i wasn't aware of that before but yeah. if we're gonna have 
you know, these these leonine rock gods. Let them be as preposterous as Coverdale. I mean, this single and the video demonstrates what a girls' band Whitesnake were. You know, melodic band, not unattractive, and yes, leonine frontman, and loads of songs about crying over women who's done David Coverdale wrong, and hard-loving women in particular. <laughs> Have you ever encountered a hard-loving woman, by the way? <laughs> I mean, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, I have. <laughs> Just haven't written songs Fucking about hell. it. Yeah. Odd going, man. Uh, she, she was a nightclub right. bouncer in London, yeah. and uh, she ended up giving me a nerve pinch on the neck, and Frog marched me into a cab so she could give it to me all night long. <laughs> and um, her idea of foreplay was to bite chunks out of my lip and uh, ask me if I've ever had a go at cock and ball torture. <laughs> I told her I'd thought about it, but I, I just couldn't get past the torture bit. You know what I mean? Mm, mm. Cock and ball messing about with and having a laugh with. I'm all for that. Torture, n- not so much. But the video, it's your standard rock trope of, uh, you know, the band miming live in concert, intercut with a crowd head banging away. Yeah, I mean, you call him Leonine, and hair-wise, I guess he is, but his nose is aquiline. That's a hell of an yeah, eagle beak yeah. he's got going on there. You, you notice mm. it when he throws his head back in anguish you know and yes uh, yeah it's classic cock rock isn't it he stands with his legs apart in that george osborne theresa may tory power stance and yes uh, the the lighting rig uh, is very of that era it's that standard heavy metal rig of two banks of red yellow and blue spots and mm. uh, line it wise you've got yeah you've got ian pace on drums wearing a bucket hat for fuck's sake yes right um, <laughs> you've got um it's like fucking Rennie's dad isn't it i know and you've got the aforementioned John Lord on keyboard. So it is basically Deep Purple minus Richie Blackmore. And of mm. course, yeah, he only left Purple because he didn't get along with Richie Blackmore. Seems like nobody gets along with Richie Blackmore. No, no, no. No, no. that's why I left. <laughs> but the mere mention of this slot and Pete Frame is sharpening his pencil and getting his ruler out, isn't he? Because the whole yes. Deep Purple diaspora is insanely incestuous. Oh, yeah. There's that yeah, yeah, convoluted yeah, yes. family tree of Whitesnake, Rainbow, Gillen and Sabbath. Mm. And each branch of that tree had its moments, I think. I mean, it, it ought to go without saying that Here I Go Again is an absolute fist-in-the-air monster, specifically yes. the 1986 version with his future wife, Tawny Kitane, mm. uh, writhing mm. around on a car bonnet in the video. <laughs> My favourite thing I found, though, while uh, reading up on White Snake for this was this sentence on uh, on the Wikipedia entry. Coverdale is known in particular for his powerful blues-tinged voice, as well as his vibrant, caring and loving stage persona. <laughs> vibrant, caring and loving. I mean, I, I don't know who wrote that, but I'll be a fool for your vibrant, caring, loving no more, David Coverdale. <laughs> Fucking hell. It's mad, actually, that John Lord's in this band. Yeah. I mean, John Lord's going to turn 40 next year, you know, in 81. Um, John Lord's mm. locking on. So seeing him on stage with him, and what is Ian Pace wearing? Um, he <laughs> never... <laughs> He never dressed like that in purple, and I know purple was a long time before this, but I don't know what look he's aiming for at all there. But I think it's yeah. telling. It's not all denim and leather. That's the thing. It's this kind of Allman Brothers band kind of look almost. Mm. There's a sort of southern yeah. rock feel to it, and I think that reveals the influences behind the band as well. Yeah, I mean, the band, apart from Covered Up, they look fucking old and tubby, don't they? <laughs> mm. But the one thing that did excite me, did you notice the guitarist and his red sweatshirt? No. He's got a slogan on his T-shirt. Oh, right. Here 
comes and the rest is obscured by his guitar. So you can imagine my feelings on, on looking at this. But sadly, I looked at the bits of the video that Top of the Pops cut away from and disappointingly, the obscured word is trouble. Right. And of course, as mentioned in a previous chart music, Slade really nicked off this for Lock Up Your Daughters, didn't they? Yeah. I don't yes. know that one. Yeah, I think you're right. Mm. Anything else to say? Oh, just one last quote from Dave. He's asked about Prince. Oh, God, where's <laughs> this going? Oh, fuck me. <laughs> no, it's not so bad. He goes, the coloured chappy from Michigan. Oh, no. <laughs> and then he oh, says, no. it's all a bit too nice for me. You've got to remember, I was weaned on Sly and the Family Stone, Jimmy Brown, and all that. Nothing stands up to it nowadays. So there you go. So the following week, Fall For Your Loving jumped nine places to number 21, and two weeks later it got to number 13, its highest position. The follow-up, Ready and Willing, got to number 43 in July of 1980, but they'd roar back in 1981 when Don't Break My Heart Again got to number 17 in May of 1981, and they'd have seven more top 40 hits throughout the 80s, including top 10 places for Is This Love and Here I Go Again in 1987. Rock! Vance nodding sagely says, Ooh, nice to see heavy music back in the charts. Then he tells us what else he thinks is nice. The return of Jimmy Ruffin with Hold On To My Love. Born in Collinsville, Mississippi in 1936, Jimmy Ruffin was the son of a sharecropper who was a member of the gospel group The Singing Nightingales with his little brother David. In 1961, he linked up with Motown as a session singer only to have his career interrupted by the draft. When he got out of the army in 1964, he was offered Elbridge Bryant's spot in The Temptations, but recommended his brother to Barry Gordy instead, saying that he looked more like a temptation than he did, and continued to record as a solo artist for the Motown subsidiary Soul. In 1966, he got wind of a song which had been demoed for the Detroit Spinners and begged the songwriters to let him bagsy it. When they did, the single, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted, got to number seven in America and number eight over here in the first week of 1967. The success of that single set him up to become one of the most prominent Motown artists of the six vintage in the UK, which peaked in 1970 when he scored a pile of top ten hits with Farewell is a Lonely Sand, I'll Stay Forever My Love and It's Wonderful. And he resurfaced in 1974 with a re-release of What Becomes of the Broken Hearted getting to number four in August of that year. By then, he'd already left Motown and put out two LPs for Polydor, which were only released in the UK and failed to chart, and he spent the late 70s in the wilderness until he was picked up by RSO Records last year. 
This is the follow-up to Falling in Love with You, which fell to chart in 1977, and it's the lead-off cut from his 11th LP, Sunrise, which came out last November and was produced and written by Robin Gibb, with songwriting assistance from Blue Weaver, formerly of Amen Corner, and The Straubs. It's entered the chart this week at number 36, and here's the man himself in the studio for the first time since September of 1971, having a lend of Tommy Vance's Observation Tower. <laughs> it's been a good year for Motown acts in the British charts, hasn't it? I mean, the, the Detroit Spinners got to number one last month, still at number seven in the charts. Uh, the Jacksons are about to roar back with a Triumph LP. Marvin Gaye's back on tour. Stevie Wonder's getting hotter than July Reddit, and here's Jimmy Ruffin, who had far more success over in the UK than he did in America, seemingly on the comeback trail. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, that the cycle of nostalgia was a lot quicker in those days, mm. and it did feel around this time that there, there was a kind of wave of fondness for 60s Motown, and, you know, it's only 10 years in the past. Yeah. What becomes the brokenhearted becoming a, a hit twice? I mean, twice isn't enough. No. Because, because I've just got to say, that is one of the ha- small handful of songs that when you're hearing it you are thinking oh, okay this is obviously the greatest record ever made mm-hmm. you know it's it's one of one of those it's got that power and um i actually saw jimmy ruffin at hammersmith in 2009 and it was part of some kind of tawdry david guest uh package show uh, with m- millions of singers just coming on doing mm. a couple of songs but even in that kind of context jimmy ruffin doing his greatest hit still had that power to send right. ships down my mm. spine it's incredible this song though i mean mm. it's slight but pleasant I haven't heard it honestly in 40 years I know. but um I could sing it in my head as soon as I saw the title written down yeah. what I didn't realize at the time is what you said is that it's basically a Bee Gees yeah, record yeah. yes the album it came from Sunrise had the Bee Gees hands all over it Robin Gibb co-produced it and co-wrote this song Barry and Morris turn up as songwriters and backing vocals elsewhere they're members of the Bee Gees live backing band on several of the tracks and as you say it's on RSO which of course was the Bee Gees label mm. at that time but that itself was kind of a contentious issue right because this very year 1980 the Bee Gees filed 200 million dollar lawsuit <sighs> against rso and the owner and manager robert stigwood claiming mismanagement now a bit of context for that this was the aftermath of that disastrous sergeant pepper movie yes. that they made in 1979 and stigwood basically issued a 310 million dollar <laughs> countersuit um <laughs> alleging libel and defamation of character and extortion Ooh. so they settled out of court for an undisclosed sermon mm-hmm. patched up their differences which is bizarre so there's that connection the whole Bee Gees thing there is as you say um, a, a Cardiff connection uh, because Blue Weaver mm. the co-writer on this song plays keyboards as well is from Cardiff and also um, Dennis Bryan on drums he was a, another former member of Amen Corner so it's it's a half Welsh record oh. basically if, if, if there was a, if there was a Soul World Cup this song would qualify for the Wales squad <laughs> right um, but the thing with it is despite the pedigree of the musicians involved the Bee Gees and the Welsh mm. lot and of course the Motown background of Jimmy himself the production on this single sounds really cheap mm. and toy-like yeah. to me and and it's it's a real contrast with with Jimmy Ruffin's 
musical past. I, I went on a bit of a voyage of uh, soul vinyl rediscovery during lockdown. Yeah. I was just digging dusty old LPs out of my collection, stuff that I'd acquired but never played. And uh, one of them was I Am My Brother's Keeper by the Ruffin Brothers, so David and Jimmy yeah. together. And that's from 1970. And the, the, the standout track from that being the bridge suicide heartbreaker, got to see if I can't get mommy to come back home. <sighs> oh, that title, fucking hell. But the, the production on that, um, 1970, as you'd expect, peak Motown, mm. the Funk Brothers on fire. Yeah. And then 10 years later, Jimmy sounds like this. Mm. And I, I, I did wonder if it's one of those things that we've seen before on Top of the Pops where a soul singer gets screwed over by the Top of the Pops orchestra. No, I'm about 80% sure that this is the Top of the Pops orchestra because on the original, there's some bells and you can't really hear them on this performance. And the backing singers are definitely different. And I believe they are the Maggie Stredder singers who uh, took over from the Ladybirds in 1977. And Jimmy's singing live, I believe, because he does a few bits at the beginning you know like singers do on top of the pops to prove that they're singing live you might be right Mm. i I played them like a and b back to back and the only difference i could make out was was just the speed of it um so in that case if it was the orchestra then they didn't do a disservice it really does sound that cheap (laughs) i don't know (laughs) it sounds dated um perhaps Mm. deliberately so Yes. You know that they're aiming for something like that, for that kind of sound. And he's definitely singing live here because mm. he sounds rough <laughs> at yes. times. He sounds slightly hanging <laughs> whilst, you know, dressed in this kind of Giacomo shirt that's far too big for him. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, would you call that a Hawaiian shirt? It's a little bit too tasteful for a Hawaiian shirt in 1980. Yeah, not quite Hawaiian. No. No. More of a Hawaiian tabard, perhaps. Yeah. And I sort of don't like the fact that Jimmy's stranded up on that platform away yeah. from the kids. Yeah, he looks lonely, he doesn't he? Does, well, he is, isn't he? <laughs> he is, yeah. yeah. Well. He's far too high up. I don't know why they did that. What's that song called, Simon? Someone try and bring Jimmy back from the observation tower. Yeah. <laughs> His feet are obscured by dry ice as well, so you can't even see it. It's like he's just sort of floating there. Yeah. Mm. He's doing his best and he's giving it the air grabs and he's trying to deliver it. But yeah, I don't know. I, I just think it was it's nice to see a genuine Motown star on British TV. Yeah. That in itself would have, I imagine at the time, had a bit of a novelty factor to it. Yes. He was a bit like Edwin Starr in that respect um, and, and a bit mm. like Gino Washington, although, of course, Gino wasn't on Motown in the sense that he came over here for quite yeah. a while and made his living in the UK, Jimmy yes. Ruffin. So I think because of that, he, he looms disproportionately large in the imagination mm. of Britain. Soul fans, but he hadn't had a hit for a while when this came out. But around this time, as you say, at the turn of the eighties, there seemed to be this wave of nostalgia and affection and fondness for these old Motown acts. So you had the Detroit Spinners reaching number one with "Working My Way Back to You" this year, and then the following year, eighty-one, you've got the Four Tops having a big hit with "When She Was My Girl." Yes, and uh, and in the middle, you've got this, and and it's interesting that in all cases, they're not trying to reinvent themselves. They're not, you know, it's not like somebody like uh, Jermaine Jackson going for quite a sort of modern funk sound with his material around this time and Michael as well mm. but with these acts they're very much harking back to the golden yeah. age yes it's not a classic this but you sort of don't begrudge the three minutes of your time that it takes up I think no it's proper chicken in a basket disco soul but it's it's grade A poultry meat and, and it's a well crafted basket but <laughs> you know it doesn't taste like soul food but it'll do for us British cunts indeed in the heart of the Midlands yeah. and his voice is always just wonderful to listen to uh, especially yes. in live, which is why i don't know why he's up on that platform like he's got a restriction order on him or something yes. um, 
Very odd. So, the following week, Hold On To My Love soared 22 places to number 14, and a week later it got to number 7, its highest position. The follow-up, Night of Love, failed to chart and he never did again, although in 1984 he was recruited by Paul Weller for the Council Collective to chip in with the single Soul Deep Part 1, the benefit single for the Miners, which got to number 24 in December of that year, and he died in 2014 at the age of 78. Now, we played you some David Coverdale. Let's play you some heavy music by a newish band. This is Saxon. They're well in the charts with Wheels of Steel. As the camera dollies back from Jimmy Ruffin, grinding out the last of Hold On To My Love, we see Vance overseeing a gaggle of the kids and mumbling about the last song that I couldn't quite catch, Soz. He then tells us that we've had some David Coverdale and now it's time for some metal from a newish band who are well in the charts. <laughs> As some girl off camera giggles, yeah. he introduces Wheels of Steel by Saxon. Formed in Barnsley in 1975, Son of a Bitch played the Yorkshire <laughs> rock circuit in the mid-70s with a drummer called Frank Gill a former member of the Glitter Band. Changing their name to Saxon in the summer of 1978 when they signed a deal with Career Records in France, they supported Motorhead and Gillen and put out their eponymous debut LP in 1979. This single, the follow-up to Backs to the Wall, which failed to chart, <laughs> is the lead-off cut from their new album of the same name, which got to number five in the LP charts last month and is currently at number 13. It came out in mid-March, entered the chart at number 66, soared 25 places to number 41, and just when it looked like it would go over the top, it dropped four places to number 45. But the week after that, it rallied and entered the chart at number 37, and they were rewarded with a slot on top of the pops. After climbing 12 places to number 25, it dropped to number 28, but this week it's jumped 8 places to number 20. They're midway through their first headlining tour of the UK at the moment and are about to knock the crowd out at Checkers in Barnstable this evening, so here's another chance to see that performance from three weeks ago. Chaps, I've got a feeling that a lot is going to be said about Saxon and this performance, but before we do that, <laughs> just to set things in context, here's an article in Music Week from a fortnight ago which tells a tale or two. It reads, Heavy Metal hitting back with a bang. Heavy metal music is enjoying its biggest boom for years, with albums selling a pace and concerts selling out all across the country. Often written off as a minority music of interest, only to mindless headbangers, heavy metal is now providing a lifeline for the industry. 
Along the established names such as Status Quo, Ted Nugent, Rainbow, ACDC and Rush, a new generation of bands are making their impact on the UK market. Saxon, Iron Maiden, Girl, Sammy Hagar, April Wine, Riot, Crocus, Def Leppard and a host of aspiring HM bands are shifting vinyl and selling out halls. Last week, Saxon's album Wheels of Steel went straight into the Music Week album chart at number 10 with no big promotion or TV advertising. Careers A&R manager Peter Hinton comments, We signed Saxon two years ago when the UK company was first formed. They were our first UK signing and it came as quite a culture shock when I first saw them performing in Sheffield as it was in the middle of the punk boom. Phonogram product manager Alan Phillips is not surprised by the current interest in heavy metal music. I think the real reason for the popularity of heavy metal music is that if you get into the music as a kid, then you stay with it as you get older, unlike more fashionable styles of music. (laughs) Think a bit of a nail-on-head situation there, isn't there? There's going to be a lot of old fuckers listening to this sort of stuff, and a lot of kids as well. Yeah, It's all because Carrere, the the record label, they originally wanted Saxon to be called Anglo-Saxon. Right. Um, which the band didn't go along with. <laughs> <laughs> like the UK Saxon. Yes. <laughs> Saxon GB. It's a great name though, isn't it? Because like all the best heavy metal names, you can't just call them Saxon. It's got to be Saxon. Oh, yeah. Well, Tommy really gives it some, doesn't he? It's like scorpions. I mean, bless mm. him. It's it's nice for Tommy. I feel happy for Tommy uh, by yes. this point in the show. We've had White Snake. Now we've got Saxon and he's going on about how it's good to see some heavy music back in the charts and then mm. he gives it the full Tommy doesn't he on on yes. wheels he goes wheels of steel um, <laughs> yes. I mean you sort of imagine he's got if not a boner then at least the stirrings of a semi going on by this mm. point they are the one band uh, on the show so far who definitely aren't wearing Saxons Saxon yeah I, mean, I know their legs shocking isn't their it their legs are as straight as their sexuality mm. no question about it <laughs> but um, yeah he, he just describes them as, as a newish band and 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 they were um but they i think they mm. were not quite the first nawabum band i was aware mm. of because mm. running free by iron maiden came out in february yes. 1980 that was a hit and i remember that but in terms of saxon being newish here's how quickly music moved in in the olden days yeah. right Saxon released four albums in their first two years, mm. and uh, there were just four months between the second and third album, both released in 1980. Right? And the title track of the fourth album, which was Denim and Leather from 1981, is nostalgic for 1979. Yeah. Yes, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes, where were you in 79 when the dam began to burst? Did you check us out down at the local show? Right, And their, their fans are probably thinking, of course I remember. It's only two <laughs> years ago. I haven't even changed my underpants in then being met- <laughs> cheap, cheap digger metalers there <laughs> I was just going to say that it, it feels like a very South Yorkshire thing the, the Nawabam the new wave of British heavy metal what with mm. Saxon and Def Leppard um, you, you've got that whole connection with heavy industry and metal anyway um, yes. obviously Black Sabbath being from the, the West Midlands and that's where it all begins and, and also mm. places like the North East and the Welsh Valleys being real heartlands of metal fandom yeah. um, Saxon mm. as you mm. say from Barnsley in in terms of Barnsley icons, there, there's uh, basically Michael Parkinson, uh, you've mm. got 
uh, Brian Glover, Arthur Scargill, and Biff Byford. Ooh. So that you know, he he's right up there. Uh, have you looked into his life before Saxon? It's unbelievably grim. Go on. His mother died when he was eleven. Um, his violent alcoholic father, uh, first of all, lost an arm in an industrial accident, Oof. and then died when Biff was thirteen. And then Biff got his girlfriend pregnant when he was fifteen. Um, I mean, fucking hell. Then uh, he he works in the coal industry, but he was told he was too tall to go down the mines, so they kind of put him in the pump house or something. Could have got a job as a prop. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. So when when you know that stuff, you sort of wish him well. You Mm. sort of think, it may not be my kind of music, but fair fucks Mm. to you, you know. He seems like a likeable doofus, which which you often get with heavy metal bands, do you know what Mm. I mean? Yeah, yeah, that that's absolutely part of the appeal of Saxon. Yeah. The northernness is a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, the slight humour. And there's a moustache on stage here that's very... Ooh. It's very <laughs> Seth Armstrong, isn't it? It's, yes, it's, yeah, we'll, you know? we'll come to that later. But oh, before yes. we go any further, Neil, can you provide a casting vote? Because um, Simon just called the lead singer Biff Byford, and I always assumed it was Biff Bifford. What is it? I think it's Bifford, you know. Ooh. It, although it is, pre- it is spelt Byford. <laughs> but yeah i think it's biff bifford that would i mean because you know that that trend of 80s metal singers having names yeah. that were just daft yes um, and sounded like wrestlers names yes. ultimately. Yes. Um, biff bifford sounds like the mortal enemy of roger the dodger and he's going to give him an absolute bashing after school for conning a bag of sweets out of him i'm sticking with bifford only because um that's how it's pronounced in a little bit of documentary footage which i'm going to allude to later oh, on. okay okay <laughs> But yeah, you're right, Saxon, like all heavy metal bands of this era, well, most of them anyway, they all look like grafters. They look like they've just come off the lathe and put a guitar on. Yeah. You've seen the um, Judas Priest documentary, haven't you, um, Dream Deceivers, mm. about their trial in America. Yeah, yeah. And there's a scene where they're all standing there waiting for the verdict, and they all look like a, a load of miners that have got involved in a fishing weekend that's gone horribly wrong. You know what I mean? And, and, to, and to bands like this, you know, Top of the Pops is hugely important. Yes. Um, and and mm. it's not just hugely important in a promotional sense. They've had their minds blown by Sweet and Bowie and all of that in the early 70s. So they, mm. they make a show. Yeah. of being on top of the pops and fuck what a sight we get here yes or, i mean also thanks to the the stage again you know um i think the production values on this show like simon mentioned are occasionally spot on mm. those mm. big spiral circles within circles that are above the band yes um even if they look a state and it's a great state a, a massive stack of amps even though there's no need for them oh yeah like the stone roses <laughs> doing fool's gold <laughs> but yeah i mean it, it it's a perfect stage set for them yes and a signifier of that massive crossover really between glam i mean you mentioned the the the, the glitter band connection that kind of connection between glam and gayness and campness and the Wobberham at this point yeah the way they're set out on stage is odd yeah because you, you've got pete gill the drummer up front and this is this is a recurring theme isn't it it's, it's the drummers to the Yes. Front episode of Top of the Pops. Yes. I was uh, complaining before or mocking uh, Ian Pace for wearing a fucking bucket hat. <laughs> Your man from Saxon here, he's wearing a Saxon t-shirt, mm. which is so uncool. You're not meant to do oh. that. Um, having said that, I am wearing a pop crazed youngster t-shirt. <laughs> as hey. So, so I, I shouldn't cast the first stone. Possibly. <laughs> a few other visual observations before we get to the main one, which I know you're dying <laughs> to talk about. Um, 
the the guitarist. Um, I'm not sure if it's Paul Quinn or Graham Oliver because they are two mm. guitarists. But one of them's playing a, a Gibson Flying V. Of yes. course he is, because mm. that was the fucking metal guitar was, at yes. that time. And he's wearing tiger print leggings. Mm. And again, I can't laugh because I've got those exact leggings. <laughs> so basically, I am a member of Saxon. <laughs> um, and then you've got Biff at the back, and it's like it's like a school photo where the tall kids get sent mm. to the back of the row. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> but this song, chaps, I was absolutely shocked to discover that they're singing about a car instead of a motorbike yeah it's grease lightning for grebos isn't it yeah and it's forced me into comparing and contrasting with the other big car song of the Aventis, you need wheels by the merton parkers so <laughs> what we know about saxon's car is uh, it's a 68 chevy with pipes on the sides yeah right in barnsley it runs on aviation fuel it goes up to 140 miles an hour and more mm. It's capable of blowing away a Trans Am from a standing start. Uh, it helps Biff Bifford slash Byford take no jive from the motorway pigs <laughs> and has wheels of steel, which is a bit fucking thick, really, because you can just imagine all the sparks flying up and people going, oh, fucking hell, here's Saxon again. He's talking about his rims, man. This is proto-hip-hop. Yeah, because to me, to me, wheels of steel is always Grandmaster Flash and the wheels of, of steel. But don't, you know what I mean? Don't forget that on the album Wheels of Steel, there is a song called Motorcycle Man. So they do have yes. the biker angle oh yes oh yes we'll get to that in a minute neil but the merton parker's car Mm. it's a low slung sports car finished in red it's guaranteed 100 miles from nothing dead it's got heated windscreens front and rear all the latest things it's even pours you a beer there's a seven band radio stereogram there's only one previous owner but he was a stunt man (laughs) value 500 pound now and the rest next week what what which one of those two is appealing to you chaps well to be honest with you both of those descriptions um as a dad and a buyer of cars in my past <laughs> well yeah where's the talk about reliability affordability yeah. of parts what's the mileage here you know mm. what both of those songs are lacking is you know it ain't no shit you'll be getting lots of tit yes <laughs> <laughs> you know that i ain't bragging it's a real pussy wagon <laughs> yeah it's it's funny you mentioned that you assumed Wheels of Steel was about a motorbike yeah. because I assumed You Need Wheels by Merton Parkers was about a Lambretta. Exactly. Which, you know, a 68 Chevy with pipes on the side. What, on the A628? Yes. I don't believe you, <laughs> yeah. Biff. I don't believe you. But yeah, uh, they, they were obsessed with the biker thing because as well as that track you mentioned from the same album, on the first Saxon album, there's a track called Stallions of the Highway, <laughs> <laughs> which is about being a biker. So yeah, he's kind of upgraded, I suppose, from two wheels to four. I mean, Saxon at the, at the moment, they do have an American car that they go about on tour with. I like the KLF. Yes. Yeah, but it's it's an Oldsmobile 99. Yeah, what a shame it wasn't a 98 Oldsmobile. They could have yeah. aligned with Public Enemy. <laughs> Bring the noise of with course. Public Enemy and Saxon. Yeah, oh, yeah. would have been miles better than fucking Anthrax. I hate that song. <laughs> I love it. But, I mean, the thing is with this song, you can tell immediately this isn't the Wobbaham. You can immediately yes. tell the difference between this and those dinosaurs that we've already seen, like, like Coverdale and White. Yes. Saxon had a few rules when they were starting up that, that Bifford used to talk about. No covers, that was an important one for them, and no jamming. 
Right. Um, mm. he, you know, he said in an interview that we want everything to build to a crescendo mm. all the time. And by the way, in the same interview from Sounds in 79, the bassist Steve says, at the end of most gigs, I want to throw my arms wide and say to the audience, I love you. Thanks for letting me play. I'd open my bowels for them. Oh. Um, and the wobble <laughs> pants And his bowels I mean, on them, yeah. Yeah, I mean, partly here, you could say that that kind of no covers, no jamming policy that's kind of slightly the influence of punk but I actually think the influence here massively as we see a lot in the Wobbaham is ACDC mm. there's a lot of ACDC likes around in this period from Saxon themselves to as you mentioned our, uh, the Swiss band Crocus yes <laughs> Crocus fucking up um, Long Stick Go Boom by Crocus is one of the best ACDC sort of rip-offs ever right but Crocus fuck it because they did a song called Smelly Nelly which is <laughs> which is literally honestly I'm not uh, you know just google the lyrics don't listen video to it. playlist everyone <laughs> it's one of the most <laughs> unpleasant songs ever um it's horrible hateful song <laughs> but anyway you get that mix of acdc also a bit of a bit of glam rock the northernness that we've mentioned mm. they're, they're not po-faced no or pretty to be honest with you no <laughs> you know and and they're, they're like a lot of these bands they're having a laugh yeah. at the moment Paul Quinn, the guitarist, is uh, just late 79. He's got his cock and balls out on stage at the Sunderland Locarno, and the bouncer puts an axe through their back line. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, the guitarist Paul Quinn, at this point, has one of those rotating things to spin his guitar. Yes. You know, and, oh, and, yeah. And he often smacks himself in the mouth. <laughs> um, <laughs> and like Simon said, yeah, Paul Quinn, I think it is Paul Quinn who's got the, 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 the leopard print spandex on. Mm. In this performance, I particularly like the fact that most people's legs are wide apart yes um but but quinn doesn't he has it he kind of stepped it reminds me massively of uh, once i was told i was watching metallica live and i was told by their press officer you've got to go behind the stage to watch him because when you watch what lars ulrich's doing it's amazing right mm. so I'm, I'm i was standing backstage watching him doing his double kick drum stuff and immediately the only thing i could think of was you know you know whenever sooty ran <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? Whenever Sooty or Sweet ran yes. and you saw their sort of little paws, yes. it is exactly like that. And that's what Paul Quinn's doing on this appearance. <laughs> but there's a lot of alikeness, if you like, in, in some metal bands. I mean, the drummer you mentioned with the Saxon t-shirt on looks uncannily like Phil Taylor out of Motorhead, mm. I think. And, and mm. he's chewing gum, clearly, because he's nervous. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. There's a lot of ACDC-ness here. Yeah. But this is an amazing year for Saxon. Yes. I mean, the first band, really the first Wobbleham band, I think, that got signed. And it is odd that they get signed to that particular label, who were really... A disco label. Yeah, exactly. Mm. More of a sort of Italo disco label. Um, famously, you know, when Saxon go over to sign for Carrera, it's that classic thing that, that they get on a train at Doncaster... They go down to London, they're given 80 quid each to buy clothes. They, they, you know, they hair around uh, Carnaby Street, tarting themselves up. Then they go to Paris. get some jump shoes. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, wherever, wherever, they, wherever metal wear was, was available at that time. And, and then they go over to Paris, they sign the deal. They're leaning on a big glass table oh, no. in the penthouse office of this very, very, you know, moneyed up record company. And one of them leans on it too far and it smashes into pieces, <laughs> into a thousand pieces. They're, they're mortified and they head back home. But it's an amazing year for them. Well, put it this way, Neil. Saxon's first gig of 1980, 
the assembly mm. hall of Oakham High School in Mansfield. One pound yeah, to get yeah. in. The last gig of 1980, headlining at Hammersmith Odeon, £3.25 a ticket. A meteoric rise. Mm. Indeed. and Yeah, absolutely. And this is the year where, of course, they're on the bill at the inaugural Monsters of yes, Rock Festival. Right. Hosted at Castle Donington on August the 16th with alongside Judas Priest and Scorpions mm. and headliners Rainbow. Oof. You know, so, so this is a huge year for them, a big year for them. And, and it's mental because Wheels of Steel with... As we've mentioned, not that much radio support or anything else. It does sell 250,000 copies. Yeah. It's all happening for them this year. Yes. It's all yeah. right, this song, but it's no 747 Strangers in the Night, no. is it? Because that, yeah. right, so that's, that's a true story about a potential plane crash, and you can't get any more metal than that. No. And that's got an amazing <laughs> riff, and it's got real excitement and drama to it, you know. Mm. This is Scandinavia 101, for God's sake, get the ground lights on, and all that. I fucking love it. But but Wheels of Steel, it's a bit sort of one note and plodding, but it's all right. Mm. But the most yeah. alarming thing about Wheels of Steel is the artwork. Have you seen it? No. It's a no. massive Nazi eagle clutching oh, a wheel course, instead yes. of a swastika. Yes. <clears throat> it's like, oh, it's complete, like, it's, it's not just by chance. It's not any old eagle. It's definitely no. that Nazi eagle. Any, any, uh, any old eagle. Yeah. It's fucking Iron Eagle, yeah. Yes. Yeah, but it's it's well, a clutching or, or steel, yeah, uh, instead of a swastika. Yeah, but that was, their, that was their motif all the way through, wasn't it? Because Strong Arm of the Law had that eagle holding a police badge. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. Fucking hell. There is that dangerous congruity between these kind of bands and Nazi imagery, yeah, yeah. to be honest. Which we'll I mean, as we we'll see, we should, yeah. Yeah, exactly, indeed. I would have completely ignored this or sulked at it or tuttered as, you know, I was a mm. mod man. I'm, I'm not giving metal any fucking house room, and it? It wasn't until 1986 that I allowed metal in my life through the medium of hip-hop when I listened to Raising right. Hell and uh, License mm. to Well. I mean, I remember one time at college, right about 1988 or something like that, I got into a huge argument with chart music luminary Mad Phil, uh, the Rush mm. obsessive that I mentioned earlier. And, you know, he was going, oh, hip-hop shit. What you fucking, what you listening to that for? And I said, what are you listening to fucking metal for and Rush and all this shit? And he demanded to listen to what I had on at my Walkman. And I played it, and it was by all means necessary by Boogie Down Productions. Second right. track, you slip in, and it comes on, and he just looks at me, and he's just said... That's fucking smoke on the water, you thick cunt. And I had no idea. <laughs> and in order to make this musical exchange, your bedrooms were next to each other and you smashed through the wall with a microphone yes. stand. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Do we address the elephant in the room now? Yeah, come on. <laughs> Let's have it. All right. I mean, it's the bassist, isn't it? We've got to talk about yes. the bassist. Steve Dawson, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Trevor Boulder of Nawabham. You can't take your eyes off him. No, you, you can't. But you want you to. Can't. You want to take your eyes off him, but you can't. He looks like Paul Rutherford's dad, doesn't he? Yes, it's incredible. His look is quite summing. Or Freddie Mercury, sapped of all self-belief. Okay. I mean, look, me and Simon, we we got no reason to. But he's a, he's got a right slaphead on him, hasn't he's he? He's balding, in a, in yeah. A, in a genre which prizes hair above most other things. Mm. Yeah, so he's balding, mm. but he's compensating... With the massive moustache. Yes. And he's got, yeah, he's got the spandex leggings. He's got white daps on. And he's got a black yeah. jacket over a bare chest. He looks and- like a politician visiting a farm or something, doesn't he? With <laughs> them, like fucking booty things on. <laughs> and of course, he's got his legs very wide apart. But the thing that I found course, unsettling. Very wide apart. What I found unsettling is his hips rocking metronomically mm. from side to side. It makes me feel a bit wrong. It's, it's too sexual. <laughs> Fair play to him. While the less light 
tiny members of Whitesnake were covering their hairless shame with bucket hats and cowboy accoutrements. Steve Dawson doesn't give a fuck, does he? And I don't know what either of you are on about. I think he looks fucking great. But I I think that is partly down to the short hair thing. I think that's partly down to um, Rob Halford from Judas Priest. Yeah. Yes. When, when Rob Halford did that, that was quite a big move. He kicked open the see, door, didn't it? Yeah. And what you see in subsequent years is, yeah, um, Saxon guy. You also see, I don't know, I'm thinking of a band like Accept, one of the worst of all German metal bands. Uh, <laughs> Balls to the Wall. Oh, you've got to get that video on the playlist as well. Yeah, I mean, of course. They, they have a really sort of, you know, a singer who you expect to come out with a massive peroxide perm. And yeah, mm. closely cropped. I think it was a thing that... Certainly, front men started doing. Here, we've got the bassist doing it. But yeah, there was the ball um, guy in Gillen as well. What did he play? Was he a guitarist? But he was amazing as well. Ball guy was um, silk with mirrored sunglasses. Oh, um, mm. who played with John Decan on "Don't Be a Dumber"? Oh, did he? Yes. Right. Apparently, Harry Shearer acknowledged uh, Steve Dawson from Saxon as the inspiration for Derek Small's Inspire yeah. Tap. Yes, um, yeah, projecting yeah. strength. Yeah, um, <laughs> pointing at the audience and all that malarkey, as Dawson put it. Um, there's this quote from Dawson where he's actually quite magnanimous about the whole thing. He goes, Harry's lovely. I'm proud to be an influence on Spinal Tap. They're taking the piss, but that's part of the game, isn't it? So fair play to him. Um, I, yeah, I also think Frankie Poulain of The Darkness owes a little bit to Steve Dawson's whole vibe, by the way. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, it's interesting that Harry Shearer kind of connection because it captures this time where these bands like Saxon Maiden, etc., they are having such a big impact on the other side of the pond. Mm. Um, perhaps more so than here. Mm. I mean, it captures a time, I think, just before American bands took on the Wobbaham and repackaged it and basically did it bigger... I'm thinking of bands like Motley Crue and Metallica. That, that They all say that they're massively influenced by Saxon. Hmm. Um, whereas these bands kind of, they just happen in the UK and they don't really lead anywhere because hmm. what's going to happen next in UK metal is a more deathly, kind of darker, thrashy yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but, but in America, these bands are hugely important um, uh, to people like Lars Ulrich and, and people like Tommy Lee and, and, and people like that hmm. in showing them that these hints and getting the charts. Yeah. You know, this is the thing. They're signed, Saxon. Not because I think Korea want to, you know, get on top of uh, some new wave of British heavy metal. It's because they've got chart potential. If if you listen to a track like I don't know, big teaser, it's like power pop. Yeah, it, it's you know. So in that article from Music Week, the bloke from Korea Records said they were signed simply to um, be a German chart act. They didn't expect any right. chart success in the UK, so it, it's a bonus for That's them. That's interesting because Korea is the label of Dollar and Sheila and B Devotion. That's right. So, yeah, yes. Saxons sit very strangely on that, don't they? Mm. And crucially, they're not pompous or po-faced about this. And Biff uh, Byford slash Bifford is asked, you know, about their look. He says, yeah, we wear tight pants. Why not? The tighter, the better, I say. <laughs> that appeals to the female part of the audience. Anyway, you can't ignore them, can you? Oh, yes. He then says, blokes in the audience couldn't give two fucks whether you wear any fucking pants and your bollocks are just swinging. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I beg to differ, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, quite. But there's a very telling quote in that interview, which is, is also from Sounds, actually, later on this year, where he says, I think heavy metal and heavy rock in general, this is Biff still, he says, it's the new circus. You don't put sea lions on stage, but you are an entertainer like a vaudeville entertainer. Mm. And that's kind of where they see themselves. And, and they're certainly, perhaps in this episode, the most interesting thing to look at so far. Mm. 
Before we turn away from Saxon chaps, let's not assume that they're turning their backs on the standard metal mode of transport in 1980. Article from the Pop Talk column in the Aberdeen Evening Express a few months from now. Join the Saxon search for the best biker. Nearly everyone has something to say about motorcyclists and it's invariably uncomplimentary. Although bikers would be the first to admit there are some in their midst who are black sheep, in general they would say that as people go, they're not that bad. And it's something that the heavy metal band Saxon would like to prove is true. They want to clear the bikers' names. They are concerned about the poor image of bikers and are offering a special Saxon crash helmet for the person who can best show the better side of bikers. With the help of Radio Aberdeen DJ Jeff Jones, we are running a contest to put a stop to the slagger biker syndrome. (laughs) Jeff has already announced the contest on his show and asked listeners to put their heads together. The special prize of that Saxon helmet goes to the biker who can fit that bill and the winner will be presented with his or her helmet at a special heavy metal disco you know I've already got a Judy Zook satin tour jacket (laughs) I now want a Saxon motorbike helmet (laughs) oh can you imagine that combination imagine the sex that would fall upon me The following week, Wheels of Steel stayed at number 20 and would remain its highest position. The follow-up, 747, Strangers in the Night, did even better, getting to number 13 in July, and they finished the year with their next LP, Strong Arm of the Law, getting to number 11. Diminishing return set in in 1981, however, as Nawabam's star fell, but while they were on tour in America, they were joined for three days by someone they thought was a journalist who actually turned out to be Harry Shearer, Mm. who was doing some research for the forthcoming film Spinal Tap. Despite the band splintering in the late 90s and a legal battle between Biff Bifford and two former members trying to register the band name as a trademark, David Van Day Saxon, if you will, (laughs) they're still going today and are beginning a tour of the UK as we speak. Fucking hell, you can't kill Saxon, yeah, I mean, either of them. You, you do still see their name that, uh, on um, on festival bills. And and, mm. and because of that, you assume that they've kind of uh, been able to make a living throughout. But that's actually mm. not the case. In, in the late 90s, uh, Biff actually had a job as a, as a furniture salesman in West Yorkshire. Fucking hell. Obviously, they've been ups and downs. They, they've uh, had various attempts at making a big comeback. And do you all know about the thing that happens at a football match? No. All right, all right. Uh, sit down, make yourselves comfortable. This is amazing. <laughs> this was um, in January 2007. Saxon were brought on as the halftime entertainment at Sheffield Wednesday versus Sunderland um, with Barney Al the mascot. And what it was, it wasn't just to play a song. They were trying to, and this was Harvey Goldsmith's idea, who was, I guess, their promoter at the time. Right. What they're trying to do was to break the world record for air guitar, for the most people playing air guitar at one moment. Um, The record at that point was 4,000 people. Um, There was a crowd in the ground of 30,000, so they did the math, and they thought, well, this should be fairly easy, right? Mm. But Harvey Goldsmith 
clearly didn't understand football fans because <laughs> what happens is because the footage is out there on YouTube, stick it on the on a playlist. Of course, I um, will. What actually happens is one small child joins in with the air guitar. In. <laughs> Everyone else is booing them, going, "Who are you? Who oh, are you?" And no, you're absolutely rubbish. Oh, you're absolutely no. rubbish. While Biff and a couple of other members are out there on the pitch with their guitars, not plugged in, but with their real guitars, sort of like whittling away, trying to get the crowd air guitaring oh, with them. No. And it's not even one of their big songs that's playing over the uh, tannoy. I don't know what it is. And uh, the clip finishes with Harvey Goldsmith um, leading the band back down the tunnel and and biff saying that was the worst three minutes i've ever fucking spent in my life (laughs) and in the tunnel norris mcwurter shakes his head and (laughs) puts away his stopwatch he was undeterred though you can't keep a good man down no do you know this thing about in 2010 he tried to get heavy metal recognized as a religion on the census form (laughs) (laughs) it was some kind of um collaboration with him and metal hammer magazine Mm. Bless him. <laughs> I don't think he succeeded. Oh. After some balls up where the camera fades on Saxon and is replaced by a still of Saxon at an extreme Dutch angle, we cut to Vance surrounded by every black kid in the audience. Yes. All five of them. <laughs> well, it is literally all the black kids, isn't it? In the crowd. Mm. Do you think that's deliberate? Oh, God, yeah. Do you think that's deliberate? No doubt about it, Neil. Yeah, I did wonder that. I don't get why they've done that at all it's it's odd mm. and it's noticeable he tells us that saxon's new lp is doing well in the charts then he introduces us to a band who always do it well hot chocolate and no doubt about it we last covered hot chocolate in chart music number 47 the last supper of show waddy waddy when they trotted out so you win again in the 1977 christmas day episode of top of the pops since then, they scored a number 10 with Put Your Love In There on Christmas week of 1977, number 12 with Everyone's A Winner in April of 1978, and number 13 with I'll Put You Together Again in January 1979. But diminishing returns rapidly started to set in, with their next two singles, the appropriately titled Mindless Booger and Going Through the Motions, failing to break the top 40. But then, in January of this year, the songwriters Steve Glenn and Mike Burns, two songwriters affiliated with Rack, Hot Chocolate's label, were on their way to a meeting at the Rack studio when they saw what they believed to be a flying saucer malingering over the Finchley Road in North London, which they followed for 90 minutes. When they finally got to the studio, they told a third songwriter, Dave Most, about what they'd seen, and he believed them as he claimed to have seen one too. They immediately set to work to report this phenomenon through the medium of 
Cop, which was snapped up by Errol Brown and the Chaps and was put out a fortnight ago as the follow-up to Going Through the Motions, which got to number 53 in August of 1979. This week, it smashed into the chart at number 31, and here they are in the studio. And all Chaps, we get some proper spacey effects for this one, don't we? Yeah. (laughs) Some kind of whiteout thing at the beginning that, that makes the kids look like a frothing ectomorphic mass. Yeah, the weirdness of the song is accentuated by the production here. Indeed. The Top of the Pops people. They, they kind of yes. start off in negative in a way, don't they? Yes, they do, yeah. A bluey negative. It's very otherworldly. Very otherworldly. And, and it's, a, it's a kind of mental decision letting the whole weird alien intro of this song play before mm. the groove comes in. I mean, it might have been more sensible to start the performance where the beats start, but we've yeah. got mm. this weird floaty minute mm. of just synth texture, really. And the kids just thinking, what the fuck is going on here? Because <laughs> it, it, it's an amazing song, this. Mm. I mean, it's possibly the weirdest, most futuristic thing we'll hear in this episode. Yes. Um, yeah. The verses sound like, I don't know, mid-period can or something. The lyrics are like this Sun Ra Afro-futurist stuff. Um, mm. And then... The chorus lifts off into this almost northern soul place, but the love and the testifying is about an alien visitation. It's Mm. it's mental, this song. And it's perhaps the last of Hot Chocolate's weird hits, if you like. Yes. You know, it recovers the oddity of something like Emma. Mm. And yeah, the weirdness is completely accentuated by the Top of the Pops production Mm. here. I mean, here's an example of a band who could not be any more 70s, looking around for a future in the harsh landscape of the Aventis. And on this showing, it looks like they're going to do quite nicely, thank you. Yeah, you're right. They've got those silky flared trousers and the sequin tops. And they can be forgiven for that. The 80s have only just barely started, and they maybe didn't get the memo. Mm. But yeah, they, they do look a little bit out of place. They do. But it doesn't matter. Errol's in this fucking amazing shirt that looks like there's a laser show going off on his chest and yeah. some incredibly yeah, it, shiny silver trousers. Mm. Yeah, this kind of black... It's almost like a blues on that he's tucked mm. in. It's got, it's got like this peacock sequin rhinestone pattern on the front. Yeah. And those trousers, man, those are trousers of the future. <laughs> They're amazing. I'm also quite enamoured with the bassist powder blue velour yeah. trousers. They look like they're crafted out of the interior of a particularly jazzy Austin Maxi. <laughs> But you have to feel sorry for Errol here because, you know, here he is telling these youths about his close encounter and and instead of giving him the rapt attention he deserves, they're either gassing away to each other about lads and shoes or trying to chat each other up or turning away to see themselves on the monitor. So they never get to find out if he took a probe up his arse or something. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking kids, man. What's wrong with them? This audience is very sullen, isn't it? Very sullen, very naughty. They need sending into the corridor with their fingers on their lips yes i think at the time i didn't realize that hot chocolate didn't write all their own songs so Mm. i I thought this Mm. was literally errol brown out of hot chocolate telling us the kids that he'd had an alien visitation it's like when david thought that um terry jacks had a terminal illness in 1974 and the minute that uh, seasons in the sun stopped being number one he would die (laughs) exactly i took it very literally and Mm. i wanted to believe because i'd Mm. had a ufo experience myself as a child oh only a couple of years before this right it would have been about 1978 i was playing football in the street with the aforementioned andrew in those days of course this real sort of jumpers for goalposts stuff Mm. almost literally it was it was lampposts for goalposts you know you you would play until it got dark 
in fact, beyond it getting dark, because there weren't many cars around. Mm-hmm. So one of us booted the ball off down the road, and I remember running after it and just getting the ball, looking up over the Bristol Channel, and we both saw this red and white sphere um, revolving and moving erratically in a way that just didn't mm-hmm. seem normal for a plane yeah. or a helicopter or anything like that. And uh, it was really odd, and we, we yeah. both saw it. And the next day we went into school, and we made the mistake uh, in uh, Romley Juniors of telling a teacher about it oh. and the teacher said oh tell me more and we, we mm. told them everything and uh, this was uh, sort of you know registration or whatever and then um, when it came to assembly we're all sat there cross-legged oh, no. on the floor and um, the headmaster said I hear that Simon oh, Price no. and Andrew no. Rapusis have got something they want to tell you oh, fucking hell. they made us get up and tell a story but they completely cunted us off and mugged us off and made fun of us for it Bastard. and I just felt so humiliated right and I, I only felt slightly vindicated that evening when I got home and put on um, the local news uh, show which was called Points West because our TV aerial pointed west rather than to Mm. Wales and there was actually a policeman from Somerset um, which is pretty much the direction we were looking at who said he'd seen the same thing it was a news story in in the west country that there had been this red and white thing hovering over there and i thought fucking hell you know i'm not saying you can always trust a, a policeman a cab uh, and all that or scab <laughs> as i prefer to say some cops are bastards um but but yeah um if if only uh, our head teacher had seen this fucking policeman he might have believed mm. us it really pissed me off but yeah, yeah. and then your headmaster went back to his study and, and took his mask off and revealed his lizard himself and had a good laugh to himself yeah he sort of wiggled his 30 foot tongue about got to ask someone were you frightened were you scared were you thrown into confusion no doubt about it like it was from other skies that's for mm. sure yeah english skies that's amazing simon i i believe and i want to believe in ufos i really want to see one so i'm always delighted to hear testimony from somebody who really has. I, I think um as soon as you start talking about this people immediately start curling their lip because they think that you're stupid and they think that mm. what you're saying is i believe that aliens have visited the earth because it's not that i think you've got to separate the two things mm. you've really got to separate the two things first of all ufos UFO literally means unidentified flying object. Um, although these days you, they've they've rebranded it as UAP, haven't they? It's a unidentified aerial phenomena. That's what NASA call it now, or the Pentagon. All oh, right. So there's that. UFOs literally unidentified flying objects. Obviously, that happens all the time. Mm. If you see something in the sky and you can't identify it, it's to you at least a UFO. Yeah. And then there's the separate issue of alien life. Now, mathematically, it is as near to a certainty as you can get that there is life on other planets. Mm. But it's also almost as certain that those planets are so fucking far away that it's literally impossible for those uh, beings to make it here. Mm. So I don't combine the two. Mm. I don't think that if you see a UFO, it means, you know, close encounters of the third kind, no. which, of course, was very recent when this record came out. Yeah, yeah. So that, that would have been in everybody's mind. Indeed. And I think even if it is experimental aircraft or unusual meteorological phenomena, that to me yeah, is yeah. interesting. Yeah, I want to know. That's fascinating. Oh, it's worth writing a song about, isn't Defo. it? And actually, Wales, in particular South Wales, is a bit of a UFO hotspot. Is that right? right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I I only seek the most unimpeachable sources, as as you're well aware. Um, um, Craig Charles' recent UFO conspiracy (laughs) series on Sky History 
talks about an event in the in the village of Pentrick, South Wales. Uh, right. and interestingly enough, listening to your description, Simon, it did talk this episode about what people see is this vast triangular UFO appearing in the night sky, but it ejects smaller red and green craft mm. from its from its things. So um, yeah, no, it's a bit of a hotspot around there. Yeah, I love the film Close Encounters, by the way. I was almost quite partisan about that. It, I thought you were either a Close Encounters kid or a Star Wars kid. Oh, I'm definitely and a Close I, Encounters I, kid. I, yeah, I, I thought Star Wars was for cretins. I really did. I'm sorry. And, <laughs> and I thought Close Encounters was for the for the cleverer kids. Mm. I love that film. Mm. There's so much going on in there. I mean, it, it's, it, it gives plenty to an adult view as well. It's not just a kid's film. Just the guy having a mental breakdown about it and, and uh, the whole conspiracy theory mm. business and the domestic situation where he's creating that that mountain first of all out of mashed potato on his plate and then later on out of just mud and junk and crap in his in his garage oh. i think my favorite bit was um there's some guy who's um uh, he's, he's driving at night and he's stuck at, uh, at a level crossing and there's somebody tailgating him. There's, there's these bright lights behind him in his rear view mirror and he's like, okay, pal, you know, and then suddenly these lights just lift up and go over yeah, him. Yeah. I love that bit. It's Richard Dreyfuss, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, the thing is, though, obsessed with UFOs as I probably was in 1980, I'm not sure I'd have noticed that this song was about UFOs because I had this bad habit of not listening to verses or at least not noticing the lyrics. And by the time it gets to the chorus, this hot chocolate song it could be a love song yeah yeah that's because he puts it over so well doesn't he yeah yeah completely the, the verses are quite low-key he sings them quite sort of sotto voce so that if mm. you're not listening carefully by the time he gets to the chorus it could absolutely be a love song and it's credit mm-hmm. to errol that he's able to put it over with so much emotion i suppose it's like a sort of visitation of, of the virgin mary that, that a, a catholic believer might have you know mm. he just puts that kind of passion into it of, no no this really happened mm-hmm. yeah um even though it didn't happen to him i someone else anything else to say about this i think that they they did do some great stuff in what is seen as maybe not their golden period you mentioned Mm. i'll put you together again which i thought was a beautiful song a kind of gospel tinged ballad and even some of their other 80s stuff like girl crazy and are you getting enough and of course it started with a kiss you don't remember me do you (laughs) and all of that just really great singles and didn't they hold some kind of record some chart record at the time the band who'd been in the top 40 for the most consecutive years or something like that yes uh, which which i loved and really deserved i thought yeah so the following week no doubt about it soared 22 places to number nine and a fortnight later it began a three-week stand at number two held off the summit of pop mountain which had been sculpted out of mashed potato by roy neary <laughs> no doubt by a tune we're going to hear later on and theme from mash suicide is painless the follow-up are you getting enough of what makes you happy got to number 17 in august of this year and they'd have three more top 10 hits throughout the early 80s before splitting up in 1986 Chart EP, leave it here. Hey, fellas, I'm here at the news. So the 
Before Errol and his mates get to finish their tale of extraterrestrial mither, the whiteout effects kick in again, the camera dollies back, then pans right to the stage at the other end of the studio, and the effects fade away to reveal the dingy reality of 1980 and Motorhead with Leaving Here. Born in Stoke-on-Trent in 1945, Ian Kilmister was relocated to Newcastle-under-Lyme and then the Isle of Anglesey after his parents' divorce and picked up the nickname of Lemme, allegedly due to him going up to people and saying, Lemme a quid until Friday at school. After knocking about in a sort of bands in Wales, he moved to Manchester in the early 60s, put himself about on the northwest beat combo scene, and regularly saw the Beatles at the Cavern, including one gig where John Lennon went out into the audience and headbutted someone for calling him a queer. <laughs> After playing guitar for the Motown sect in 1962, he joined the Rockin' Vickers in 1965 and stayed there for three years before moving to London, flat-sharing with Noel Redding of the Jimi Hendrix Experience, becoming their roadie while he looked for another band, but stints with Sam Gapol's dream and Opal Butterfly didn't last long. However... In 1971, he was recruited by Michael Dick McDavis in his band Hawkwind as a bass player, even though he'd never played the instrument before. Davis just wanted another band member who was into their amphetamine. A year later, Kilminster found himself singing on an overdub of a live recording of their single Silver Machine, which got to number three for two weeks in August of 1972. In May of 1975, during a tour of North America, the band was stopped at the Canadian border where Kilmister's stash of amphetamine was found. The police assumed it was cocaine and arrested him, although he was released without charge the next day. This was the impetus the rest of the band needed to knob him off and he was fired when they got back to the UK. Kilmister immediately set to work putting together a band in his own image and he recruited Larry Wallace, formerly of the Pink Fairies, and his mate Lucas Fox, forming the band Bastard, (laughs) which was quickly changed to Motorhead when their new manager told them that a band called Bastard would never get a booking on top of the Pops. (laughs) After Wallace and Fox were replaced by Fast Eddie Clark and Phil filthy animal taylor they signed to bronze records and put out their debut single a cover of leaving here the 1963 holland dozier holland song that eddie holland took to number 76 on the billboard charts and london r&b band the birds took to number 45 over here in june of 1965 motorhead's version fell to chart but their third single Motorhead got to number 68 in September of 1978 and thanks to some string pulling by label boss Jerry Bron, they found themselves on top of the pops but the single dropped straight out of the chart the week after. They're currently spending 1980 finding themselves as the elder statesman of Nawabham, have just finished a UK tour supported by Saxon and put out the Golden Years EP, a collection of early period tunes recorded live as the follow-up to Bomber, which got to number 34 in December of 1979. It came out last week and instantly dive-bombed into the charts at number 23, and here they are in the studio to play the first cut on that EP, their first ever 
of a single leaving here. And chaps, it's very telling that Motorhead got their name because they wanted to be on Top of the Pops. <laughs> and it's also pretty obvious that Top of the Pops are very happy to have a band like Motorhead on because this is their fourth appearance now and it's only mid-1980. Wow. Mm. I've got no memory of this, you know, whatsoever. Um, no. I guess, obviously, I wasn't watching a lot of Top of the Pops at the time. But mm. uh, even though, yeah, this this EP, the Golden Years EP, apparently reached number eight. Um, mm. I think the first I really knew of Motorhead was Ace of Spades, of course. Yes. And this is a really surprising record, in a lot of mm. ways. I mean, as you say, 1963 single by Eddie Holland, written by Holland, Dozy Holland, not a hit in the UK in its original form. No. So in Motown terms, this is a deep cut, you know? Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying so. I can imagine Lemmy doing spins and drops at the Wigan Casino. <laughs> you know? And let's face it, if he's shaking out the white powder, it's not going to be talcum, right? No. <laughs> but you need to know your soul music to even have heard of this, the original anyway. Mm. Well, it was one of those standards that British R&B bands played. Yeah. Also, I mean, Lemmy's trying to align himself a little bit here, I think, with, with kind of the Ramones and things like that, that, that touching back mm. into 60s pop. But I think he's majorly heavily influenced in this choice of song by the Birds version. Yeah. You know, pre-Ronnie Wood, they did get Ronnie Wood in their ranks eventually. But when you listen to the mm. Birds version, it's actually quite similar to the Motorhead version in a way that the yeah. Motown version isn't. Mm. And isn't it funny how the metal bands are 90 appear to be more influenced by 60s R&B than the mod bands of the time. Yeah. I mean, David Coverdale, he's a, he was an old soul lad, wasn't he? Well, I mean, don't forget the, the, the crazy thing. I mean, Phil Filthy Taylor was a skinhead right. way back in the day. Um, it, it actually actually became a skinhead late 60s, early 70s uh, due to a haircutting accident, you know, from his girlfriend. <laughs> really? But he stuck with it and he used to go to Blue Beat clubs and he used to go to Scar clubs. So there is that connection there. Yeah. Wow. I mean, nobody's born a metaler and Nawabam, in fact, metal itself was still a sort of fairly new genre. Mm. So obviously everybody involved in it is going to have a backstory. Mm. Yeah. They're going to have things they were into when they were young. And the birds, as in birds spelt with an I version, is the, the thing that leads to Lemmy covering this. Um, he was a fan of theirs and, and supported them once. But I think the telltale thing is something you said in the intro, Al, that he was in a band called the Motown yeah, Set, yes, yeah. you know, doing Motown covers. And Motorhead had previous, I suppose, for this kind of thing. Obviously, leaving here uh, in its studio form was their debut single. Mm. But the first uh, Motorhead record I actually own was a blue flexi disc from Flexi Pop magazine. Right. Um, following year, 1981, of The Train Kept a Rolling. Right. right. Which was the final track on their debut album back in 77. Mm. And The Train Kept a Rolling was um, originally a, a jump blues track from 1951 by Tiny Bradshaw. Mm. But in that case, there is at least a fairly easy pathway to it becoming a Motorhead song because that had previously been covered by by the Yardbirds, yeah. Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith. Mm. So basically it was a bit of a rock chestnut by mm. that point. Yeah. But leaving here, even though, yeah, you know, 60s beat groups like the Birds might have had it in the repertoire, it feels like it's coming way out of left field to find itself in Motorhead's set. Mm. And um, it's, there's something really pleasing about it, I yeah. think, that, you know, this, this, this band seemed like the least likely Motown cover <laughs> band in the world. But yeah. I mean, I think it is that it's crucial that looking back with those sort of elderly statesmen of Irvin the Wobbaham, as, as I'll refer to them, what Motorhead are engaged in always, I think, I mean, like ACDC, it's an attempt to take rock away from its pompous ambitions and return it to this thing of mm. a, a, a fifties thing, really, of simplicity and 
noise and adrenaline. And I, and I think with mm-hmm. Motorhead, that even extends to how many members they have. Having just three members is a statement. Mm. Power trio. Yes. I mean, Lemmy said the reason it was three, because there was no room for anyone else. And what he means by that isn't, you know, room on stage. He means sonically there's no room. He's got his bass so overdriven constantly that it's this perfectly locked in mm-hmm. wall of noise. And as such, I mean, much like ACDC, Motorhead are this band that are going to be loved by punks and metal kids alike. But but like ACDC, they kind of don't fit into either. I mean, later on in the 80s, Lemmy becomes very, very good at slagging off metal bands. Every time he's interviewed, I mean, I I read an interview where he said, I'd rather be sealed in a pit of my own excrement than listen to metal. And uh, he he watched Napalm (laughs) Death on a documentary and he says it was like talking to two skirting boards. People think we listen to Anthrax when I'm at home, I listen to The Carpenters. So he's very much kind of, although in the Wobbaham figurehead, he he disowns it almost completely. Yeah, Yeah, I I agree with Neil that um, Motorhead are... One of the base elements mm. of rock and roll, they are like ACDC, they are like the Ramones, they are irreducible. Yeah. You can't break Motorhead down into its component parts. They are the component part. Yeah. And the thing with bands like that is there's usually no point in buying anything past the yeah, first yeah. four or five albums because once they perfected their thing, there's nowhere to go. So basically when Motorhead released Ace of Spades, mm. that's it, mm. they were done really mm. but oh by the way uh, there's been a lot of talk about the young ones yeah, recently yeah. yes with, um the 40th anniversary fuck me 40 years I know. jesus i know um and the greatest musical moment of the show obviously i'm sure we all agree all <laughs> civilized people agree <laughs> totally. it is motorhead totally. doing ace of spades for those who haven't seen it it's in the episode called bambi uh it's when the four students are rushing off to get the train to represent scumbag mm. college yeah. in university challenge and it is amazing but yeah motorhead stood implacably opposed to the idea of progression Mm. which is funny because you could say that Hawkwind were kind of a progressive rock band but uh, Motorhead weren't going to change and mutate they were not no one's going to call Motorhead the chameleons of rock you know what I mean (laughs) they weren't going to go soft and release a ballad you know unless I mean Neil you may know better than me I don't think they ever released a ballad no no Um, they never did a ballad does his duet with Wendy O. Williams stand by your man does that count (laughs) Not quite. No. Well, no. I mean, even the, yeah, even the Motorhead and Girls School duets don't. No, absolutely no, not. No, 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 um, yeah. They they weren't going to bring hip hop into their sound. Although they they did do a single with Ice T at one point. But Motorhead were Motorhead. That was it. You cannot yeah, break yeah. them down. And no matter how many records they released, they existed mainly as a live band. If if you went to see them live, mm. which you know I I did a number of times. I don't know about you guys, but mm-hmm. you you knew exactly what you were going to get. There's no yeah. fucking around. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. they were in their element. And maybe. That's why records like this keep coming out. They kept releasing live records. This EP, it's all live tracks recorded on, I believe, the same European tour as some of the No Sleep Till Hammersmith album. Mm. That album, by the way, went to number one, which I, I, I still think is a really startling feat for yeah. an uncompromising, fast, thrashy metal band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you know how many live albums Motorhead released, by the way? No, I don't, actually. 16. Fucking hell. Motorhead released 16 Jesus. live albums. They only released 22 studio albums. Fuck. They loved a fucking live album, Motorhead. Yeah, they were never about studio craft. Mm. They saw the studio in, in a weird way, like the 40s and 50s people mm. did. It's a mm. snapshot of what yeah. we do like. And yeah. obviously his voice... 
it's like filth. It actually sounds like engine oil <laughs> that's been there for months and it's full of grit and dirt. Yeah. And it's bass tone, that overdriven tone that you mentioned is fucking thrilling, isn't it? Yeah. So I know we've had some hard rock and some metal mm. already, but this is a real blast of adrenaline, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the young ones, actually, because... Alexi Sale used to have a motorhead joke that he used to do live. I went to a motorhead concert once. Someone shouted out sexist crap and they thought it was a request. <laughs> but, but in actual fact, I mean, oddly enough, like ACDC, there is strangely female positive band um, motorhead. Mm. When Lemmy lends support to the wonderful girls' school, I have to say, I love mm. Hit and Run and singles like that. Mm. You know, it's genuine, even though it becomes to be an albatross for girls' school. And when you listen to, I mean, their finest album, I think, um, aside from the last ones is probably overkill it's just such a fucking amazing record that and when you listen to a track like i'll be your sister they're genuinely odd lyrically and sexually lemmy never does that i'm gonna put it inside you thing no yeah, he's not coverdale yeah no he's not coverdale leaving here this this track it's not one of their greatest i don't think it's it, it, it isn't off one of their greatest records it's no ace of spades or iron fist but we do massively get a sense of how thrilling Motorhead must be live here. And for me, you know, as a very young kid at this time, no chance of actually seeing Motorhead. This appearance is amazing. Yeah. Everything's in place. Phil Taylor, like this kind of naughty schoolboy, <laughs> always a frenzy, always lunatic fast, but he's always got that kind of tis was friendly grin on his face. Mm. I'm amazed he got that t-shirt past the censors. Yes. <laughs> well, he's got a t-shirt that says whale oil beef hooked yes he has um, yeah i can't believe that went unnoticed i know it's the sort of thing you can imagine tommy saxondale's girlfriend selling in her shop <laughs> you know, was, along with you know um i like the pope the pope smokes dope and all that kind of stuff it's one of those isn't it yeah but did you notice the actual swear word on that set no, no. what on the speaker behind Lemme, there's a never mind the bollocks sticker. Oh. Yeah, Motorhead said bollocks on top of the pops. I mean, it's a rock and roll. Moment. I mean, Fast Eddie's exactly what you want from a guitar. God. Mm. Lemmy, Mike Angle down. He always said that he could, he did that so he could hit the high notes. I'm, mm. I'm unconvinced, but it's a good look. It's a good look. I think I'd have been scared by Lemmy as a kid if it wasn't. <laughs> oh, totally. If it wasn't for Tiz Was. But Tiz Was had kind of made them not cuddly as such. Were they on there a lot then? I, I didn't really watch Tiz Was. I, I seem to recall them being in that mm. cage getting buckets of stuff right. thrown at them quite yeah. often. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, crucially, any motorhead appearance on Top of the Pops... It really does feel here as if the metalheads have taken over the audience uh, uh, as well. Yeah. There's yes. some scary looking people <laughs> in this Those crowd. three guys down the front. Fucking yeah. hell. <laughs> Actual headbangers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Three of them. They probably all got early onset dementia now, sadly. But yeah. yes, yeah. Well, the problem with them lads is they're uh, you know they're having a good go and they're introducing the new dance craze to the nation, mm. but their hair's not long enough. Ah, no. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not thrashing about enough. Is it? It's probably like collar length for school, isn't it? It's like being a wrestler. You, if you're a wrestler, mm. you're always told back in the day have your hair as long as possible because when someone pretends to hit you in the face and you jerk your head back, your hair's going to go right up and people at the back are going to see the impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, um, you're asking if there are any metlers at my school and now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, there were, but they all had that kind of hairdo where it grew sideways and upwards, but not down because the teachers <laughs> would tell them it had yeah. to be like above the collar. Yeah. So they'd end up just looking like mushrooms, you know? Yeah. <laughs> But there are some scary looking... I mean, there's a guy just he's seemingly swigging from a can of lager. You've got this kind of mix of 
it what looks like bikers and acid heads and headbangers. There's a little bit of Hawkwind's audience here, I think, as well. Who look as if they've been there since the last episode of Disco 2. <laughs> but it gives this performance, you know that thrill you occasionally get from Top of the Pops performance of our bands, whether that's indie or rock, yeah. which is weird. Yeah. That yes, the Top of the Pops production people are in control, but they're in control only in terms of allocating a space where this band can perform. Yes. In that space, the band are in control. Yeah. And, you know, we actually get that from a couple of the subsequent performances in this fantastic oh, yes. episode too. Oh, yes. That thrilling kind of rub between bands that are too exciting to be contained and the usual kind of dictacs of the Top of the Pops space. Yeah. They're here to promote a live EP, Chaps, but is this a live performance? Who knows, because the record's a bit of a mess. This is a bit of a mess. I was pretty convinced at the time that it was and i was up until like the other day when i looked at it again and i noticed that filthy animals got some pads on his drum head so so that leads me to believe that it's mimed so they're miming i mean are they miming to a live performance and is that a first on top of the pops yeah. it's a weird yeah. head fuck that isn't it i know miming to yeah. a live record which raises the question well if they are miming what are they miming to because it's not the track on the ep for obvious reasons and it's not the original either so yeah a mystery mm. i mean like saxon they've got a wall of speakers set up which must have uh yeah. must have cheered up the fucking floor manager and the crew no end um to hump these fuckers about yeah and also there's this kind of scaffolding around them which separates them from the crowd but also makes them into this this crazy spectacle yeah because it, it's got a noise to it. It's got yeah. a noise to it that that doesn't seem, you know, doesn't doesn't seem. It's certainly not the top of pops orchestra. Yeah, <laughs> about those speaker cabinets, it's entirely possible that they were empty. Yeah, uh, AC, mm. ACDC mm. were famous for that. They had these enormous kind of <laughs> Great Wall of China sized, you know, banks of of Marshall amps behind them. But apparently, they were all just uh, empty, quite lightweight wooden cabs. I don't know. Oh. Yeah, yeah, um, I, yeah. I, I, I do think that um, filthy animal taylor is the most watchable member of the band mm. i always like how he looked like a mexican baddie from a western <laughs> yes. and I, I like how he had, he had a drum kit with shark's teeth in in the front of it yes mm. quite fun i thought lemmy though right <laughs> he does this thing he, he's there's obviously um a woman in the front row who's caught his eye because mm. he crouches down and flickers his tongue lasciviously at yes yeah, yeah 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 it's it's a bit unsettling that i mean for all we know she loved it i don't know but mm. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's like, did, you, did you ever get a chance to speak to Lemmy, Simon? Oh, I met him at the Mojo Awards once, but what do you say to Lemmy? He's just fucking Lemmy. I, I just mm. thought... I've, yeah, you know, hey, Lemmy. Yeah, yeah. You're right. I, I, if, if I'd known I was going to meet him, I might have thought of something, but no, I, I had nothing. How about you? I, I chatted with him on the phone once. Um, it was for a Melody Maker special feature about Halloween, and I had to interview him about um, his haunted house experiences. Mm. <laughs> um, not much of which I can remember, but yeah, I mean, basically, he told it he spun a good yarn, Ugh. and it was just mental, you know, just hearing that voice mm. um, yeah. down the phone. There's nothing like a Halloween stew. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I never met him, but he used to go drinking in uh, the garage, the the club I preferred going to in Nottingham in the late 80s. It's not like he lived in Nottingham, but he'd just pitch up every now and then. Mm. And my mates would go, fucking hell, Lemmy's at the bar. And I'd be like, 
oh yeah, great. <laughs> and that's it. Because you're right, what can you say to him? Yeah. At this time, I would have been watching this with a curled lip and a, yeah, a yeah. sneer of disgust because I never got on with Motorhead at the time. Possibly because of a resemblance between Leme and someone I used to see every Saturday. I mean, we've, we've already talked about local characters. Hmm. Allow me to bring another one into play. Right. He was known uh, around Nottingham as Axeman. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't his real name. I knew his real name, and I always used to pull people up about it. Basically, he was this massive, sweaty grab who used to wear a headband and a cut-off denim jacket. He looked like a morbidly obese lemme, and he'd hang <laughs> around the badge stall at Pendulum Records and read out the slogans on the badges and scoff at the modern two-tone ones and, and just basically terrify us young, sharp mm. mods and rude boys with his tales about how he was well in with a local Hells Angel and how he knocked over a line of scooters outside a pub the other night and, you know, him and his gang set fire to some parkers before he got a (laughs) blowjob on his motorbike while he was riding through town. And then he'd say, yeah, you've heard of me. My name's Machete Max. (laughs) Machete Max. And every every week without fail, I'd run into this cunt Mm. and he'd be there standing at the store going, oh, look at this one. Moddy's news, punk is history. Fuck off. And we'd just be standing there waiting for the event that happened every week, which was always a gang of older mods or skinheads who would just turn up and hover around him and stare him out and he'd make his excuses and leave. (laughs) He was still knocking about Nottingham until about 10 years ago Mm. with a walking stick looking absolutely fucking rattled as Mm. fuck with the same headband on, which had probably knitted into his flesh on his forehead. Fucking hell. It's funny, isn't it? Because, like, metal is... A lot of it is about expressing male rage and male aggression and all that stuff. Mm. And it's about power fantasies and all that kind of business. Mm. Um, But you often find that the people who are into it, first of all, they're quite soft. You know, Mm. they they, they might have like leather jackets and loads of studs and spikes, but actually like not very tough um but yeah. also you you find that they're often really gentle souls not this guy obviously yes. but mm. you know mm. yeah i'm sure i'm sure neil can you know back that up yeah oh yeah got my daughter my daughter for instance <laughs> she's immensely gentle and yeah yeah covered in manowar style spikes yeah on an almost constant <laughs> basis and just to pick up on something you said earlier neil about uh, motorhead being strangely kind of female positive mm. just choosing this song itself um the, the mm. lyrics to leaving here right first verse yeah. goes, hey fellas have you heard the news yeah the women in this town have been misused yeah mm, i've seen mm. it all in my dreams last night girls leaving this town because you don't treat them right right mm. so basically um eddie holland is saying detroit is becoming the anti-nottingham so like you know if, if, if we buy into the myth of course that nottingham has this kind of massive excess of women to men which is bullshit nowadays yeah i know i know but basically, yeah, yeah. Um, Detroit is becoming Doha, where apparently um, <laughs> the, the population is 81% male because of all the transient workers. Of course, that, that yeah. figure itself um, fluctuates according to how many of them are dying in the construction mm. of sports washing arenas. Bit of politics yeah, there. fuck the World Cup. Yeah. I'm about to ask this question. Did Lemmy get away with murder? Isn't he just Jeremy Clarkson with warts? I mean, as we all know, he's very keen on collecting Nazi memorabilia. And just like Father Seamus Fitzpatrick in Father Ted, 
he's not interested in the allied things at yeah, all. Funny that, isn't it? Uh, in, in 2008, he was investigated by the German authorities after a photo of him wearing a cap with the SS Death Head logo appeared in a local newspaper. And when the subject cropped up in an interview, he said, I'll tell you something about history. From the beginning of time, the bad guys always had the best uniforms. Napoleon, the Confederates, the Nazis, they all had killer uniforms. I mean, the SS uniform is fucking brilliant. They were the rock stars of their time. Don't tell me I'm a Nazi because I have uniforms. I had my first black girlfriend in 1967 and a lot more since then. I don't understand racism. I never thought it was an option. Well, you know, just as well he wasn't editing Loaded in the late 90s, eh? Well, yeah, James Brown, <laughs> James Brown, the godfather of Loaded, got sacked from GQ for pu- publishing an article to that effect, didn't he? Mm. And then um, uh, Brian Ferry basically got cancelled for uh, for expressing that, that, that kind of view. Um, yeah, it's mm. funny with these guys, isn't it? These people who say, well, I'm just interested in history. Well, mm. yeah, yeah. They, they never collect stuff by the from, from the Peace Corps or the International Red Cross, do they? Mm. <laughs> it's just, yeah. yeah. Also, the Confederate Confederates' uniforms were shit, man. Yeah. So that's where his argument falls down. Mm. Well, he used to wear a Confederate cap, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. But then again, so did New Edition. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, where does that leave us? I mean, by the by, not to say that Lenny's woke or anything, but there is that famous clip of him responding to a letter from a black fan. Um, which you've probably seen, I don't know. Um, he gets a letter from a black metal fan who's just asking him, you know, loads of people take the piss out of me because I'm black and I'm into metal, blah, blah. Mm. And his response is beautifully done um, mm. because he talks about not only his experiences with Jimmy, but also that rock and roll is black music, yeah. ultimately. And, yeah. and you know, uh, you know, good on Lemmy for that. Even the lighting rig for last year's Bomber Tour was a reconstruction of a Heineken Mark III, which absolutely ruins the legend that he once pointed to it at the beginning of a gig in Germany and said, good evening, Dresden. I bet you haven't seen one of these in a while. And seeing as Dresden was still part of East Germany and, and off-limits makes the story double bollocks, mm. alas. Mm. He is war obsessed. He is war obsessed, but I mean, it's a pere- it's a perennial thing. He's a typical seventies bloke, isn't it? Mm. As we've mentioned before, the seventies were absolutely sodden with swastikas in the UK. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. Usually in twenty four parts with a free binder. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> and, and the 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 thing is that it's a frequent thing with rock and rollers from Bowie all the way through to Marilyn Manson that they are fascinated with the mm. with the prettiness, if you like of, of yeah. fascist imagery yeah is that an excuse i'm not entirely sure yeah i mean it's about the power dynamic as well because yeah, exactly. it, it does yeah. mirror and mimic the dynamic of being a rock star so much yeah and i think yes. that's what marilyn manson was picking up yeah. on and satirizing yeah. so much i know marilyn manson is now persona non grata but i just think the way he just sort of uh, exaggerated that that kind of fascist element to rock and roll mm. was was magnificent well that goes all the way back to 1969 when albert goldman did a gig review of the rolling stones and compared it to the nuremberg rallies right, yeah, right, yeah. yeah you yeah. know there's a lot of stuff in um the dick hebdige book subcultures about the use of the swastika in punk mm. and basically he exonerates them um as if it's his place to do the exonerating i, I mm. admit of anti-semitic intent because he says it's, it's completely to do with shocking the parents. Because if you mm. think about it, punks were mostly born in the, I guess, late 1950s, uh, mm. or in the 1950s. That, that was the era that people of the punk generation were being born. So basically, they're the arse end of boomers. So yeah. their parents were people who probably fought in the war. Yeah. And if you want to piss your parents off, you dress as the yes. baddies. 
He dresses the yes. baddies. I mean, there's that Man Alive documentary about Hells Angels and Skinheads from about 1970, mm-hmm. I think. And he begins with a Hells Angel wedding in a pub in Birmingham. This girl gets married to a boyfriend who's known as Hitler. And he's got a swastika flag wrapped around his shoulders. So in the 70s, if you wore a swastika, you're basically saying, I'm fucking odd and evil I am. Mm. Grr. Yeah, yeah. You know much. what I mean? But the downside of that is when punk came along, uh, I got a mate who's a bit older than me and he said, yeah, any lad who drew a swastika on his holdall or his satchel or anything, just all the black kids used to beat the shit out right. of him until they stopped doing it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. the black kids knew what it was all about. Yeah, I guess it's uh, analogous to that situation with Matchbox using the, yes. uh, you know, the, the the Southern Rebel flag, as they would call it. Mm. The only thing with that is it's a bit harder to draw on your rucksack. But yeah. Yes. Yeah, I went for the much more safe and politically, actually, no, it's not less dodgy, hammer and sickle. Yes. <laughs> and a CND logo as well. In yeah, of course. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. And let me just add an interview in 2017 with uh, Mickey D, one of his former drummers, uh, who was asked about what Lemmy would have thought about the riot in Charlottesville, which ended in a right-wing cunt ploughing his car into some people, protested against a statue of Robert E. Lee. And he said... Oh, he would have hated it. I can totally speak for him there. He hated that shit. A lot of people judged him on collecting war stuff, but he hated fucking Nazis. He hated stupidity, and he was fascinated by the stupidity of the human race. He would probably write some incredible lyrics about it. He thought it was so ridiculous. Well, yeah. I think I'm willing to give him benefit of the doubt on that. I I, I buy that. I will. Uh, uh, Also, look lyrically into the lyrics for one of their best sort of later LPs, 1916. He he's mm. talking about the stupidity of war and conflict throughout that, and the stupidity of the rise of kind of um, didactic leaders. So yeah, I, he gets mm. a pass for me. Anything else to say? My favourite fact about this single is that there was a lapse of quality control at the pressing plant, which right. meant that um, a number of the seven-inch singles slipped through the net that had Kate Bush on the A-side. <laughs> right. So I love imagining all these fucking greasy rockers getting home from the record shop, dropping the needle on the record, expecting Lemmy, and getting Kate Bush screeching away, like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Amazing. Neil, right, I've got a question for you. Mm. Now, now that we've seen the three heavy bands yeah, on yeah. this show, mm. yeah, yeah. White Snake, Saxon, Motorhead, yeah. right? Where would you place them on the sandwich scale? Right. right so basically, okay. Okay, good um, just to do to, to do a reset for for, for brand new listeners, um, Neil has previously judged bands according to whether he'd let them make a sandwich for mm, him. Mm, um, mm. The Stranglers, for example, being a hard no. So mm. yeah, basically, White Snake, Saxon, Motorhead. What's the order? Right. Okay. The order is as follows. I think the last person that I'd have a sandwich of if, is David Coverdale's White Snake. Um, <laughs> they they right. look awful. I don't know where his hands have been, you know, Coverdale. Um, no, no, I wouldn't have one off him. Um, Saxon would make a delicious sandwich, I think, um, full Ooh. of stout Yorkshire ingredients, I'm sure. But, you know, the one I'd want the most is Motorhead. Mm. Reason being, I remember um, going to festivals in the 90s, not knowing anybody, and going backstage and going to the bogs, and there'd be just a layer of speed and cocaine over everything that you could just harvest for yourself. Um, yeah. And I reckon a motorhead sandwich would have that much loose amphetamine in it. I'd be buzzing for fucking days. So, yeah, yeah. I'd go for the motorhead sandwich, please. Hardcore horseradish going on there. <laughs> fucking hell. Yeah. When he was interviewed in The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, that was in his kitchen, wasn't it? Looked quite clean. 
Oh, no, hang on. That was Oz there. Forget I spoke, everyone. I'm a thick cunt. Carry on. I know there's shots of him in denim sort of uh, tiny pants. Yes. <laughs> most unsavoury. <laughs> That's it. But I think his hygiene would be impeccable in the kitchen, albeit with a bit of amphetamine added in, which is fine. The fucking short shorts, man. This is something yeah. that comes over in. Uh, have you seen Lemmy the movie? No. Oh, it's yeah, it's a documentary. Like, uh, it's really good, actually. Yeah, um, it's good. Yeah. Dave Grohl is in it quite a lot, and um, he talks about the fact that Lemmy would walk around LA wearing these tiny little denim <laughs> hot pants. <laughs> you know, not you know, you know, like uh, metalers normally wear those kind of big knee length shorts. No, no. Yes. Lemmy was going the kind of uh, Aussie rules footballer. Uh, he's, yeah, or the, or the uh, Leopold. Aldo Luque, Mario Kempes, Argentina, 1978, length of short, mm, you know. Mm. Fucking <laughs> hell, that, that's just a, um, an unsightly image for the mind. My favourite bit in that, though, is uh, when, um, I, I think I've got this right, but but Grohl tells his story of being at LAX airport and, and Lemmy's there and this car pulls over and it's a fucking stretch limo and the tinted windows wind down and it's Little Richard. And like they're all really excited wow. to see Little Richard. But Little Richard's kids are there and they um, made him pull over because they're really excited to see Lemmy. Wow. And uh, yeah, I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What a time if you're a metal fan to be alive, 1980. I mean, if you're like a, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, you've got all this exciting new music, but you've also got a huge back catalogue going back 10 years of similar shit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Paranoid gets into the charts soon, doesn't it? True, yeah, yeah reissued, yeah. yeah. And it's at that crucial point before MTV gets hold of it and before the mm. Americans get hold of it and blow it all stadium-sized. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's still in that sort of excitingly, thrillingly close place. Mm. There's probably not another Nawabaham-friendly episode like this episode. No. Mm. The combination mm. of both these bands, but also, of course, Tommy Vance presenting, it's an absolute fucking bomb for Metalheads, this episode. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the following week, the Golden Years EP soared 15 places to number eight, its highest position. The follow-up, Ace of Spades, got to number 15 for two weeks in November of this year. They had an even better 1981 when two more EPs, St. Valentine's Day Massacre with Girl School and Motorhead Live, got to number five for two weeks in February and number six for two weeks in July, respectively. The band continued with an ever-changing lineup, with Lemmy as the one constant member, all the way until December of 2015 when he died in Los Angeles at the age of 70. But this very month, an avatar of him was one of the headliners of a virtual Ozfest on that there tinternet. Did you see that? No. Um, you, I caught a glimpse. What the fuck? Mm, it's all you need. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely all. Yeah, it was very PlayStation 2, wasn't it? Very much so. Very much so. But I mean, oh. Le- Lemmy is kind of cartoonish anyway. Yes. Um, so yeah, kind of suitable. the great wall of noise that was motorhead and leaving here hi girls hi love. great singers but not as good as the nolans who don't make any waves vance 
surrounded by even more appallingly bouffanted young ladies, tells us that we've had the Great Wall of China, but now we've witnessed the Great Wall of Noise. He then sings, Hi girls, and they respond with, Hi Tom, so that Vance can coat them down when he tells them they're nowhere near as good as the next act, the Nolans, with Don't Make Waves. Jimi Hendrix, Public Enemy, U2, Joy Division, Marvin Gaye, Elvis Presley, Public Image Limited, Bruce Springsteen, Sly and the Family Stone, Bob Dylan, Led Zeppelin, James Brown. None of those have ever been covered on chart music, but we're about to talk about the fucking Nolans for the fifth time. This is the follow-up to I'm in the Mood for Dancing, which got to number three for two weeks in February of this year. It came out a month ago and entered the charts at number 58, and when it soared 24 places to number 38 the following week, they were ushered into the Top of the Pop studio, which gave it a nine-place leg up to number 25. This week, it stayed at number 25, but no matter, it's the fucking Nolans, they're back. Oh, God. At last. Yes. (laughs) At last. We've done the Nolans, as you say, so many fucking times. Mm. And it's almost become a running joke when I'm on the show that it's a shame it's not Don't Make Waves. Well, at fucking last, it is Don't Make Waves. Yeah, you better like it, Simon. Yeah. No, it's shit. Um, Yeah. um, (laughs) I want to talk about it in terms of disco evolution, okay? Because this subclade begins with a common ancestor of Rock the Boat by Hughes Corporation, Mm, uh, produced by John Flores, um, who was um, obviously of Hispanic descent, but from Los Angeles. But then Rocky Baby by George McRae, produced by Mm. Casey and the Sunshine Band, Miami. So Mm. um, it's got that kind of Latino feel that both those records have. So so you've got that as, as the ancestors. Then... Most importantly, I think in this case, Dancing Queen by ABBA, because Mm. that was ABBA's attempt to make their own Rocky Baby and to take that kind of Latin syncopation. And Don't Make Waves is post-ABBA. Not that I'm by any means placing Don't Make Waves on the same um, level as as Rocky Baby or or Dancing Queen, Mm. but it's got the DNA of that Latin disco sound filtered through Northern European mum-pop sensibilities. Um, What I love about the structure of this song is that the intro, vocally, kicks in halfway through the the chorus. That bit that goes, So let our hearts roam free If Mm. you wanna love me. You know, it's like halfway through. And that's a really clever little songwriting trick because it's it's the most exciting bit of the song. And it's a really Mm. clever way to get you hooked in to do like half of the chorus before you actually do the song. Yeah. It's produced by Ben Finden and co-written by Finden with Robert Pusey and Mike Myers, uh, not the Austin Powers one. Probably not the baddie from Halloween. You never know. (laughs) Um, They were all established journeymen and hacks Mm. of of middle-of-the-road pop, Mm. right? Um, Their fingerprints are all over the Dooleys, for example, who are very much the John the Baptist to the Nolan's Jesus. Um, (laughs) Finden did loads of Schlager and Europop prior to this, which you can kind of tell. But but, um, he did also produce and co-write Love Really Hurts Without You for Billy Ocean. And even better than that, 
Red Light Spells Danger. Oh, wow. Which is literally one of the greatest records ever made. So this guy, he's a hack who knew what he was doing mm. and capable of flashes of genius. Mm. For me, this song is a tiny flash of genius and by far um, the best thing the Nolans ever did. Right. The performance here is is bog standard Nolans doing yeah. their symmetrical sororal choreography in silver jackets and salmon mm. tops and black slacks and bright pink belts with I thought a slightly phallic dangle on the end of each Ah belt. funky belt. That's it, is it? That's the belt he's yeah. talking about. Yeah, ah. yeah, they're wearing funky belts. Oh, I mean I'm... they look as if all the women in Greece were outfitted by the K's catalogue. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm so glad what we cleared it up in in the same episode we cleared up what a funky belt was. This is really mm. good. Um but yeah the whole thing it's total cruise ship. There's no sex, no sleaze, mm. just wholesome entertainment. Um, although looks can be deceptive, which maybe we'll talk about in a mm. minute. I'll hand over yeah. to Neil now. Well, I mean, it's interesting you say this is like one of the, the probably your favourite Nolan. I mean, I, I kind of wish this was any of the other singles off the Making Waves album. Because, right. because sexy music, um, I th- I'm fairly sure that might have formed the melodic inspiration behind my sister's game of disco lights, by the way. Um, um, might have been made for a better performance. Or the mighty, you know, Who's Gonna Rock You? Um, mm. Co-written mm. by Billy Ocean, funnily enough. Ah. Um, so there's that yes. Billy Ocean connection there. But I would love Who's Gonna Rock You to be on this episode because they might have played the video, which starts with one of the greatest sight sound gags ever. Um, right. Linda Nolan starts the song um, on the recorded version with a kind of disco yowl and in the mm-hmm. video to to make that believable she's running a bath about to hit the town and then she puts her foot in this hot bath <laughs> <laughs> and she does this loud yeah yuru which is worthy you know it's like baby face Finlayson or something <laughs> oh my god that's like there was this tradition in the local cinema in Barry. Mm. I don't know if I've talked about this before no but you know um, cinemas in those days probably not so much anymore would have local adverts yeah. in the trailers yeah, yeah. as well as sort of national ones and there was one in Barry for a local kind of um, carpets and flooring um, uh, retailer. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, what it was, there was um, a woman getting up in the morning in her dressing gown and she's walking down um, lovely, thick, plush carpeted stairs right, right. Um, until she gets to the bottom and it's cold tiles. And when mm-hmm. she puts her bare foot on the cold tiles, everybody in the cinema would scream, like, ah! <laughs> and it's just this thing that became a local tradition and I, I, yeah. I fucking loved it I wonder if there's anything else out there like that just these like weird little local things that grow up but in response to that advert the woman in the advert doesn't scream she just sort of flinches a bit mm-hmm. but people would scream and yeah yeah you just reminded me of that it's a nice memory to have the thing is, oh. the thing is with this song it sounds like it was written at a much slower pace and has been kind of a little bit artificially discoed up I think that doesn't really yes. suit the kind of like, rather dreary anthemic melody mm, i don't think yeah. they benefit from what they're wearing no as has been mentioned I, I i know they couldn't wear the same thing as they did on the lena zavaroni show but when they do this on the lena zavaroni show they wear these sort of purple pantsuits that are way more flattering uh. what this really made me think about though i was reading a thing with a video director an interview with a video director from the early 80s and he was talking in general about when he's got in trouble with his videos and he said that In one of the Nolan's videos he does, Maureen Nolan looks tearfully at a picture of her old boyfriend and then throws it in a river. And this video is banned in case it made people throw litter. (laughs) 
So there you go, Nolan's kicking uh, out the jams. But mm. Um, mm, yeah, bit of a low spot for me in this show. Uh, I mean, like Books Fizz in a few years' time, the Nolans are trapped in that limbo between actual pop stardom and the cabaret circuit, as reviewing the stage a few months hence bears out. The image of the Nolans has been given a glossy veneer of late, a fact that was reflected throughout their recent show at Wembley. Surely not the stadium. (laughs) There were the smooth and sexy costumes, provocative and exhausting dance routines, a material that will go down a treat on the disco floor. These contrast somewhat disconcertingly with the clean-cut, girl-next-door giggles, but no matter. By the enthusiasm shown at this concert, there is a place in the hearts of many middle-aged, middle-class mums and dads for this kind of entertainment. Like the Osmonds, they are family life on parade. Middle-of-the-road classics, ancient and modern, abounded, with the newest and youngest of the group, Colleen, leading the way with Touch Me in the Morning. She's 15, everyone. A medley of songs from the last few decades provided a range of styles from a neat Charleston number to rock around the clock and, much to the astonishment of the audience, a quick blast of punk. What? What? (laughs) Yeah, and I'd love to know what punk. (laughs) Well, the thing is, in terms of their sort of um, family-friendly, wholesome image, obviously that that was deceptive. I think we we have to talk about what happened backstage at this very episode of Top of the Pops. Yes. Motorhead and the Nolans did meet up, and uh, there was an attempt by Lemmy to cop off with one of them. Um, And uh, I found interview quotes from both sides to confirm this happened. So here is from Lemmy's side, right? He says, no, there was no fling, but it wasn't for the want of trying. They are awesome chicks. People forget... Those girls were on stage with Frank Sinatra at the age of 12. They've seen most things twice. Mm. We were on top of the pops at the same time as them, and our manager was trying to chat up Linda, the one with the bouffant hair and the nice Mm. boobs. He dropped his lighter and bent down to pick it up. Linda said to him, while you're down there, why don't you give me a dot, dot, dot? It blew him away. We didn't expect that from a Nolan sister. None of us did. We were supposed to be the smelliest, loudest motherfuckers in the building, but we more than met our match. We were in awe. Wow. You couldn't mess with the Nolan sisters. That's from uh, Lemmy's point of view. (laughs) Um, In Colleen's version, it was Lemmy himself, not the manager, who dropped something on the floor and bent down to pick it up, only to be given the while-you're-down-there-love treatment from Linda. Mm. And uh, Colleen says the look of shock on his face was priceless. He thought he'd have to watch his behaviour in front of the Von Trapps. Yes. And there was Maria Von Trapp being so crude. From that point on, he realised we were ordinary people and we got along great. Colleen also says, Lemmy was the nicest, most intelligent, philosophical person you could ever meet. He'll probably be turning Uh. in his grave now I've said that. Though I was terrified when I met him for the first time uh, in 1981. She's got the year wrong there. Uh, I was a Nolan sister and he was this scary looking heavy metal guitarist. Colleen continues, uh, but he found out that the Nolans weren't that innocent either. Uh, When we did Top of the Pops, he bent over to pick something up in front of us and Linda said while you're down there. So there we go. It's confirmed by uh, by both sides. Wow. So the following week, Don't Make Waves soared 10 places to number 15, and two weeks later it got to number 12, its highest position. 
The follow-up, got to pull myself together, got to number nine for two weeks in October and November of this year, by which time Linda and new member Colleen Nolan teamed up with Mickey Moody of Whitesnake, Bob Young, a songwriter for Status Quo, Cozy Powell and Leme in the Young and Moody band for the single Don't Do That. Wow, which is one of the great incongruous hookups in pop history, along with Shawadi Wadi supporting Einstein's End and mm. But yeah, it's just a sort of um, standard kind of blues rock knees up, very much in the same vein as, uh, uh, who was it who did... Uh, Hold Me, it was Maggie Bell and B.A. Robertson. That yes. kind of, yeah, that kind of feel to it. That's that's what it's like. Yeah. yeah, and not the only collaboration between the Nolans and Motorhead, as we'll discover later. Oh. Yeah. If you want to love me, burn down, 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 They started in Ireland, now they're totally international. The Nolans are 25 in the charts and don't make waves. Now, let's go into the bathroom and see the mirror and the beat. After telling us how international the Nolans are, Tommy, on his own this time, invites us into the bathroom and guides us towards the mirror and introduces the next band, The Beat, with Mirror in the Bathroom. We've wanged on about how fucking skilled The Beat are many a time and off on chart music and this, their third single, which was written before they'd even got a deal with Two-Tone or anyone else, is the follow-up to Hands Off She's Mine, which got to number nine in March of this year. It's also the third cut from her forthcoming debut LP, I Just Can't Stop It, which comes out at the end of the month. It's automatically entered the chart this week at number 58, but that is not going to deter Top of the Pops from ushering them into the studio. Two words, boys. Fucking yes! Oh, God, <laughs> this is amazing. Yes. Um, and it's another moment in the show where I feel like pulling some of the audience up by their lapels and just snarling. Oh, what yes. What the fuck are you doing? How are you staying still? This is fucking astonishing. Yeah. You know, the beat, whenever they're on top of the pops, they're always dazzling because they're just a band that have so much. They've got two absolute stone cold heartthrobs in Dave and mm. Roger. You've mm. got Saxa just being the coolest motherfucker on earth. Oh, yes. I mean, this song had particular resonance in my household at the time because it put my sister, Mira, through that thing that no kid wants, having mm. their name mentioned in a popular song. Oh, you know, having it sung at her, of like, course. Mira in the oh, bathroom, no, yeah? No. And, and I mean, I got, the, I got the same a year or so later when Dollar's little-known B-side Neil Kulkarni as a wanker got some radio play. But for, a while, <laughs> for a while, this song massively wound my sister up, and as her little brother, I felt that residual resentment too. But my God, what a record. And, mm. and I mean, as you say, Al, I mean... Uh, I mean, what a year for albums and singles 1980 is. Susie Banshee's coming out with Kaleidoscope, Diana Ross, Diana, the Linton Crazy Johnson album mentioned, Warm Leatherette, Remaining Light, more specials. It's just an amazing year for albums. You've got to put I Just Can't Stop It in that company. Mm, and, yes. and in the NME, 50 tracks of the year for 1980, the Beat have three singles in the top 30, yeah. which no other band does. Yeah, two top 10 singles already this year. It's only May the 1st. And, and this has the words nailed on hit written all over it. 
it. Oh, without a doubt. And they've been sitting on it as well. That's really crucial. Yes. It reminds me of a quote from not Dave Wakeley and the other Dave, where in an interview that year, he says, I think there are three things you should have in a band. You should be sort of poppy, weird, and you should be able to dance to it. And that Mm. is this record to a T. It's such Mm. a weird little record. In today's issue of Smash Hits, which I would have had close to me while watching this, the singles page absolutely frothed at the gash over this song. Mm. In short, their best yet wrote a small creature in shorts. Pumping rhythm, clip guitar, a song that is the very model of simple insistence, and the whole thing is topped off with some marvellous sax playing that weaves in and out of the structure. Hear it twice and you feel like you've known it for years, and fucking hell, that small creature mm. in shorts was not lying. Oh, too right. I don't think this was the first time I heard the song. I think I heard it on the radio a few times. Mm. But yeah, the minute you hear it, it's like, fuck oh, me, God, point there. me in the direction of the record shop now. Which is mental for a record with, with I mean, really really no chorus bar a repeat of the title but eventually the lack mm. of a chorus becomes its own chorus this incessant repetition yes and this hovering around mm. this very sort of downward minor key pattern but it's massively danceable rhythmically there's these long lines of lyrics where the lines grow into these sinister insistences on you know watching yourself whilst you're eating and stuff it chilled me as a child it still chills mm. me now mm. and watching this performance you get the sense with the way that the beat put this across just how much they've waited for this moment not only is this song an old song that's more reflective of them as personalities than perhaps the covers Mm. were but it's you know it feels like the first moment where this band are able to exert some autonomy over what they put out and it's a really important statement they're they're brilliantly served as well i have to say by the antics of the backroom boys at top of the pops with some excellent mirrored split screen action and stuff yes appallingly served by the audience but fuck me what a moment in the episode this is yeah um it's not just the um sort of computery stuff they do with the the split screen horizontal and you know dave waking being mirrored it's literally the handheld looking glass that, that Roger has, isn't it? And he does that thing where he angles the looking glass just perfectly mm. so he can stare into it and see down the camera. That's a lovely little touch, isn't it? Mm. This song, as you say, was always in their locker. They had it at their sleeve. Um, I, I interviewed Dave Wakelin, um a couple of years ago now, and he was telling me about this, that, well, basically it all began in the summer of 78 when uh, he and Andy Cox went down to the Isle of Wight to earn a bit of money right. fitting solar panels to houses. And they were staying in a house uh, in Blackgang, Chine, which has since fallen into the sea. And uh, while they were there, they just started playing in local bands for something to do. But they decided they wanted to start up their own thing, and they advertised locally for a bassist. <gasps> That's how they found David Steele. Oh, could have had Mark King. Mark King could have been in the beat fucking hell. <laughs> Parallel universe, yeah, geez. But yeah, David Steele, the man that Wakeling describes as the Mozart of the band, mm. he's the one on this performance, and pretty much every performance, who does that mad yes. ankle tangling dance which Saxa called the shuffle mm. and Dave said that they all tried to copy it but none of them could do it no. so he can do it um, a lot of the songs on that first album I Just Can't Stop It were written down in the Isle of Wight while they were fitting these solar panels including wow. Mirror in the Bathroom David Steele was training as a mental health nurse yes uh, but he decided to move to Birmingham with the, the other two and they went back and carried on to, to give the beat a chance and songs mm. like this 
are all about his bass lines, really. Yeah. And and it was, yeah, it was always up their sleeve. As they started playing live and their reputation grew, there was a, a sort of watershed moment where they played John Peel's Roadshow at Aston University, mm. which is their first gig with proper PA and lights. John Peel went fucking apeshit for them. Right. He outroduced them as the best band in the universe after the undertones. Right. So the reputation was spreading and Jerry Dammers... Um, came along to check them out because he'd heard rumours about them and mm. saw them as kind of competition, I suppose. Mm. Obviously, he was blown away and he, he offered them a record deal with Tuto. And he said to them, I mean, he already had in mind, he said, that mirror in the bathroom for the first single, mm. right? Ooh. And they said to him, yeah, yeah, that's probably the one. But then when Dammers showed them the paperwork, the, the contract with, with Two-Tone and Chrysalis, and it said that Chrysalis would keep the song for five years and they couldn't have it on their album. Right. right. So they said no. And the, the way they got around it quite diplomatically was they said, all right, you can have tears of a clown and you can argue with Smokey Robinson about whose song it is. Yeah. And also um, tears of a clown or, you know, the first beat single, whatever it may have been was coming out at Christmas. So they said, just watch, it'll do better if we hold on to this one. Mm. You don't want a song about one of Dave's nervous breakdowns. Save that for the new year, when everyone's thinking about killing themselves in February. <laughs> Which is really smart, because, you know, they're sort of leading two-tone along, sort of implying that, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll stick with you and we'll, we'll put that single out. But of course, what they had up their sleeve was they're going to quit. Mm. So they they do Tears of a Clown slash ranking full stop on two-tone and then they leave and in a way surprising but also very canny that this isn't even the first single on their own label as you say hands off she's mine mm. comes first which is a brilliant song yes, but it's it a bit more lightweight and a bit yeah sort of yeah. less substantial than mirror in the bathroom so they were just sort of finding their feet and building their audience uh, and it was it was a superb move to set up their own label go feet mm. rather than just signing directly to arista because in a way it became their mirror if you'll pardon the pun of two-tone Yes. Uh, they had their own identity that the parent label, the big, you know, in two times case, it was Chrysalis. The big bad label is hiding behind this kind of independent looking front. And it's really important as well that the Beat had a girl as their logo, the Beat Girl. Yes. Dave Wakelin's talked about this as well, about uh, they they wanted to provide a counterpoint to the kind of blokey thing of Two-Tone yeah. having Walt Jabsco. Mm. It's in the hope that girls would feel more welcome coming to their gigs. And, yeah. You know, apparently that, that did work. That's my next tattoo, by the way. Ooh. Uh, the other thing about this, already it's not Scar. Because... Yeah. Um, Tears of a Clown, ranking full stop, very, very high octane, sped up scar. Even Hands Off, She's Mine, although that's almost got a kind of Afrobeat uh, element to it. It's got an African thing going on. But by this point, I don't know what it is. I guess it's funk. Um, it's paranoid funk. It's funk having a nervous breakdown, as uh, Dave puts it. Mm. It's a dance record about mental illness, for fuck's sake. Mm. You know, which shouldn't work. But it's it's about agitation and paranoia. And it sounds agitated and paranoid. So yeah. in that sense, it is musical onomatopoeia. Even the thing about having a, a glass table where you can watch yourself while you're eating. Mm. As as an adult, you, you, you think of reflective surfaces and you think of cocaine, you mm. know. So there, there is that kind of cocaine paranoia. Or Keith Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> it is funk, but I think sax is up there ante a little bit um, in, in mm. terms of the way... I mean, what Dave's playing on the guitar... It's almost jazz. He's playing some really quite weird shit on his guitar. So, yeah, it doesn't neatly fit into any pigeonhole you'd care to shove it into. It's just this unique mm. little thing. And I keep saying little yeah. thing. It's a fucking massive thing. Yeah, Sax is very much the Joey the Lips, isn't he, of the beat? I love him because whenever he's interviewed at the time, 
People want to know, you know, what have you learned from this? And he just keeps saying, nothing. I'm not learning anything mm. from these guys. But he loves them. I love how Dave Wakeling and Rankin Roger do uh, reflect the subculture that they are part of by wearing Harringtons. Yes. And they, they just really look the part. Yes. But Saxa has Saxons. Yes. Um, yes. But, you know, he, Sa- he's, he's old. He, yeah. But he's, he's old. He's, he can wear what the fuck he wants. He's well, old, quite. you know. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. You don't want him in a bomber jacket like Tommy Vance, do you? <laughs> As with the specials and madness and with a band that we're going to see later on, there was endless playground debate amongst the fourth and fifth year contingent over if you could be a mod and like this sort of thing. But for, for a newly minted 12-year-old like me and my peers, there's no qualms whatsoever. This is fucking me. Yeah. Well, it is a little bit more mod than a lot of the ska bands. There was a bit of argument in the music press over whether the beat were mod or not. Well, it's because it's so sharp, what they're doing. You know? Yes. It's got that kind of nervous energy that um, a lot of the best stuff by The Jam also had. Mm. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's too much of a leap for jam fans to be beat fans and beat fans to be jam fans, put it yeah. that way. We're having a go at Saxon for wearing band T-shirts. Um, Dave Wakelin's got not one but two beat badges <laughs> yes, yes. on his Arrington, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, talking about the beat girl, there will be the second most plastic mod badge ever after Madness Modness. No, probably the third, because there was the other one, wasn't there? There was the secret affair badge with a nutty boy looking through a keel. Well fucking plastic, mate. <laughs> yeah. Plastic cut-out badge of Walt Jabsko and the beat girl on a scooter. Oh, I've got it. I've got that one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had an even more shonky beat badge than any of those, Ooh. which was, it was just a, a round button badge. But you know, the logo was um, the letters all kind of wonky next to each other. Yes. But the B was like... A, uh, like 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 the flat symbol for music from mm. from staves, you know. Uh, um, but on this one, they just put a normal capital B for fuck's oh. sake. But I still wore it. Of course you did. So I'd spent twenty five p on it. Pathetic. It's a very mod lyric in any case with it as apparent nods at narcissism. Mm. But obviously it's a bit deeper than that. But but yeah, I would be watching this and absolutely champing at the bit for me Saturday afternoon excursion into town. And it goes without saying that whenever this hit the decks at the community centre or the youth club, it would go the fuck off. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, we all do a bit of DJing, right? You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. And um, I run my own club night spellbound 80s night and obviously mm. we play the beat when when i stick this on people absolutely lose their shit mm. it's yes. just such it's just you cannot fail with this track yeah yeah i mean no matter what you were into round our way practically everybody danced the same it, that rhythmic leg kicking dance yeah the only difference <laughs> was what you added to it so the punks would kick their legs but also windmill their arms around <laughs> the mods and the rude boys would kind of like pump their fists close to their chest Mm. and the skinheads would just try to kick the punks and the mods so (laughs) yeah just one dance but so many variations a council estate can can it's funny though the mod (laughs) the mod confusion because i mean i I remember reading an interview dave waitland where he says that at the time they're playing gigs and literally the mod revival crowd would be in the audience like just shouting mod They'd shout mod until they heard some mod music. Um, and, and he'd say, you know, this was a big hit and, um, you know, uh, sort of back in the 60s. And the, the, the people would lose their shit. But, I mean, the thing is, this is closer to that mix of black musical obsession and artiness that is mod. Mm. Um, far more than the fucking Merton Parkers or something, you know. Chords, yeah. No gods, yeah. The whole album... Um, I just can't stop it. It's totally a dance record, mm. start to finish. Mm. Yeah. It's just incredible. And I think um, the beat have kind of slipped through the cracks of history a little bit 
and I think we've talked about this before when we've dealt with the beat, but in a similar way that, uh, you know, you've got your Blur versus Oasis, but the, really the best band out of that lot was Pulp. Mm. It was always, oh, who'd you prefer, Specials or Madness? Well, actually, maybe the beat. You know, they they just don't seem to get a look mm. in in those conversations, and they yeah. really should. I suppose some of it is to do with the fact that they never fully got back together uh, that, that, well, there was there was one gig uh, they played at the Royal Festival Hall, but even then, Steel and Cox mm. were missing from that. No. Um, yeah, yeah, it's such a missed opportunity. But um, the sound of that album, it's 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 hard to tell whether one is just projecting this onto it because you you know the fact. But it was the first album that was produced digitally. Bob Sargent, yeah, right. Bob Sargent was yeah that, on, on that album, and it's very neat and clipped and sharp. And you think, is that because it's recorded digitally, or is that just completely irrelevant? I don't know. Mm. But it's an interesting fact about it anyway. Yeah, but it it is an album that does seem to be left out of conversations about what the best album of 1980 is, for instance, and it Mm. should be in every conversation about that because it's it's really up there. So the following week, Mirror in the Bathroom soared 41 places to number 17 and a week later began a two-week run at number four. And at the end of the month, I Just Can't Stop It smashed into the LP chart at number three. The follow-up, the double A-side Best Friend slash Stand Down Margaret, only got to number 22 in September, but they righted the ship when Too Nice to Talk To got to number 7 for two weeks in January of 1981. What a banger that is as well. Fuck me. Mm. Great British records now, and that's one of them. Okay, what's in a name, girls? Show them. And here's another name to country with. This is Kate Bush. Bands standing above three more Trisha Yates types in Black Arrington's tells us that there's some great British records about and that was one of them. He then instructs the girls to turn around to reveal that they have Kim, Linda and Sharon printed on their backs. This is supposed to be an acceptable way to introduce Breathing by Kate Bush. We last encountered Kate Bush on chart music number 58 and this, her sixth single, is the follow-up to the Kate Bush on Stage EP which got to number 10 in October of 1979. It's going to be the first single taken from her next LP, Never Forever. It came out a fortnight ago and entered the charts last week at number 44. This week it's risen 15 places to number 29, which gives Top of the Pops the opportunity to whack a video on. But let's put Kate Bush to one side for a moment, chaps. Let's talk about Arrington's, eh? Because <laughs> 1980 was the year of wearing clothes with your name on. I mean, practically everyone at our school who had an Arrington would do the following. you you get your Arrington, almost certainly from the market, and then you take it to another bloke in the market who did printing, Mm -hmm. And you get the name on the top rocker, get a t-shirt transfer of whatever you fancied underneath, and then you get a clanking in on the front left-hand side, and you're good to go. You're 1980 (laughs) compliant. Nobody did that in my town. No, you're joking. No. Oh, man, everyone did that in my town. Yeah. 
Maybe it's a Midlands thing, Al. Did they do the transfer as well, Neil? Well, yeah, these, uh, what they did was they did. these iron-on kind of or so-on sort of letters in the back. I've said before, you know, there was a choice. I had specials, or you could yes. have madness. But you didn't have your own name on it. The own name thing, that wasn't as common. In the heat of two-tone, it was kind of between specials and madness Yeah. Um, as to what you had on the back. But I mean, you know, I was, what, seven going on eight, and I still had that. Mm. It was something that everyone felt part of, round here anyway. It would be Walt Jabsco or a specials transfer or uh, the Madness M that was pretty big but you could have all sorts on it I knew one lad who had Blonde on the back of his wow <laughs> yeah and I, I've, of course I've mentioned Gourmet Dorna who had OMD on the back of his Arrington uh, a year or so down the line. I feel like I haven't lived because I, I would totally have had the Madness M if I'd been able to. Yeah, but yeah. I just don't think there was a shop in Cardiff that did that. So. Yeah. But what bothers me about these three girls is that um, their names are in different fonts. Yeah. Um, yes. Two of them have got like this sort of Wild West handbill kind of font. Yeah, it's very cowboy font, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And the other one's just got a sort of sans serif um, font. I don't know what it is. But it's like, come on, girls. Yeah, like, isn't it funny how there were different fonts for different different areas because around our way it was all cooper black you know the dad's army farm uh, it was cooper oh, right. black around our way as well yeah yeah, yeah. there you go midland style <laughs> but oh man once again the market sorting you out the decline of the market has resulted in the decline of pop culture i feel in this country yeah now it's all fucking street food and all that shit indeed use your markets people yeah or you'll lose them anyway big year for kate bush 1980 uh, she started off by regaining the best female singer title at the Daily Mirror Rock and Pop Awards in February. And uh, three weeks ago, Pamela Stevenson did her on Not the Nine O'Clock News. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. you buy my latest hits because you like my latest tits. She's just written a letter to Faith Brown thanking her for her impersonation of her. And, um, you know, w- would you like to meet up for a drink? There's an unauthorised biography that's coming out very soon, which claims that she's a mystical pothead dominated by appearance. And that poster of her with all the nippleage dominates <laughs> every record shop in the kingdom and is gawped at by yous like me when we think no one's looking. Mm. So, yeah, she's all over the shop in 1980. I can't believe that our generation ignored Kate Bush at the time yes and it was only the stranger things generation who finally gave her any credit glance to camera (laughs) (laughs) and here she is in a video presenting the disturbing tableau of you know what happens when you lose the end of the cling film (laughs) yes (laughs) yes <laughs> it's an odd video, this. But I mean, you know, whenever Very Kate Bush, so. uh, as I've said before, but yeah, I, I've done Kate Bush before on, on chart music and mentioning the terrifying wideness of her eyes, etc. I <laughs> yes. can't help but think of my missus whenever I hear Kate Bush. Not only because my missus kind of looked like her, but also because she was a huge Kate Bush fan. And these albums were a big part of our life together. And actually, my mm-hmm. wife, she was kind of emblematic, I think, of who Kate Bush fans were in this period that we're talking about here. Mm. She was a bit too young to feel part of punk my wife but she'd grown up in households that were full of music and you know her dad was a cliff fan and her stepdad was a kind of prog fan who had like dark side of the moon and genesis albums and all kinds of prog Mm. so ultimately she was someone who responded to kind of a slight bit of originality singularity and this fully realized musical visions Mm. Kate Bush had that appeal to a definite set of people I'm not saying she had no fans in London but what I mean is she appealed to the suburban loner I think Mm. kids who feel a bit solitary kids whose folks had Floyd and Genesis albums kids who love Bowie 
kids for whom yeah. punk wasn't really going to cut it. And, you know, perhaps, I mean, notwithstanding the annoyed female heavy metal fans of the Sounds Letters page earlier, <laughs> fans who weren't interested in the fantasies of metal, but did want some lushness and musicality and fantasy to their pop music. Mm. And for those kids, especially girls, to find a pop star who had this look to aim for, but also that sense of building pop from their kind of bedroom imagination outwards. Yeah. That, a literary imagination as well. A very readly imagination. Yes. I think this, this is really important. And, you know, looking at this video, my days, what an odd, weird thing to have on the nation's top pop show. Yes. This song that sings about chips of plutonium twinkling in every lung. Oof. Um, you yeah. know, it, Get it, down, it's, cr- kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, everything else on this show, you can kind of connect to something else, but this only really connects to Kate Bush. And I think that's why it connected to these kind of suburban loners mm. out there. Was your wife a misty reader by any chance, Neil? Uh, I suspect she <laughs> yeah. was, yes. Kate Bush is so misty, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, this single, um, partly inspired by side three of Pink Floyd's The Wall, but mainly inspired by a documentary about nuclear war that she watched earlier this year, which I'm pretty certain is If the Bomb Drops, uh, that right. episode of Panorama about the government's preparations for nuclear mm-hmm. war, i.e. the fucking isn't any. It was the first chance the British public got to see clips of the Protect and Survive public information films mm. but it's best known for the interview with the market trader who was asked by Jeremy Paxman what he'd do if he heard the four minute warning and replied it's a waste of time in it going anywhere you've had it ain't ya you've had it ain't ya no messing about you've had it ain't ya and yeah the song's sung from the perspective of a fetus uh, rather in the manner of belly button window by Jimi Hendrix yeah. <laughs> in a smash it's interview earlier this month she says it's about a baby still in the mother's womb at the time of a nuclear fallout but it's more of a spiritual being it has all its senses sight smell touch taste and hearing and it knows what is going on outside the mother's womb and yet it wants desperately to carry on living as we all do of course nuclear fallout is something we're all aware of and worried about happening in our lives and it's something we should all take time to think about we're all innocent none of us deserve to be blown up and this baby wants a wants a cigarette as well because it's yes. things about the nicotine it's yeah. a weird little song in it yeah, I, I didn't really pick up on the meaning of it at the time. I've got to be honest. No, um, you wouldn't. Mm. You just think, oh, song about breathing. That's fucking boring. Look, I'm doing it now. Yeah, I, I probably thought, well, it's Kate Bush doing a slow song, mm. so it's basically another Wow or the Man with a Child in His Eyes. You know, yeah. I just, mm. I probably mm. bracketed it with those and didn't really listen very closely. But mm. when when you sort of dig into it, um, she was kind of obsessed with obstetric matters, right down to you know her first album being called The Kick Inside. Mm. Yeah, but all that stuff about chips of plutonium twinkling in every lung fucking hell yeah and she was concerned with events in the middle east um according to an interview i found presumably 1980 she's talking about the russian invasion of afghanistan yeah and what might come from that but the record company didn't get it either they were apparently concerned that the in out in out bit was pornographic yes clockwork orange yes exactly they thought it was pornographic they thought it was shagging but The thing is, she's so confident at this point, Mm. not just as an artist, but in terms of 
how secure she is with the record label that she's able to make yeah. this the lead single from the album when yeah. you know the, the yeah. more obviously commercial babushka was ready yes. and waiting and even army dreamers i suppose yes of course you know later on she, she'd go way out on a limb and make an album as experimental as the dreaming mm. which didn't have any massive hits at all even though sat in your lap which was a mental berserk record got That's to number 11 song, yeah. and then later still she finds the kind of perfect balance of the populist and the avant-garde on the hounds of love mm. but this single at this time is a bit of a flex for yeah Kate, yeah yeah she's showing mm. a muscle saying you know i can do this so the video um only the second one we've seen so far isn't it it's uh yeah like neil's mentioned it's kate wrapped up in cling film inside a plastic bubble basically it looks like she's about to go zorbing in a nudist colony <laughs> yes she's invented <laughs> zorbing all in soft focus so we don't see out mm. so sorry about that dads yeah she's attached to that plastic um, umbilical cord with the amniotic fluid represented yeah. by polythene. It's very cheap, isn't it? Like to, to modernise, it looks very cheap. If someone like Billie Eilish did a song like this now, you can imagine oh. the CGI production values of the video mm. be mind-boggling. But yeah. I quite like the inventive sort of make do and mend, almost yeah. Blue Peter-like approach to representing yeah. what's what's going on. And to be honest, a plastic bubble's got to be just as safe as a fucking door taking off its hinges and lent against your wall. Yeah, duck and cover. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't see the end of the video, which sees Kate coming out of the bubble. Yeah, top in- of the pops cuts it off before it gets really harrowing. Mm. So we don't get the male voice over which i believe is roy harper yeah, I don't right. know, describing the effects of different tonnages of nuclear weapons and then you've got kate and her band in hazmat suits staggering about in a field after a blinding flash mm. or uh, wading through a lake looking traumatized with the backing vocals saying we're all going to die mm. i mean <laughs> eat your heart out robert smith yeah. Yeah. um and then there's this weird happy ending where a nuclear explosion is shown in reverse. Yes. And then you've got Kate and all her mates all, uh, all recreating Edgar Degas' uh, Déjeuner Soleil, which was also, of course, recreated by Bow Wow Wow mm. on their album sleeve. Yeah. So, yeah, um, an odd video and, and maybe a slightly cowardly decision by Top of the Pops to cut it before it gets really mm. bleak. But then I suppose they were pressed for time. Mm. Yeah, there is cheapness there. But even in this two minutes that we get, she's totally compelling and draws the eye. And mm. I can't <laughs> think of many other pop stars at that time who, yeah thrown into a load of cling film would have made it quite so absorbing in a way it, it, it's an amazing trick yeah she was always a little bit i'm a tree and now she's i'm a fetus yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's still that kind of slightly amdram thing going on there yeah so the following week breathing nudged up three places to number 26 and a fortnight later got to number 16 its highest position the follow-up, Babushka, returned her to the top five for the first time since Wuthering Heights in April of 1978, getting to number five in August of this year. And when the LP Never Forever came out a month later, it smashed into the chart at number one, making her the first woman in UK chart history to do that. Is this the first big song of the 80s about nuclear war? Well... I mean, more specials is about to drop in it, and that's got a man mm, at CNN yeah. in it. So, yeah, that wasn't a single, though, was it? No, it wasn't. That's no. really interesting to me as well. That um, a lot of the other bands were much more Route One in their nuclear fear, mm. like. Man at CNA literally starts warning, warning, yes. nuclear attack. Mm. And you've got Kate Bush sort of doing this narrative from the point of view of a fetus. Mm. She's always got a slightly different twist on these things. Yeah. Yeah. 
which which kind of is, is one of the reasons that it sort of passed me by at the time because I probably needed it sort of absolutely rammed down my throat. Yes. Um, but yeah, yeah. In coming um, at nuclear war from the position of a fetus, it's oddly premonition of the very last image in Threads, the horrifying image, oh, which you yes. don't see, of course. Yeah. But yeah, haunting as fuck, man. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, right, but I'm going to chuck it out anyway. Right, the last scene of Threads, right? So mm-hmm. it's a girl who was born after nuclear war, yeah. giving birth to a baby, and she's screaming, and you can see a filling in her mouth, oh, right. right? Was that an actual fuck-up, or was it the director keeping it in to say, look, it's not real? I don't think it was the latter. I think it must have been a fuck-up, because the rest of it is so consistent. Yeah. The, I, I watched Threads again yeah. the other day, and that startling thing, the way the language simplifies towards the end, and people can only speak yes. in real... It's just astonishing. So I reckon that was a fuck-up. I've never noticed that before. Mm. You know um, the image that everybody remembers from Threads is um, the woman pissing mm. herself yes. when she's out shopping, right? That woman, she's on IMDb as urinating woman. Yes. Um, and that's her only acting no. job. Imagine that being your only acting job. Where can you go from there, man? Yeah, yeah. Oh, she's etched in the memory of a generation. What she? else is there to achieve? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still can't believe they haven't built a fountain in Sheffield of the pissing woman. <laughs> With it all trickling down her leg. And that'd be a great place to meet, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, well, got my first date tonight with this girl. Where, where are you going? Well, well we're going to meet at the pissing woman's leg, obviously. Yeah, never mind the left lion. <laughs> Kate Bush number 29 in the charts, and the song is called Breathing. Right, what's number one? I'll tell you. This is, and it deserves to be. Crouching on a rostrum at the back of the studio tells us that Kate Bush is one of the most original singers in the world. Then he jabs a thumb at the main stage and tells us that the band we're about to see, who are lumbering on with holdalls, towels and a steely determination, are this week's number one and deserve to be. It's Gino by Dex's Midnight Runners. We dealt with Dex's Mark II in chart music number 60, but this is their second single and the follow-up to Dan Stance, which got to number 40 in February of this year. It was written as a backhanded tribute to William Francis Washington, the Evansville, Indiana native, serving on a US Air Force base in East Anglia, who would slip out to front assorted R&B bands in Greater London, becoming the front person of the Ram Jam Band, who released two live LPs which made the top 10 in 1966 and 1967 and got to number 39 in the singles charts in March of that year with Michael the Lover. Although their label EMI leaned on them to make it a B-side, preferring their cover of Breaking Down the Walls of Heartache, the band stuck to their guns and it came out in the middle of March, entering the charts at number 61. Two weeks later, 
when it was at number 37, they were ushered onto the top of the pop stage, which moved it up to number 29. Then it soared to number 12, soared again to number 2, and this week it's tapped Call Me by Blondie on the shoulder and said, excuse me please, but you're standing in my space. (laughs) And here they are in the studio, making a very memorable entrance. Oh, indeed. Chaps, say what you see. Well, I mean, first off, Tommy's spot on with his intro. Um, yes. He says this is number one because it deserves to be. Yeah. And that's exactly how I felt at the time because I'd never heard a song that had so much in it, all of it good. Mm. And I think this appearance might have been my first encounter with this band. Oh. Um, uh, and, and this band who I think me and Simon actually have discussed it previously, that the, the Dex is this brilliant mix of kind of a, a manifesto and magic. But you mm-hmm. can tell this appearance seems like... It's another militarily planned thing by Roland. Yes, the way that they strut on like boxers yes. to the ring and they march on, they throw their coats off like it's a soul review. All of them deep in their sort of Johnny for Mean Streets look. Well, they do a bit more than that, Neil. They chuck their fucking towels and a couple of holdalls into the audience. Right. And the audience aren't <laughs> expecting it. And they're no, they're fucking not. real back in shock. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's a hell of a way to come on when you're, you know, when you're number one. Mm. I mean, I think the reason this song appealed to me and still appeals to me, and, and I think, you know, Dex is obviously still appealed to me, but perhaps in particular appeal to music journalists a lot, is that like so much of their work, this song is about what being into music feels like. Yeah. You know, you fed me, you bred me, I'll remember your name. This is a song about how music can sustain you and raise you and how keeping the memory of that alive can become a badge of faith, a a bit of a lodestone you need in an increasingly transitory world. It's number one, and it's one of the best fucking things on the show. The way they come on is amazing. Mm. Yeah, at this point, I do want to, once again, plug our back catalogue. You mentioned Chart Music 60, and if you want to know how much Dexys mean to me and to Neil, it, it is all there in Chart Music 60, where, you know, I talk about being a lonely teenager staring out my bedroom window, but Dexys mm. making it feel all right to be alone, and made it feel essential to be alone, in fact. Um, mm. I talked about that sense of inner strength and self-reliance and self-discipline they gave me, and the conviction that even if the entire world doesn't agree with you doesn't mean you're wrong and how they chimed with this kind of puritanical streak I had and all that kind of pent-up emotion and angst I had within me so that's all there in Chart Music 60 as well as Neil's thoughts on Dexys if you want to hear that go there but to talk specifically about this era of Dexys and this song First of all, to me, the way they storm the stage it's like a hooligan firm taking the away end you know, yes. Dexys have taken top of the pops here. Yeah, yeah And yeah. it's a great way of um, circumventing the awkwardness of the beginning of the single because, you know, you've got crowd noises, yeah, you've got yeah, the chanting yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It'd be an awkward thing to start miming to. So by yeah, doing yeah. that... It's as if it's really happening, the chanting. Nice and of move. course that, the chanting was something that would happen at Gino Washington gigs, the Gino, Gino thing. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, I wonder how much negotiation it took between Kevin and the Top of the Pops producers to say, look, we're not going to just stand there. We're going to storm on the stage. Um, but obviously mm. they, they had their way. Um, he's a very persuasive man. And yeah, the, the mm. towel thing, it echoes the lyrics, you know, that, that man took the stage, his towel swinging high. So yes. yeah, they actually kind of act out what the song's about. How would it have felt to be a member of Dex's Midnight Runners and you're marching onto a stage that's got a massive number one uh, hanging above you? 
Yeah. Because yeah. all the oh. best shit from the previous performances in this episode is now suddenly on stage at the same time. So you've got, you've got the round kind of things that Saxon had. You've got the kind of scaffolding that Motorhead had. And you've got this wonderful big number one logo. So it's a fucking amazing moment. Mm. Obviously, um, the, the song owes a lot to Zoot Money's big roll band, You're One and Only Man. You've all heard that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the vocal ticks, the brrrr, obviously yeah. General Johnson from Chairman yes. of the Boards. Although apparently Kevin has denied that being the reason right. but that but he's, he's a bit like that you know <laughs> whatever <laughs> whatever the obvious source of something is he'll misdirect you say oh no no it's not that mm. but i think just being what they were at this time was a stroke of genius because subculturally they appealed to your scar kids and your mod kids but they're not yeah. a mod band they're no. not a scar band they're not a punk band they're a post-punk soul band, which yep. is an absolute stroke of genius at this time. Soul was there for the taking in terms of that big, brassy, stacks, Atlantic, southern, uh, you know, as in the southern states of America, version mm. of, of soul, that kind of Otis Redding version of soul. Yeah. It was there to be grabbed and to, and to be used and to be repurposed. And they did mm. it fucking brilliantly. And to, to be a member of Dexys at that time, you must have just felt such kind of self-confidence and self-belief, mm. particularly when this record hits number one. You think, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. all this shit we've been put through of of, of, of rehearsing in freezing cold sheds with, uh, you know, a, a, a two-bar electric fire in the corner, freezing our bollocks off and earning no money and all having to wear the same donkey jackets and hats because Kevin says so. Suddenly it must all pay off. You must think, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is why we're doing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. With, with absolutely no sacrifice of ambiguity, that's the whole thing. If the whole Dex's project is in a way an experiment of seeing sort of how punk's DIY idea could be applied to other music, i.e. soul, then Gino, I mean, Gino could have become just a homage, a love song to an old singer. Yeah. But it's not that. The ambiguity of the lyrics is really key. You know, look at me yes. as I'm looking down at you. Yes. I'm yes. not being flash. It's what I'm built to do. That suggestion that the only way of actually paying homage to these gods is to topple them in a way. And, and, mm. and there's this weird thing. You know, they never knew like we knew. Me and you, we're the same. Yeah. It's almost yeah. like Chapman and Lennon. You know? Oh, <laughs> it's, yes. It, it's a real odd thing. And now you're all over. Your song is so tame. The, the brr thing that Pricey mentioned... It, it is really important and I, I do realise it probably is a homage but it felt like when you're watching it that that was a vocal tip that was his own and it wasn't an ooh yeah. or an uh or some resurrection of some old soul motif mm. it, was, it was his it was something new it was something it's part Irish like, like it was blown a raspberry <laughs> yeah but it's his it's it, it, spontaneous but it's I don't know part Irish part brummy just part just nutty Mm. I agree with what you were saying about the song being backhanded and what Neil was saying mm. about the importance of those lines. Now, just look at me. I'm looking down at you and yeah. uh, uh, all that stuff. You know, your song is so tame because if mm. he doesn't do that, you know what this song becomes just, a, you know, a, tr a tribute, a straight tribute to yeah. Um, yeah. an old soul singer. It's when Smokey sings by ABC yes. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that's just no good. And no. It's, it's precisely because of that sort of um, psychological intrigue of Kevin turning the tables on his hero, that the song works, I think. It also leaves it hanging in the air that in 1992, someone's going to be singing about Kevin Rowland and saying the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and what really comes across on this performance, I mean, it seems like a simple and obvious thing to say, but the horns on Dex's records, they're, they're the kind of the most strident thing in the mix, but they're also a true statement of intent. It's the horns that play the riffs that a punk band yes. or a guitar band might have put yes. in. Mm. 
and it's the horns that surge you into those moments where Dex is just just lift off into this blissful groove particularly on the academic inspiration bit and the thing about horns is they do that thing of just avoiding all the pitfalls of a white rock band there's no guitar phallocentrism there's mm. no soloist ego there's this collective feel and that is ever important with Dex's yeah yeah I think big Jimmy Patterson Jimmy is really important uh, on, mm. on this track for exactly that reason because it's that hook isn't it it's so memorable mm. that the horns on that it really really drives the track because tempo wise it's not fast it's yeah yeah without that hook it would plod a little bit but it does mm. it's more of a kind of marching thing it's it, it propels you i mean if there's one thing you can say about robin nash at the end of his reign he's very up for taking a punt on a new band i mean dan stance mm. their first single it was only at number 60 when he invited dexes on and that got it up to number 40 so, you know, who knows what would have happened to him were it not for that Top of the Pops performance. Mm. And this is already the fourth airing of Gino mm. on Top of the Pops. Right. Yeah, yeah. Two in-studio performances and a play-out or over-the-chart rundown. Right, yeah, yeah. And this is a song where every time it's going to appear on Top of the Pops, it's going to draw loads more people in. Mm. Because you, I, I'd, I'd honestly, I'd never heard a song with this many hooks in mm. it. Uh, yeah. with this much going on and it was just thrilling you wanted more of it you wanted more and more of it and as you said earlier simon you know what band are they are, are they mod are they scar again like the beat there was debate over dexes but no with, this had come on at the youth club it got danced to mm. and for this we do our other dance which was called the rude boy dance you basically <laughs> clenched your fists and crossed them over at the wrist and <laughs> put them in front of your chest and then bend it at the knee up and down imagine if you've been put in handcuffs and you were dying for a piss it looked just <laughs> like that and yeah we dance like that to this uh, message to you Rude and anything by UB40 so there you go I sort of feel like the chart music video channel needs some dance instruction videos now for- <laughs> it does <laughs> doesn't it yeah <laughs> The other thing is, I mean, you know, I didn't know the lyrics to this song for 20-odd years, mm. really, you know, um, mm. but it didn't matter. Are you saying but, he doesn't but, sing in a clear manner? <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you know, when you get to find out what Dexy's lyrics are, the songs actually get better. They get yes. even more impossibly yes. better when you know the words. Yeah, I wonder how Gino Washington felt about this at the time. I mean, he's getting a massive plug, but it's by some bloke saying, yeah, you, you're old, I'm better. Yeah, much like the lyrics, I'm sure he felt ambiguous. Mm. I've been to see him live, and uh, uh, before he comes mm. on, his band uh, get a chant going of, Gino, Gino, and they actually go, da-da, da-da, da-da. So he's obviously decided nice. to embrace it, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As mentioned before, I saw him in 1986 at the Hippo Club in Nottingham, and it was the first time I'd seen anything remotely approaching a soul review, and I fucking mm-hmm. loved yeah. it. And yes, he came up to me afterwards and said, oh, I see a lot in you, you've got a lot of potential, and all this kind of stuff. And I, I just walked out floating on right. air, just thinking, oh my God, Gino Washington thinks I'm skilled. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not realising that he was doing the same thing all over the country, picking out <laughs> lads on their own in the audience and just saying, you're fucking brilliant. I can see a lot in you. Because he did it to Ian Brown at the same time. Yeah, but he? it was you. It wasn't your mate. It was you. You can, you can, you can have that. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Completely. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a fucking anti-vax monkey cunt. <laughs> <laughs> and this performance has elements of what would go on to be the Dexys projected passion review 
where yes. he's doing that kind of testifying thing. He falls to his knees at one point. It's kind of weird yes. that he's got a guitar around his neck um, because uh, yes. that, that just doesn't seem a very Kevin thing. But uh, obviously at, no. at, th- at that moment it worked. But yeah, just the, f- the falling to your knees thing, that brings such a drama to that moment in the song. Top of the Pops ought to consider the some lucky that Dexys didn't start the song the way they started at gigs, just standing there in total silence waiting for everyone to shut up. <laughs> and then having a go at people and telling them to fuck off to the pub if they're not mm. prepared to listen. Amazing. I mean, yeah, this could have gone on for fucking ages. <laughs> this song being number one, actually, I can vividly remember, took me by surprise. Me too. I was delighted that it was number one for my birthday. It just felt right, you know what I mean? Well, it really knocked me sideways because what happened with me was, um, I was at the School of Horror that I mentioned earlier on in the episode. And mm. uh, uh, f- for some reason, one week, I didn't get to listen to the Top 40 rundown. Uh, mm. I think we'd been sent on a fucking freezing cold cross-country run or something like that, that evening. Mm. So when when it came to it, this week, I remember listening to the, the Top 40 on, on a Sunday evening and thinking, oh, wonder what's happened to that that song that I like, uh, that, that, that Gino mm, yeah, song. Yeah. Just waiting for it. And you get to the top 10, you think, oh, well, I, oh, well, okay. And it's had its run. It's probably fallen out of the charts. Uh, what I didn't re- yeah. realise was it had soared the previous week to whatever it had. And now it had soared mm. to number one. I had no idea. So, I yeah. I and it was like, what? Hang on. What? Are you kidding me? Yeah. And it, yeah. I, I'll never forget that moment. I was, it's so exciting. Mm-hmm. Chaps, you know that when we researched, we rolled deep. And we we pulled out a quote or two from the Nolan system already but i want to go back there because Ooh. Anne nolan's book a few years ago wrote about dex's midnight runners um oh, right. quote for our first time on top of the pops with the song spirit body and soul we could wear what we wanted now i cringe at the spandex trousers we picked surrounded by punks we were like fish out of water a sex pistol spat on our dressing room door, presumably because that's what he thought a punk ought to do. We didn't care. We had a great time. I must interject there because sex pistols were never on top of the pops yeah, in right. person. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah, it was yeah. one of the skids who was on, or maybe one of the doolies. <laughs> I suspect the doolies. But she goes on. Years later, we got a letter from Kevin Rowland of Dex's Midnight Runners. He was going through counselling and wrote to apologise for saying nasty things about us. Uh. None of us could remember him saying anything unpleasant, but part of his recovery programme, apparently, was that you said sorry to anyone you'd insulted when you were in the grip of your demons. Yeah. I think this is the only time Dex's Midnight Runners and the Nolans are on the same episode of Top of the Pomps, Charles. So it must have been backstage of this episode. Maybe. Maybe he said he didn't believe them when they said they liked Frank Sinatra. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? Well done. Well played. (laughs) So, Gino would stay at number one for one more week before being stood down by the next single we're going to hear. It would become the seventh best-selling single of 1980. One Below the Tide is High by Blondair, One Above Together We Are Beautiful by Fern Kinney. The follow-up, There, There, My Dear, got to number seven in August, and the LP Searching for the Young Soul Rebels got to number six on two non-consecutive weeks in the same month. Great album. Oh, amazing album. The only thing about me and my relationship with that album is when I first got it, I was totally confused about the cover. Did you think it was him? Worse than that, Neil. 
I mean, we all know what the photo's about, don't we? Well, it's basically the ethnic cleansing of part of Belfast, isn't it? Yeah, well, we know that now, but at the time, I looked at that photo of that lad holding his suitcase, being rushed into a car, thinking, oh, look at that poor son, he's got to go on holiday, and he doesn't want to, and he's thinking about all the telly he's going to miss. no. Fuck's sake. English people are such ignorant cunts about Northern Ireland. It's, it's embarrassing, man. Al, that mm. is pure partridge. That's when Alan Partridge goes about Sunday, bloody Sunday. It really does encapsulate the frustration of a Sunday. <laughs> This is me by Vomis, and that's the number one record. It's called Oh Gino. Say goodnight, girls. Goodnight! Goodnight, everybody. See you soon again on Top of the Park. After a shot of a flashing red light, followed by a shot of the disco ball, we pan upward to find three more girls on Tommy Vance's gun tower, with Vance himself standing in front of the rail, with his leg awkwardly crooked around the bar. Fucking hell, health and safety, everyone. Oh, yeah, I thought he was going to go over. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, you, you know how it is when some men, not all men, but when some get to a certain age and the daughters start bringing the mates home, and, and it's not like they're coming onto them or, or anything, but, you know, they're desperate to put over that, hey, dad's still cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's no way that'd be allowed on BBC nowadays. I mean, can you relate to this, Neil? Do you start sort of swinging your leg over chairs yeah. or over <laughs> Rails. balconies or balustrades? Yeah. I can't start doing, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly sitting astride chairs talking to, you know, the kids in classrooms. Yeah. Oh, are you oh, that, that teacher? teacher? Yeah. You know, I call them. Yeah. yeah, you're banging your cane on the floor. <laughs> Calling them guys, yeah. you know? Yes. <laughs> and those um, those jeans that Vance is wearing, are they Saxons? Mm. They're definitely boot cut. Yeah, they're a bit like the ones that Travolta wears in Greece or uh, maybe, maybe the Fonz. So they've got a bit of flair on them because mm. that's the era. Yeah, just a bit of a kick. Yeah, just a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. By 1980, they would have been well on Saxons, wouldn't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He then gets the flower of the nation's youth to say goodnight and bids us farewell without even plugging the Friday Rock Show or the next track, What's Another Year by Johnny Logan. Born in Frankston, near Melbourne in 1954, Sean Sherrod was the son of an Irish tenor who was relocated to the old country at the age of three. After learning to play guitar and dabbling in songwriter as a teenager, he became an apprentice electrician while working nights as a club singer and playing the lead role in a production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. In 1978, he changed his name to that of the love interest in the 1954 Joan Crawford Western Johnny Guitar, signed with the French record label Vogue and put out the single No, I Don't Want to Fall in Love, which failed to chart. After being immediately dropped by Vogue, he signed with the local label Release Records in 1979, and his next single, Anje, was his first go at the Eurovision Song Contest, coming third in that year's Irish National Final. 
This single, the follow-up to Angelina, which I think is the retitled version of Angie, but don't listen to me, what the fuck do I know, was written by Shay Healy, a former cameraman at RTE who became a TV presenter and spent the 70s writing parodies of ABBA songs and a musical about Elvis, which came out two months after the King's death. It was written for the 1980 Irish Song for Europe, originally offered to the show band singer Glenn Curtin, but when he turned it down, it was put Logan's way and rearranged by Bill Whelan. After absolutely battering the competition in the national heat, it was on to The Hague, and 12 days before this episode was broadcast, it became Ireland's second Eurovision winner after Donna 10 years previously. Rushed out across Europe in the wake of his victory, it smashed into the UK chart this week at number 15, the highest new entry. And here's another chance to hear about 40 seconds of it Hmm. over the usual kaleidoscopic sweep of the studio lights. Hmm. And even in the 40 seconds, I guess you can almost hear why he won. Mm. This is this insipid kind of Chris Cross-style ballad. Yes. Christopher Cross, I should say. Um, it, it's as if this year someone's decided that Eurovision has to grow up. Mm. So no more silly performances. On the actual show, he was, as I recall, sort of sat on the stage, very downbeat. Yes. In terms of who should have won this year, I think perhaps... Telex's Eurovision, mm. which came 17th, yes. but they wanted to come last, I believe. Um, or, you know, Papa Penguin of oh, yes. by Sophia Magley from, from Luxembourg. A sad story, what happened to them. But, really? Um, Go on. Oh, God, yeah. One of them um, committed suicide, and then the other one did not leave their house until she died, basically. Oh, oh fuck. Sort of about 10 years late. They were very, very tied together. Well, penguins do mate for life, you know. What happened to Papa Penguin, though? I have no idea what Papa Penguin... <laughs> what? He presumably swam south, you know? Or, and, or was um, eaten by a polar bear. Perhaps. Perhaps. I mean, this song, it's kind of... It's about kind of grief and lost love, but it layers it mm. with that arrangement in so many stratums of syrup. Yes. It just never gets dark or anything. It just becomes this very lovelorn, you know, Ewan McLove nonsense. Yes. <laughs> you know, although I should say, hats off to the Batroom boys this week for lots of reasons, but mm. I had a massive spliff on the go the other night and I watched this Asian wedding style manipulation of the light. And got cool some, dad there. Yes. Got some serious <laughs> 2001 Space Odyssey vibe. It's a good one. It's a good kaleidoscope this week. Yeah, according to those who value the Eurovision Song Contest, Johnny Logan's pretty much seen as the man who saved it in its darkest mm. hour because, you know, as we can recall, Israel had won it two years on the bounce and yeah. they just said no we're not fucking having it this year we can't afford it mm. and also it was scheduled during one of their religious holidays so no nah, not, not interested mate right. Spain and the UK knocked it back because they were being minge bags <laughs> and although the Netherlands stepped in at the last minute they did it on the absolute cheap um, using the same video sequences as they did in 1976 when the last hosted it so it was getting pretty important that the next Eurovision had had to be won by some country that actually wanted it. And here comes Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Johnny Logan saves the day with his maudlinness. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say it's quite rare for such a miserable song to win the Eurovision Song Contest, but then I remembered two years previous, as we'd mentioned before on Chart Music, a Barney B's about kids getting beaten up. So, yeah. 
Poor old Johnny Logan sounded sad upon the radio, moved a million hearts in Mono. <laughs> yeah, because we've, we've just heard um, an Anglo-Irish spin on mm. pop, Dexys. Indeed. But here's what actual Irish pop yeah. sounded like at the time. <laughs> I think with Eurovision, it has become a gay thing because mm. gay culture has always been finely tuned to appreciating camp in the Susan Sontag sense of failed seriousness. Mm. And mm. it's become quite a young thing, I think, these days. Um, yeah due to bands like Maniskin winning it and, and you know, hipster acts like Daddy Freya entering it. But mm. it definitely wasn't young or gay in Johnny Logan's day. Oh, um, no. There's only one audience who are buying What's Another Year, and it's the mums. Mm. Mm. And it's not just mums, it's mums at their wits' end, numbed out on Valium and Gordon's gin, <laughs> contemplating divorce or already divorced, <laughs> I reckon. Mm. This record, it's not getting played by Radio 1, as I remember. Um, it yeah. would be on Radio 1 precisely twice a week Tuesday lunchtime Sunday evening um, for the duration of its chart run that was Mm. it the place you would hear what's another year is Radio 2 and specifically Wogan would have been playing it Johnny Logan Terry Wogan gotta have a system (laughs) right Um, so we don't see Johnny as you say yeah instead we get that fisheye kaleidoscope view of the lighting rig and credits Mm. like vocal backing the Maggie Stredder singers costume and Lou Bass floor manager Jeff Wormsley lighting Don Babbage. Um, but if, if we'd seen the, um, the Eurovision performance, we'd have seen a dreamboat. He's 25 mm. years old and he's a moist lipped, blue eyed, beautiful boy in the Donny Osmond, mm. David Cassidy mold. And, uh, yeah. this isn't like Daniel right. O'Donnell where the fans want to mother him. They definitely want to shag him. Right, right. So what you're saying, Simon, is, is Donny Osmond, isn't he? <laughs> Oh, for fuck's sake. So shit. <laughs> leave it in. You've got to leave it in. I've, I've, I've got to disagree with you both, I think, in that I think it's actually a very good song in its own, in its own mm. ruthlessly manipulative way. It, it's, it's a very mm. appealingly romantic idea to its target audience that this, this beautiful yeah. but heartbroken man is so besotted that he will wait for you for a fucking year if necessary. Oh, I think he's gone way past that. I think he's accepted it, that it's not going to happen. It's not happening. And it's just, that's it now. He's fucked. Yeah, maybe. But I don't know. I, I just I just think women like that idea of power over a beautiful man. That you know, it's quite a romantic mm. thing. And I, yeah, I, I can imagine Karen Carpenter singing. But, but he could be a widower as well, Simon. Oh, did you interpret it that way? I interpreted it that way. I thought it was about grief. But um, you know, I could be wrong. I, I, I see where you're coming mm. from, though, Simon. He's a good-looking fella. Yeah, I'm going to make my third attempt to say that I can imagine Karen Carpenter <laughs> singing it because I can. <laughs> but the best-known cover version is by Shane McGowan mm. from 1998. Have you heard that? No, because um, the thing with Shane McGowan's version, uh, he sounds pissed off and bored with the waiting, <laughs> as if as if he's he's singing to the driver of a bus he's been waiting for. You know, um, I, I think I think Shane is playing it for Ooh. comedy, um, which is a shame because I reckon ten years earlier, because Shane sang it in '98. I reckon in '88, Shane would have done it straight and really done it justice. Mm. Right. So as as you say, you know, the, the production's Bill Whelan, who by the way wrote River Dance. Uh, the less said about that, the better. Um, and you mentioned Shay Healy, who died only last year, the songwriter. Really? Best known as the host of a satirical TV show in Ireland called Nighthawks. Oh, which right. was, was kind of involved in, in Ireland's own Watergate scandal when uh, there was an interview with the Fianna Foyle politician Sean Doherty, which exposed a phone-tapping scandal, which led directly to the resignation of the T-shirt uh, Charles oh. Hockey. Fuck. So, yeah. 
Fucking everything's yeah. connected, man. Good. But yeah, those comedy songs that Shay Healy wrote for uh, Billy Connolly mostly. Yes. Uh, I, I listen to them. The Shit Kickers Waltz, and uh, there's another one called The Orient Express, A Tale of Intrigue and Cross Dressing. They're both about as funny as a drone strike on a kindergarten. <laughs> no. But when he pulled a serious song out of the bag like this one, I, I've got to say, I think he's done pretty well. So the following week, what's another year? Soared 14 places to number two. And the following week, it deposed Gino to assume its position at the very summit of Mount Pop, staying there for two weeks before giving way to theme from MASH, Suicide is Painless. It would go on to be number one in Ireland, Belgium, Finland, Israel, Norway, Portugal and Sweden. But the follow-up in London, failed to chart, and he entered the wilderness familiar to Eurovision winners, popping up to write Terminal 3 for Linda Martin, which came second in the 1984 contest. However, he made a reappearance in 1985 as part of The Crowd, the collective who got to number one in June of that year with a cover of You'll Never Walk Alone for the Bradford City Disaster Fund, alongside Motorhead and the Nolans. <laughs> there it is. And two years later, he had another go at Eurovision with Hold Me Now, which he won, becoming the first person to win it twice. And the single got to number two in June of 1987, held off number one by I Wanna Dance With Somebody Who Loves Me by Whitney Houston. And in 1992, he wrote Why Me for Linda Martin, which won that year's contest, cementing his title of Mr. Eurovision. You know what? I've got no memory at all of Terminal 3, the one he wrote for Linda Martin in 84. I've got no memory of Hold Me Now, which, you know, his historic second winner, number two in the UK. I can remember Once voted, by the way, the third best Eurovision song ever. Really? Uh, prob- yeah, yeah. But uh, probably I don't remember it because like rock expert David Stubbs, I was too busy listening to the young gods in 1987. <laughs> you know, I was too serious. Oh, uh, leave David alone. <laughs> no, seriously, man, I was. And I, I've, I've got no memory of Why Me either, the uh, Linda Martin winner from 92. Yeah. Um, I was too busy listening to Suede and the Manic Street Preachers. Yeah. But, um, but I, I know enough about Eurovision to know that over that period, between his first win and his sort of uh, win, uh, by proxy in 92 um, the, the competition did become steadily more self-aware and more knowingly kitsch mm. and I found an interview with Johnny Logan from an Estonian paper because he doesn't give many interviews he doesn't trust the press mm. right? uh, <laughs> where he, he complains that Eurovision had lost its edge since his day. <laughs> lost its edge. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Eurovision was losing its edge to better looking song competitions with better ideas and more talent. And they're actually really, really nice. One for the hipsters there. Uh, he said that, um, winning Eurovision was a double edged sword. He says, you enjoy your success at Eurovision and the success of the winning song, sure. But then you also become the Eurovision winner, and that can be very unfashionable, mm. certainly in England. Ooh. So he sounded a bit bitter there, and I thought, mm. well, well, what's all that about? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wonder what he meant. Why do you think you're on top of the pops, mate? Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, but it turns out he tried to be fashionable. Right? In 1982, <laughs> oh, yes. uh, he, he had a new sound and a, 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 on a song called Becoming Electric. Ooh. Yes. 
which was a total flop. Now, you can imagine how I reacted to this discovery. I had to mm. hear it. Um, yes. But it's not out there anywhere on YouTube or uh-huh. any streaming services, whether legally or illegally. I might just have to buy it. Johnny Ooh. Logan becoming electric. I mean, fucking up. It could be absolutely outstanding one way or another. Didn't he change his name to just Logan? Did he? Yes. Oh, nice. Maybe that's where you're going wrong, Simon. It could be his wired for sound, couldn't it? It Yeah. yeah. Or his me and my girl nightclubbing or something like that. Oh, we've got to track that down. Because, Because, of course, in 1982, Brotherhood of Man changed their name to BHM, didn't they? Right, yeah, yeah. In a doomed attempt to go a bit new romantic. <laughs> There's probably a whole playlist or a compilation album to be made of middle-of-the-road acts going a little bit new romantic. Yeah. Like when Manhattan Transfer did Twilight Zone and stuff like that. Oh, mm. yes. I did wonder what, what life must be like for Johnny Logan after his 12-year Eurovision imperial phase. And I kind of imagined either a quiet retirement or, you know, maybe a modest living on the cruise ship and cabaret circuit. But mm. no, mm. he's always got something on the go. He must be minted right yeah for one yeah, thing yeah. he loves an advert he's done mcdonald's and center parks so he's I'm not right. short of a few quid um yeah, between yeah. 2009 and 2011 he performed in a celtic rock opera called excalibur <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> excalibur which uh, uh i've had a look at it so that you don't have to and um even as a celtic man myself i can report that it's fucking shocking no. and um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and this year he was in the Belgian version of the Masked Singer as the Red Deer, and there's a film coming out about him called Mister Eurovision. Mm. So I, I guess wow. once you've done the you know the Freddie Mercury story and Elton John, there's only one left to do, isn't it? It's got to be Johnny Logan. <laughs> uh, but he wants to keep entering it until he wins it a third time, so he can keep the Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah, <laughs> the Jules Rimet, um Eurovision yeah. Song Contest, as it's called. Yeah. <laughs> And that closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. But two weeks to the day after this episode, a secret ballot held by the Musicians Union revealed that 83% of its membership were in favour of a strike against the BBC and the writing was on the wall. A week later, before a performance of Fidelio by the English National Opera at the London Coliseum, which was to be broadcast live on Radio 3, members of the orchestra announced that if any of the BBC's microphones were set up by the time they arrived in the orchestra pit, they would down tools and walk off, forcing Radio 3 to announce the cancellation of that broadcast and put on a very big record instead. The day after that, the MU announced that it would officially go on strike on June the 1st, meaning that no BBC musicians or any other MU members would play a note for BBC TV or radio, forcing Top of the Pops off the air. As the great fizzy pop TV famine of 1980 dragged on, Robin Nash took the opportunity to step down as executive producer of Top of the Pops and pass the baton to the current producer of the two Ronnies, Michael Hurl. 
When the strike ended after the BBC offered to dissolve only two of the orchestras and give the 63 musos they were making redundant a fat bonus and a five-year guarantee of freelance work, the strike was off. And when Top of the Pops returned on the 7th of August after a nine-week layoff, Hurl was in full control and change was most definitely afoot. Nine fucking episodes of Top of the Pops didn't happen, man. That's so upsetting isn't it yeah i wonder which great singles didn't get their chance to be on there you know what i mean yeah 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 what great singles just hovering outside the top 40 didn't get their break Mm. it's heartbreaking but but at the same time i mean perhaps as a way of getting you know nash out and hurl in the strike was necessary as a kind of moment well it gave them a lot of time to fuck about and Mm. flesh the new top of the pops out do you reckon right if they tried to carry on making top of the pops with sort of scab workers you'd have had scab pop stars like (laughs) you know some pop stars standing shoulder to shoulder with the strikers like maybe like you know the beat and ub40 and dexies or Mm. something but then you'd have i I don't know maybe uh ba robertson Robertson. he'd be be through there like a shot definitely Robertson did that test broadcast at Top of the Pulse with Peter Powell, didn't they? You know that one where they got camera crew and floor staff oh. to, to step in to pretend to be pop stars? Uh, yeah. We've got to do that one yes, day. Please. I wonder which presenters would be scabs as well. Most All of, them, of them, I suspect. Yeah. Do you know you what? Tommy would. Bates wouldn't, because he's, well, I mean, he's yeah, turned out to be yeah, a bit yeah, of a yeah. lefty. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, DLT and the rest, oh, they'd yeah. all be totally scabbing it up so what's on television afterwards well bbc one drops in on the sunshine cab company as alex and chums try to keep lacquer in the country by marrying him off to a prostitute in taxa i watched a lot of taxa uh, during lockdown yeah. delighted to find out that alex judd hirsch in taxa proper rude boy if he's not wearing an arrington he's wearing one of them <laughs> ma1 green flight jackets <laughs> fucking proper man Louis de Palma knows don't argue. (laughs) Then it's part two of Hannah, a dramatisation of the novel about a spinster in Bristol between the war. After the nine o'clock news, it's part one of the drama series Bull Week, about a factory in the Midlands starring Mark McManus. Then Paradise in a Dream, a documentary about the Coleridge poem Kubla Khan. Then it's the news headlines, question time, the weather, and they close down at midnight. BBC Two is just about to finish an examination of America's inflation problems in Newsweek, then in the making, a series of films about arts and crafts in modern Britain, follows the theatrical designer Pamela Howard about as she works on the RSC's production of Othello, starring... Who do you think's going to play Othello in 1980, chaps? In 1980, I mean, um, is it a black guy? Please, please let it be a black guy. First of all, <laughs> Donald Sinden. What? What the Donald fuck? fucking Sinden. Oh, you know, there were God. black actors available by this time. Yes. Yeah, this is unbelievable. Donald Sinden. But I mean, Donald Sinden is a great actor in a Shakespearean sense. I mean, he, he enunciates well. I'm sure he did a good job, but fucking hell. I mean, he puts, mm. it puts David Baddiel and Jason Lee into perspective. <laughs> <laughs> well, quite. Phil Drabble and Eric Holsaw are witnesses to Istra as the first ever woman takes part in One Man and His Dog. Then it's part four of A Question of Guilt, the drama series about Mary Blander, who was hung in 1752 for poisoning her dad. 
Man Alive nips over to America to investigate how science is helping couples choose the sex of their baby, followed by highlights of the snooker, and they round off the night with a Newsnight special on today's local elections. ITV is currently halfway through Charlie's Angels, followed by TVI, then it's the sitcom The Nesbits are coming, followed by Shelley, The News at 10, highlights of the FA Cup semi-final third replay, which Arsenal won, regional news in your area, and they finish off with local election returns closing down at 20 past midnight. So, boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? We're talking about Dexys, The Beat, Motorhead, Saxon. Mm. I mean, I, I think I'll be talking about just how cool Tommy Vance's voice is, because <laughs> it just is really cool. I mean, I doubt I actually saw this episode because we weren't allowed to watch Top of the Pops in Stalag Hollingbury. Mm. But um, <laughs> if I had, obviously, yeah, you've got the excitement of Dexys and The Beat. But in terms of WTF, did you see that weirdness? It's mm. Kate Bush being a mm. cling film fetus yeah. and maybe mm. the bloke from Hot Chocolate who saw UFO. I yeah. Think. What are we buying on Saturday? Um, Dexy's Beat, Kate Bush, Motorhead, Hot Chocolate and New Music. Mm. Um, I have a very factual and accurate answer to this because I bought Lovely. The Beat, Dexy's and Rodney Franklin. But in later years, I mean, I acquired nearly all of them. New Music, Narada Michael Walden, Hot Chocolate, yeah. Nolan's, Kate Bush. In fact, honestly, it'd be easier to list the songs I didn't buy at some point from this episode. And what does this episode tell us about May of 1980? I think it says that contrary to um, sort of 1980 being seen as this in between a year... It's got a shit ton of delights to itself. And it's actually mm. a year where I think we can legitimately feel it's the UK charts that are pointing the way that 80s music is going to go mm. way more than the US chart. Oh, yes. You know, in a way, this episode is so good. It almost makes me feel like I wish we could have had, I don't know, another 1980 before yeah. 81 <laughs> and 82 came in and changed everything forever. You know, mm. um, it's an amazing episode, this. And, and looking at this episode and also the charts... Yeah, we must not undervalue 1980. It's an amazing year. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, also, you know, even though this isn't my favourite ever, Top of the Pops, I do think it's a wonderful representation of the show at its best. Mm, Um, If a young person asked me what Top of the Pops was all about, I could just show them this. Yes. It's got everything, literally, from Motorhead to the Nolans and all points in between. And it's got the multitude of genres and subcultures that were prevalent at the time from metal to ska to disco. Mm. It's all there. I I think it's a fantastic episode. And that, Pop Craze Youngsters, concludes this episode. Well, well, sorry. Hold on a minute. Could uh, th- there's just an important piss troll update? Oh, oh yes, close, come on. Oh, I mean, actually, this is like a, Crime Watch update, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a, a slight update, a late breaking plea, really. I've been talking to my dear friend Haley Jordan. Hello, Haley, if you're listening. Hey, Haley. The, the the person who first alerted me to the Birmingham piss troll, and oh. um, you know, I'm shocked to discover a couple of things about the uh, the BPT, as I'm sure all the cool <laughs> kids will now be. Called. Um, for starters, it is rumoured, and it has been rumoured, that there may be more than one of him. No! Yes. <gasps> that perhaps even there's a whole sort of Shawnee Bean-style family of piss trolls oh, scuttling about the canals of Birmingham. You know, in search of that sweet, salty, yellow gold. But It's like the Loch Ness Monster. There's that theory that the Loch Ness Monster is actually several generations yeah, yeah. of the same monster. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. But perhaps more poignantly... 
BPT, he's not been seen for nearly a decade. Ooh. The last reported sighting um, that I can ascertain is a friend of Haley's who swears down the Birmingham piss troll ran past his flat in 2012. <laughs> he's got a flat by the canal and he swears down the Birmingham piss troll legged it past his flat window in 2012. So he seems to have disappeared off the scene a little bit. It would be wonderful if any Birmingham-based pop-crazed youngsters could confirm this or establish whether, you know, um, whether the Birmingham piss troll is gone, whether the family have moved elsewhere. The canal system in Birmingham is big. So, um, yeah, any kind of info from the Pop Craze Junctions would be much appreciated. Let's solve this mystery. Most definitely, yes. Let's get this man. He really is a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Al, I'm thinking, sharp music, Birmingham Piss Troll merchandise by Christmas. Yes. Come on. What the pop craze yum yums who are listening to this need to do now is all arrange to meet up on a bridge at a certain time and have a massive waz off it (laughs) to draw him out. You know what I mean? The only thing I can think is, you know, eventually piss might have just not hit the spot for him and he's moved on to something else. But um, if there's a, yeah, I mean, if there's now a Birmingham shit troll about, we need to know. Good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, this is the end of this episode of Chart Music. Promotional flange, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter if it's still there by the time you hear this, Mm. at chartmusictotp, money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chart music thank you simon price goodbye god bless you neil kulkane oh thank you no worries my name's al needham who's a lucky boy then (laughs) chart music
expert, David Stubbs. Hi, my name's David Stubbs. Rock expert, David Stubbs. Rock expert, David Stubbs. Rock expert, David Stubbs. Bringing you a hard-driving mix of hard rock and hard facts. As I record this, it's exactly 25 years since the death of Michael Hutchins of Inexcess, undoubtedly the finest rock band ever to come out of New Zealand. He rocked hard. He lived clean. Take it from the rock expert, the man who knows. He never took drugs. Just ask his wife, Paula Radcliffe, who never took them either. But I'm not here to talk about Paula Radcliffe. I'm here to talk about White Snake. Iconic, hard-driving... If they were a stick of rock, they'd have the word rock running through them. And let me tell you, in 1981, it took balls of thunder to rock like this. As once true rockers deserted the metal faith in droves to dance under the disco lights to David Van Day's dollar. Thanks a bunch for turning a soft Larry Grayson. He's a rolling, a rocking, a rocking, a rolling rock expert, David Stubbs. Thank goodness, help arrived in the form of that 80s heavy rock movement whose acronym trips so easily off the tongue. I'm talking about. New wave of British heavy metal. White Snake had already laid down a marker three years earlier with their iconic feminist anthem, Lie Down, a modern love song. A woman who truly respects herself, respects a strong man who tells her to lie down and have some sex done to her. She doesn't need me in the groin. Bogus! Anyway, let's get down to Don't Break My Heart Again. Catalog number EC65437GS29X4. Damn, damn. That should be EC65437G639X4. Stupid, stupid mistake, stupid. Who could forget the bass line? Doom, 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 I'm standing with my back to the wall, sings Mr. Carmadale. I feel his pain. He's on his guard. If you've ever been taken from behind by a woman, you'll know what I'm talking about. Mr. Coverdale sure as hell does. Which is why I send out this message to women to quote Mr. Coverdale right here on this song. Make no mistake, it could be your last. Because there's nothing like a maudlin, empty death threat to convince a woman who just won't lie down to lie down. And that's modern. Take it away, Al! Rockin' and rollin', rollin' and rockin', rockin' and rollin' and rockin'! If you want to hear more from me, rock expert David Stubbs, subscribe to me on YouTube. Address HTTPS full colon slash slash www.youtube.com slash watch question mark V equals QKLEH dash OOFD 8% T equals 134S. When you need 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.